Hey everyone, welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, and sitting here with me is George. What's How up, you, Kevin? How's it going, George? I'm doing okay. Yeah, you know? I haven't seen you in a while. I've been, I know. I've been on the road. It's good. I'm, yeah. I'm happy everyone's back. The whole, like, just got the team back together. and It's crazy, man. It's been it's been 100 miles an hour. Hell yeah. And, and, uh, I tell you, working here after retirement ain't no joke, dude. <laughs> no, it, it, it's it, ain't not. No, it ain't no rest, man. I've been trying to, I've been trying to do more land nav videos. Yeah. I did one, and, and uh, people are like, when's the next land nav video? I, I just can't get to it, man. I know. People yeah. are asking me about like the cooking videos and stuff. I'm like, I would love yeah. to just take a whole day. I just can't right now. I know, Not right I, now. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully things will uh, things will settle down soon, yeah. which I doubt. But yeah, no. um, we're, we're in the middle of opening up a second office in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So we'll be in two locations and a uh, beautiful place uh, up there recently with Mike. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking yeah, forward I'm to that. I'm taking off tomorrow to go scout out some areas mm-hmm. up in... Uh, northern salt lake city so nice found yeah. a couple houses i got a couple uh appointments so yeah. we'll see yeah nice cool yep so we're sponsored now we've I been know. sponsored we've been sponsored we have a new a sponsor though yeah our yeah. new sponsor is arturo tires you can find them at arturo.com so we have a special uh a special deal with arturo tires right now uh, so if you buy four of their Trailblade Series tires, you get a seventy-five gift card, seventy-five dollar gift card to Amazon or Bass Pro. Um, so, but in order to get that rebate, you need to go to aturo.com forward slash fieldcraft. Once again, aturo.com forward slash fieldcraft. When you buy four Trailblade tires, you get seventy-five dollar gift card to Amazon and Bass Pro. But just to give you a little um, preview of the the tires. They have six of these Trailblade tires. Everywhere from a big boss tire all the way down to the uh, all-terrain tire, um, and then so their treads or sidewalls. They're basically, what they're what they are. They're inspired by the real blades from the Quartermaster knives. And today, I'm going to highlight the Trailblade MT. The Trailblade MT has unstoppable biting tread. It plows through mud, dirt, and it just about anything else you can uh, counter on the trail. We got beveled center tread blocks, staggered shoulder blocks. Menacing style with high level grip and extra deep tread to get through all those, uh, you know, the trails. If you're hitting the, the trails, you get through all the mud, the dirt, the snow, the sand, anything you need to get through this uh, Trailblade MT can get you through that. Uh, we got a full three ply sidewall and wide track draining. So when you're going through uh, dirt, mud, water, it's going to clear that out for you so you don't have to get stuck in the mud or, or the water. So check them out. It's a, a Turo.com forward slash fieldcraft to buy four trailblade tires get 75 dollars gift card to either amazon or bass pro next up we got Killcliff. you can find them at killcliff.com kevin i see you drinking a kill cliff what you got there i got that cbd i, I just looked in the fridge and i was like yes george, george didn't drink them all you <laughs> no, know we, this thing's badass it's really really tasty yeah. and and uh yeah 25 milligrams of cbd it's oh yeah. nice, man and that's like part it. of their their recover series so you know, you got your CBD, you got a little bit of caffeine on there, you got your electrolytes, your B vitamins, clean energy drinks, killcliff.com, check them out. They also have Ignite, which is kind of like your pre-workout, 150 milligrams of clean caffeine, and then you also have your recovery series. Um, they have about 15 calories. It's, I mean, for me, I look at it as a healthy alternative to mm-hmm. energy drinks. Yeah, yeah, it it it, uh, it really is. And they give back. They give money to the Navy SEAL Foundation, oh, yeah. which is always cool. Yeah, and it's like I, you know, you we've been in the military for years, and there's energy drinks are just yeah, you yeah. have to have it every morning. So you I might do. as well just have something a little bit healthier and uh-huh. get some clean energy drink with Killcliff. You can find mm-hmm. them at killcliff.com. We have a coupon code. It's Survival Ten. 
survival one zero save 10% off every order. Next up, we got Casey highlights. You can find them at caseyhighlights.com. Um, what can I say about Casey highlights? I mean, they have lights for everything. I mean, if you, if you can mount it on a vehicle, mount it on an ATV, anything, they, mm -hmm. they have the lights for you. You have Any, some in your truck now, right? Yeah. I have a couple of the, uh, I forget what they're called. The, uh, they're like the round, the round lights, they're yeah. led super bright. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I have that, and then I have the pod lights as well that I'm going to mount on the back of my roof rack. Yeah. So if I'm out on the trail, I can see behind me, and I can uh, swivel them out. Yeah. Yeah, so, I really like those. Mike's got a bunch of them on his oh, truck. Yeah. And he hits those things. It's like daylight. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, they have everything from light bars to rock lights you put up in your wheel wells to see on the trail at night. Anything you need to light up at night to make it safer wherever you're going on the road. People always like to talk about, why do you need all those lights? It's like, mm -hmm. well, when you're outdoors and you're driving and the conditions are bad, yep. why not? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, you know, it, does, absolutely. it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So check them out at caseyhighlights.com. Use code FIELDCRAFT and save 10% off your entire order. FIELDCRAFT, 10% off. Next up, we have Triarch Systems. You can find them at triarchsystems.com. Uh, Kevin, what do you think about Triarch so far? Beautiful, man. Love them. I have a truck gun. I stole it from Mike in my, <laughs> in my truck with a folder on it, a law tactical folder. Uh, very well-built guns, oh, very yeah. accurate, very durable, and very, very reliable. Um, yeah, I love those things, man. They're, oh, they're, yeah. they're high-end. I mean, um, we, we put rounds and rounds yeah. and rounds through these things, and n not one failure, mm -hmm. not one double feed, nothing. Yeah. So. You know, people who don't know... Um, not all AR-15s are built the same, no, right? No, they're not. <laughs> Some are better than others. I, I, these are really, really oh, well yeah. built. And uh, yeah, you, you you can get a custom-built gun from oh, them. Yeah. And uh, They got, what do they got? They got custom Glocks, custom Tri-11s, custom 1911s, mm -hmm. custom carbines. Yeah. And they have all the accessories you need as yeah. well. So, And as soon as you pick it up, uh, oh. carbine or their, their pistols, you can just tell oh, they're, yeah. they're high quality. Oh, you know? yeah. So yeah, so check them out at tri triarchsystems.com. Use code FIELDCRAFT and save 5% off your entire build. So once again, FIELDCRAFT for 5% off. So Kevin, you had a chance to um, sit down and talk with Brian Edwards. How I did, how was yeah. That? So I've been chasing Brian, trying to get him to do a podcast for a while, and he was very reluctant, but uh, finally got to sit down with him. Um, Brian's been one of my mentors for a long time. He spent 32 years straight in Army Special Forces, Damn. came in as a private E1 in the 80s and, and rose all the way up to, to the, the regiment sergeant major. So he was the highest ranking NCO in all of Special Forces. So he was in charge of every Green Beret on the planet. Wow. So as he climbed that ladder and deployed and deployed and deployed, spent time in 7th Group, spent time in 10th Group, spent time in... Um, uh, a lot sometimes swick he was the when i worked at sniper school he was the training group sergeant major so he was my boss's 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 mm -hmm. boss right um a lot of the the the, the changes we implemented in in sniper school were, were due to his support uh and then um when i was working in force mod when i started there he was the regiment csm and uh, very, very supportive of new equipment for, for the regiment. And then when he retired in 2014, he actually wanted to still give it back. So he, he took a civilian job in Force Mod. So I got to work with him for another couple of years. And he just, you know, retired for a second time. So to be able to sit down with a guy with that wealth of knowledge, mm -hmm. 32 years as, as, a, as a special forces operator, deployed all over the world, was in charge of, of a lot of people. Um, some good tips on leadership and... Uh, 
Yeah, re- really good podcast. It's very long because he had a very, very long yeah. career, but you don't have to listen to it oh, all yeah. in one go. You, you can listen to it in parts, but um, yeah, yeah, super That's cool. Awesome. Really good podcast. He's done it all. He has. Seen it all. He has, yeah. Wow. yeah. All right, everybody, enjoy. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. And with me today is Brian Edwards. Brian, thanks for being on the podcast. No problem. Glad to be here. No, you're not, because it took a while to get you to do this. You've been badgering <laughs> me to do this for like a year since I'm, you were badgered into doing your first one about a year ago. Mike Glover badgers me and I badger you. That's how the world goes around. Yes. Yeah, um, I won't be badgering anybody to do one. No, you might be. Um, so uh, how do you like retirement? good loving it um you know a lot of people would say oh somebody like edwards you know he's gonna have a hard time with this uh you know he's always busy etc and so on and and uh i powered down quick uh, i stay pretty busy um but it's doing the things that you know pretty much i want to do mm-hmm. yeah i'm one of those people that said you can't sit still there's no way and here you are but you've only been doing it for a couple of months yeah almost five months really oh yeah you're reloading reloading i started doing that right when i retired started uh, reloading developed loads for 65 creedmoor and then uh 260 started 308 doing that got that pretty much down i've got a couple more calibers to do and i kind of got bored of doing that because i did so much of it right off the bat and there, there's plenty of stuff to do around the house and and the other thing is is when you're working 8 10 12 hours a day you know you're rushing through everything when you get home um, it's, it's nice to, uh, take two hours to do something that, you know, would normally take you 30 minutes or, or an hour if you, if you had to get up and go to work the next day. Yeah. You've been, you've been probably putting stuff on, putting stuff off for about 40 years, maybe. <laughs> Close to it. Close to it. So 32 years in special forces, right? Yeah. I, I came in the army in June of 83 and, uh, went to infantry OSIT training, uh, airborne school, and then went straight to the Q course, graduated in July of 84. And then I came out of my last position in uh, August of, of 2015 and retired about six months after that was out. Yeah, and then you worked with me and Force Mod as a civilian, a government employee. Yes, I did. We, we, we just complained to each other every day. So let's go back. So you grew up in California. Let's talk about uh, like high school and, and, and like influences in your life as a young man and then why, <clears throat> excuse me, why you wanted to go into the military? What was that draw that, that, that kind of pushed you towards serving your country? Well, I grew up in uh, Tehachapi, California. It's a small town in the mountains. It sits at about 4,000 feet. It's about, uh, about 90, 100 miles uh, north of LA as the crow flies. And small town, had a population of about three or 4,000 people. Uh, most of my, you know, younger days was basically bicycles, BB guns, and uh, baseball and football, whatever. I mean, that's pretty much what we did. Got up in the morning, you know, during the summertime or on the weekend, and if we didn't have a sport, you know, baseball or whatever was in season, then we'd be out playing something or riding our bicycles and BB guns, same thing in the summer. It was out all day long and come back to eat and then check back out again. California's changed quite a bit since you were a young man. So an interesting thing, I tell this story all the time, you know, how much California's changed. When I was about, let's say 11, 12 years old, we would uh, walk down the street, uh, a couple 11, 12 year old kids with our 22s. Um, we'd go down to the liquor store, prop our 22s outside the door, 
we would go in and we'd buy a soda and uh, you know maybe some candy bars or something like that. And you know the liquor liquor store, at least in my hometown, you could buy liquor, you could buy beer, you could buy wine, you could buy sandwiches, sodas, ammo. You, you could buy ammo. <laughs> you could buy guns. They sold guns there. Really? Um, fishing poles, yeah. live bait, lures, the whole nine yards. So it was yeah. kind of like the general store. And then we'd go outside, grab our guns, walk across the street, the railroad tracks, and walk down the railroad tracks uh, and uh, shoot birds, squirrels, whatever it was. Yeah, your mom still lives there, right? My mom does still live there. Mm -hmm. When's the last time you've been back? I was there in August, or excuse me, uh, March of this year. Okay, you see a big difference, or is it just the same? Like, obviously, all the politics and all the BS is in the background, but the actual town? The uh, town has grown significantly since I left you yeah. know, in 1983. Uh, I went a pretty good period without going back, um, you know, having three kids, and it's kind of expensive to go from North Carolina all the way back. Um, but then uh, over the last, let's say, five or six years, especially when my dad got... Uh, came down with cancer, um, I spent more time going back and, and visiting. Mm, beautiful place. We, me and Mike drove through it a couple of weeks ago. Really nice place. Yeah, yeah I, I, I go there all the time and I was like going, man, if it wasn't for the laws, I would come back <laughs> here. You know, I'd, I'd have to give up half my uh, half of my toys, so to speak, yeah. to, in order to go back to that state. Yeah, I refuse to do so. So, um, grew up playing sports. You're a baseball guy, right? Uh, yeah, I'd say I was kind of a mediocre athlete. I played, when I was younger, I played baseball, you know, Little League. Uh, I played basketball until I finally gave up. That was just something that was not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> no talent, no height. You're like, I really want to be a baseball player. but and, yeah. uh, and I played football too. Flag football until they started playing, uh, running youth tackle football, and then I played that. I bet there was no participation trophies back then, huh? I don't remember participation <laughs> trophies. I was on a couple teams that did get a trophy, so fortunately, yeah. I was paired up with some good talent. <laughs> what was your? Uh, what was? You, when did you start thinking about going in the military? Was it like very young, or was it near the end of high school? Or and what, what was that attraction to you? I don't know. I you know from the youngest age that I can remember, you know, GI Joes and Little Green Army men and stuff. I was I was just interested in that. So I would say from my earliest memories, you know, I was. You know, headed in that direction to join the military, and and as I got older, you know, I jumped to firefighter. You know, the things that everybody does, and mm -hmm. I want to be a police officer, or deputy sheriff. You know, and it, and that was, I would say, if I looked back and thought about it, it was influenced on you know the people that you know my dad's friends or something like that. You know, oh, he's a deputy sheriff, and that seems pretty cool. So maybe I want to do that. Mm -hmm. But it always come back to um being in the military specifically you know an infantry type job um that was quite, kind of what was in my mind um you know i'd go back and forth uh, you know maybe i want to be a marine i know they had this uh they had this camp like devil dogs or something like that down in san diego and i read about that and i wanted to go do that and my dad's like you'll grow up soon enough you need to you know stay at home and you know focus on sports while you know you you can still play those things mm -hmm. and, uh, and and like as a young man in the early 80s the, the u.s military was still pretty much suffering from the vietnam war right and it was gutted and there wasn't a lot of money although reagan probably rebuilt the military a little bit right from my perspective growing up, I, I didn't see all that. You yeah. know, I, I mean, I just, you know, they didn't have Fox News then for yeah, me to watch all no day. Internet. So I, I, could, I couldn't be tuned in on, on all the trials and tribulations of the military and what was going on. That's but, true. We forget about that a lot. Like the, the amount of media that's right at your hands now, we, we, we forget about that. When, when you were growing up and I, that, when I was growing up, 
there was no way to research what selection was like or what SF did unless you had a book or something. But uh, nowadays, like kids go in and they hit up Mike and me all the time about SF, about selection, about getting getting guidance and all that. And I'm like, man, you've got more information at your hands than you could ever want. Uh, maybe you just need to just go do it. Yeah, when we were growing up, at some point when I was growing up, then we got cable and we went from having two, maybe three channels off of an antenna to uh, having about, I don't know, maybe 10 channels or something like that. Typically, uh, and then I spent a lot of time with, at my mom's parents' house because both my parents worked, so after school I'd go out there until I got old enough to watch myself. And uh, so you would, it would go through time periods. You'd have a, a time period during the day of soap operas, and that was time to be outside playing, and then there would be a short period of time you know, maybe after school where they'd have an hour or two of, you know, Popeye the Sailor or some type of cartoon or something like that. And then the, when the news came on, it was time to go back outside and do something. So mm. I would say that if it was discussed or anything, you know, talking about the Vietnam War uh, or, you know, the aftermath of the Vietnam War or the perception of the military, I never heard anything negative. You know, in, in, in my hometown, you know, there was nobody said anything negative that I recall in the military, but you know, I, I remember things like we would have, I can't remember, we'd have like a little parade in the, in the hometown on the 4th of July, and they would have, it was either the 4th of July or what they called the Mountain Festival Parade, and they had the, uh, the uh, uh, what is it, uh, Pearl Harbor survivors mm -hmm. would march in the parade. And you know, when you look at in the early 70s, those guys were probably about my age right now. Yeah. Um, when they were doing it, and I would look at that and I'd be like, that's so cool, man. Those people are so cool. You know? <laughs> I just, you know, always, I always had a focus on the military, and so I was going that way. And and when it got closer time, um, when it came time, came time to make the decision, I was interested in SF for a couple reasons. You know, you had, I guess, John John Wayne and the Green Berets. I don't remember specifically what it was, but you had that. You know, Rambo came out probably a few months before I actually signed up for the military. And then one of my friends' dads was a uh, was an SF guy. I think he got out, um, and you know he had his Green Beret paraphernalia, and, and he was, uh, you know, he's one of those guys that yeah, it'd be kind of cool to be that guy maybe. So mm. when when it came time, um, originally I was like, I want to go in the army and talk to a recruiter. This was my junior year, and the and the recruiter said, Yeah, all we've got. And I said, I want to go in the guard. I want to go in right now. And he says, Well, we got MPs and we got these other things. And my dad goes. You're not going to basic training in the summer, you know, continue on, do your football practice, you know, finish out your senior year, and then you can go into the military. So I said, once I got a year out, I said, okay, well, I'll sign up and I will, can I be a Green Beret? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, you got to take tests. And ultimately, um, I signed up, did the, uh, I think it was called the 18 x-ray contract. And, and uh, three days after I graduated high school, mm -hmm. uh, left home and went up to the MEP station in San Diego, or excuse me, uh, Fresno, and swore in and got shipped off to Fort mm. Jackson, South Carolina. So the 18 X-ray program is taking kids straight off the street, out of high school, and putting them into the SF pipeline, right? And that, <clears throat> I, I actually didn't know until I talked to you a while ago that that was a program um, like 30 years ago, wherever it was, and then it went away for a very long time, and then it came back after 9-11, right? And, and because we just couldn't fill the, the ranks, right? Yeah, yeah, jumping forward, um, and I know you want to go back. The interesting thing is, is so uh, George Becker yep. was the USOC CSM when I was the SF Command CSM, mm -hmm. and and the eight there the uh, the SF Baby 18 X-ray 
uh, program had been in existence for, for quite a while at that point. And, and it would pop up uh, periodically. And so some people were expressing some concerns about it. And, uh, and I know General Cleveland looked at uh, George and me and he's like, hey, uh, so what do you two guys think about that You're program? both x-rays, Yeah, right? we were both x-rays from like 30 years before. Mm -hmm. We're like, I don't know, it seemed to work out for some guys. Yeah, well, that's the big thing about x-rays. They have longevity, right? So um, a guy who spent six, seven, 10 years in the Army before he went to SF has got no longevity. 10 years later, he's an E7 or an E8 maybe, and he's getting out. Whereas a guy comes in straight off the street and does 30 years like you and end up being the CSM of the regiment. So that that's the big the plus for it, right? <clears throat> there's, there's pluses and minuses, but I think the overall plus is that you have an ODA that has guys that were 18 x-rays and, and have that longevity, and you've got guys that come in from the infantry, you know, guys, former rangers, MPs, even mechanics, you know, because they, they bring in that variety of skill sets and backgrounds. You know, if everybody was all 18 x-rays, then you would miss what you're getting from pe what people bring in from the big army. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So um, so after you got to the recruiter and he's like, hey, can I be a Green Beret? You're like, absolutely. So you go to uh, one station training, basic and AIT in Fort Benning like the rest of us? Yep, that's what I did. Came in, went to Fort Jackson, signed in, got the uh, got the haircut and the uniforms, and got on a bus and and driven on a bus down to Fort Benning, Georgia. And that was that that first, I would say, 15, 20 minutes at Fort Benning. I was thinking, man, maybe this army stuff is not for me. You get a little anxious. Yeah. No, you expected it. You know, you get off the bus and you could see the uh, you know the uh, drill sergeants hanging around waiting for the bus to stop. You know, like predators waiting mm -hmm. for the gazelle. And we knew it was coming, so they get on the bus, start yelling, and and that was one of my first mistakes I made in the military. Is like get off the bus. Of course, they're screaming at you. You you know you're running. They know you're gonna get down there. And we had the duffel bags. And the duffel bag had two shoulder straps and it had a, a handle on it for a, like a hand handle that was, I think it was like between them or close to that side. And so I found mine and I threw it on and they're, they're marching us around and, then, and my arm is just like falling asleep. And I'm like going, what is wrong with my arm? I can't figure it out. After they finished walking us around when I finally took it off, I put my left arm through the shoulder strap and my right arm through that carrying handle. <laughs> and I remember that to this day because I was like, oh, man, my arm's going to fall up. I can't even carry a duffel yeah, bag. It was like a tourniquet on your arm. <laughs> it was. I was like, I won't do that again. Yeah. Um, were you, what uniform were you in back then? Was it, it wasn't BDUs. B, it was BDUs. What, what year was this, 83? That was 83, yeah. so BDUs were out. That's what we got issued. Uh, I would say a lot of the drill sergeants were still wearing that uh, the green uniform. The OG 107s. No, not OG call. 107s, because yeah. actually when I graduated the Q, Q course and went to 7th group, we were, wore uh, OG 107s to like 1989. What? Uh, really? Yeah, those, those were still in, so I think it was basically, I don't know if the other groups were wearing it, but I know 7th group was. And the Ranger Battalion probably wore it until about that time, too, or mm. Ranger Battalions, ultimately Ranger Regiment. Um, but that's the uniform we wore. But we were issued uh, BDUs, and like I said, the drill sergeants were wearing, I can't remember what that uniform, you actually tucked your pants in when they wore a pistol belt and mm. all that type of stuff. And uh, and when I was in the Q course, and a little bit afterwards, some of the old timers uh, were still wearing, SF guys were wearing the, uh, the camis. No, um, which was like an OG 107 uniform with a camouflage pattern. Yeah, yeah. Um, M16A2, right? 
Or A1. No, M16A1. Yeah, with the old so, triangle hard guard, hand guard on no, it? No, uh, yeah, old triangle hand yeah, guard. Yeah, nice, iron sights. How far we've come. Yeah, and M16. how far we haven't come at the same time. <laughs> yeah, well, and to do, disagree with a lot of people that hate the 5.56, it did need an upgraded round, but... Uh, to me, it, the 5.56 is kind of like the baby bear bed. You know, it, it it's effective. Uh, you know, especially with the 8.55 A1. I think mm -hmm. most guys that have uh, used it for real aren't 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 complaining about it. Yeah, it's a good round for for knocking people down and killing them. Um, so straight out of basic AIT, straight to jump school. Basic and AIT, as you know, that's OSIT. So it was yeah. like one day they said, okay, now you're an AIT. Yeah. You push ups and flutter kicks and mountain climbers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. And then straight to A, uh, jump, jump, school. jump school. Okay. Um, then, so I, I, I know what pipeline I went through. So I, I, I kind of somewhat know what you went through, but you went straight to brag after jump school, right? Yep. They collected the SF guys up at, when the, I think it was the day that we graduated jump school and put us on a bus and drove us straight up to uh, Fort Bragg. Um, got off the bus there and, you know, we we're, were all kind of expecting, you know, the younger guys, the, the x-rays were expecting kind of like the same drill sergeant uh, treatment. And, mm -hmm. you know, we got off the bus and staff duty that was there at the barracks, uh, he, he like walks out and he's like, all right, come on in here, you guys get this. It was basically, so it was Friday, I'm pretty sure it was. So they pulled us in there, gave us a quick briefing. Hey, you know, line up over here, get your linen and get your room assignment, go up to your room and be here at, uh, in, in uh, PT uniform at like six o'clock on Monday. And we're mm -hmm. like, what? They're like, what, we're allowed to go? <laughs> yeah. What are we gonna do until Monday morning? <laughs> was it the old- First selection event was that weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So was it the old World War II white buildings? No, I actually showed up, uh, they had three, I guess they were called training companies at the time. Two of the training companies were over in what's the COSCOM area now. Um, I don't even know if it's called that anymore, but, uh, Back then, it was called the Coscom area, and they were in the World War II barracks. The company I went to was right over there on Smoke Bomb Hill. In fact, uh, I'm not sure what's there now. I think I think the Q Course barracks, but it's uh, right up there on the hill um, above where Swick is, and the barracks are still there. Mm -hmm. So what was the pipeline like back then? The pipeline, so for me, um, it was kind of when you showed up, uh, all the young guys, we showed up and they had what they called pre-phase. There was no selection back then, although pre-phase was kind of a selection, but there was no... There was a selection. It just ma it just lasted the whole length of the Q course, right? <laughs> well, and, and I won't say that. It was more the, the pre-phase kind of, you know, that the, the tax that we had, they, they had kind of had to keep us busy every day. Mm -hmm. um, so there was, we would get training, like, okay, we'd do land nav training for a couple of days. Maybe we'd go out and do a short compass course get classes on patrolling and then it kind of rotated through that because that's the that's the easy kind of training to give you can give that in the classroom or you can go out to the field to to get you know people prepared for that and it was more to uh you know keep us busy and out of trouble so to speak it was very beneficial for like a young e2 that had just got out of basic training so because mm -hmm. i Whatever you got in basic training, I can't really remember. Uh, that preface, you know, set me up for success once I got out to McCall because I, I could already read a map and you know had the basic, uh, you know, land navigation, compass skills, a little bit more familiar with you know small unit tactics and patrolling, and the PT was, you know, either, anywhere from very difficult to um, not much that day. It kind of depended on the tack you had and, and, and what they wanted to do. 
The interesting thing is when I first showed up, so that was uh, like right after, I think it was Grenada happened, maybe like a week, I think, or about the same time that I graduated uh, jump school. So the next Q course class that was going into Robin Sage relied heavily on the 82nd for guerrilla support um, to, to serve as the G's for the, for the students. So that fell out. So they came and they took all the younger guys like me and probably about, what well, was a hundred of us supposedly. And they said, yep, you know, you're not going to the next phase one class. You're going to go out and you're going to serve as gorillas for Robin Sage. Yeah, I think they're doing that again now. They right are, now. you know, that rotated back into, I know they talked about it when I was a training group CSM and I was like going, Hey, I, that was actually a pretty good thing because when I went through Robin Sage as a, as a student, had already seen Robin Sage as a gorilla. Yeah. Um, so that that was another thing that I think that uh, you know set me up a little bit more for success. Mm -hmm. Good experience. It's been about three weeks out there. You know, we were out there for several days before the team showed up and served as gorillas. Got classes on you know all the stuff that you give classes on in Robin Sage patrolling, combo, land nav, etc. And uh, went on missions. You know, served as right side security. You know center mm -hmm. of the assault line type stuff so that that was a good thing then we went back and and then after that it was like christmas break and come back and a couple of weeks later then i went to uh phase one mccall oh a small unit tactics so phase one then was essentially it was survival like two or three days of survival training as i recall and then like about five or six days of the survival exercise where they went and dropped you off and you had to perform all your tasks, your shelter, had to have fire, eat your chicken, show proof that you didn't just let it go. Um, traps and snares and mm -hmm. fish traps and acquire water. And that was, uh, that was pretty challenging. You know, five days, five or six days by yourself. Um, not much food because it was February uh, or late January, early February, so there was nothing to forage there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I regretted every half of a cheese sandwich that I ever left on a plate, um, but it was a good experience. Then it was land nav. Um, went and you got your classes on land nav you'd already had, but that was good to go over it again. And then I can't remember the distance or anything, but it was pretty challenging for me. Um, especially at that young age, but I passed that and not everybody did back then. And then you went into about, I'd say maybe two weeks of patrolling, several days of classes and then some cadre led stuff. And, and then you just, you know, switched off patrol, you know, doing raids, ambushes, recons and started a squad and moved up to platoon. Still remember when I, I got a leadership position, I was a platoon leader for a uh, movement phase. I'm a young you know, at that time, yeah, I just turned 19, I think. And, uh, and so I was a platoon leader and I'm walking along and all these people are walking around me. I'm like, I don't know, even know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they do what they're supposed to when something happens. Yeah. You, know, you didn't know at the time, but almost everybody there didn't know what they were doing. They're all just faking it. <laughs> yeah. It was almost a surreal experience. I'm like walking along. I'm like, I'm like leading a patrol, a platoon. <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> Yeah, who the hell let me be in charge? <laughs> so, yeah. um, th so there was no SEER school back then as such, right? They rolled the survival stuff into your small unit phase one? SEER school existed, but it wasn't part of the Q course. Um, okay. So we got, we got as I re obviously a lot of survival training and, and then the longer uh, survival exercise. And as I recall, we got some evasion training. And then I think we got, and that was like evasion planning, not actual, you know, mm. going, you know, evasion. 
And I, as I recall, we got some more evasion planning training in, in uh, phase three before you started Robin Sage. Okay. So after that phase one, was MOS next? MOS was next. 18 Echo? Um, no, I was not supposed to be an 18 Echo. So I was, uh, I went up there as an as a 18 X-ray, 11 Bravo. And 11 Bravos went to the uh, light weapons course. Because back then they had light weapons and heavy weapons. Mm -hmm. And so I was supposed to go to light weapons. And I went, well, I did go. And about halfway through that first day, they came in and they, I can't remember what it was. There was I think it was some guard people that were on orders to be there. And so they had to have seats. And so they just picked, you know, all the 19-year-olds and said, okay, go back to your barracks and uh, you'll, you'll go to the next class because these people have to train. So that was like day one. I think it was on day four or five, like that Thursday or Friday. Uh, had a formation because that's all we were doing at that time is a little bit of PT in the morning, a nine o'clock formation, a 1300 formation. No recipe for disaster there. But, mm -hmm. uh, they had that 1300 formation. And this is where I learned never fall into the front rank of a formation. There you go. Um, it was, hey, you know, we, for, for some reason, several people had fallen out of the... Uh, the Kamo uh, guy class, 18 Echo class, it wasn't really called the 18 Echo class at that time because the 18 series MOS was just coming into being at that time. And uh, so they're like, who wants to go do that? No, no hands went up and they all wanted to be light weapons guys. Who mm -hmm. wouldn't, right? Mm. And they said, come on, you know, here's the deal. If you go over there and, and plus the, the, the big thing was is it was eight weeks of Morse code training and then you had to go into your actual phase two at that time. So the Camo phase two or MOS training was twice as long as the engineers, twice as long as the light and heavy weapons. And, and who wants to be a radio operator and learn, spend eight weeks, eight hours a day learning Morse code. Morse code. Wow. Yeah. So the aren't, guy goes. Weren't, weren't you the, the training group CSM and probably the decision maker to drop Morse code? No, I was not. Uh, when Morse code was completely dropped, I was not the training group CSM. I was actually the uh, ANOC first sergeant at the time. Mm. And they were, they had all the CSMs come in and make decisions all the way through the Q course. So it was like, you know, so you had all the critical tasks, review boards, selection boards and everything, the results from the groups. And then they brought in all the CSMs and I think some of the uh, operational CSMs to make, um, you know, make the decisions yeah. on what was, what was going That's to be in the Q course. That's still done, right? It's done fairly regularly, right? Where did, where did the regiment, like SF regiment, come in and, and look at the Q course and, and try to... I thought that was a yearly thing. It is a... Uh, so each course um, in in SWIC has a... They've got several of them, and, and I'll be a little bit imprecise on this, but you've got uh, critical task review boards mm -hmm. um, for, say, like the 18 Fox course. Mm -hmm. And the, and what they'll do is they'll they'll bring in, uh, you know, task will go out to all the groups. So all the groups have to send like a couple of people that are 18 Fox trained. Typically they want to get some uh, warrant officers in there and they will go top to bottom on all those uh, tasks. And then those representatives from the group will vote on it. And when I was the uh, regimental CSM, what I said is I want to see all those things before it gets signed by the SWIC CG just to put a brush on it. Um, and I would look it over and, uh, and I'd make recommendations saying, hey, I, I know that they voted not to have this, but based on what I've seen, I think that's an important task. 
And uh, that wasn't, you know, always the case or it was infrequent, but I would see sometimes where there were tasks that they were dropping that, you know, based on the fact that I just spent a year in Afghanistan and a couple years before that mm -hmm. had spent, you know, a quite a bit of time at Siege of in, in Iraq. I mean, like that, that's still a pretty important skill. Can you give me an example that you can remember? Uh, I, I couldn't give you one mm -hmm. off. And, and I would say that uh, like the 18 Fox course, I can't remember what the specific skill was. But in Intel analysis, obviously, you know, the whole Intel, Intel community is going more towards using uh, programs to, you know, to sort out the Intel. Mm -hmm. um, and those are very helpful. But the type of things that I would want to keep in there is some analysis on the individual's part. Um, because it takes a human brain to kind of sort that stuff out. You know, you can sift through uh, information with the computer but it still takes, and especially, uh, you know, and go down a little rabbit hole on this. So what's unique about an 18 Fox is that... I'm sorry, 18 Fox is an intel sergeant for special forces, right? 18 so Fox is an he intel comes sergeant. up and he's either a weapons guy, a medic, a commo guy, or an engineer. And then when he gets to a senior level, he goes to an intel school and becomes the intel sergeant on the ODA. I just want to clarify that. Yes, he does. Mm -hmm. And... So what's unique about the 18 Fox is that it's an operator that has is an experienced operator, obviously operational experience, whatever it is, combat or J-sets uh, or whatever. And now you train him as an intel professional. So now you've got the guy with the background that, you know, and, and nothing against intel professionals at all. But when that guy's looking at intel, you know, he knows what it's like to walk at night with nods and the cold weather or hot or you know what it's like to have things fog up you know what the ground looks like so that's that's a i think that's a plus for intel analysis um you get a different look at it than you do from an intel professional that's been doing that his whole life mm -hmm. um, so what i would like to do what i wanted to see is make sure that we had some you know intellectual rigor on the individual's part in his brain to analyze what was going on not just you know rely on outputs from the uh computer program okay didn't didn't wasn't it um i don't know if, if it was um when you were the training group csm or the regiment csm wasn't it and i'm sure there was a lot of conversations come up but the conversation come up to drop map and compass land nav and go to gps right didn't you tell me that before that came up too so just just so you know you started this rabbit hole that i jumped, know it's okay just two guys talking man <laughs> just two guys talking yeah, that that comes up quite a bit, and uh, and I I figured you're going to ask me that question because you ask that ask ask me that question all the time. My perspective on it is, and uh, you'd have a hard time to convince me that I'm wrong, is land nav is one of the better training and I'll say selection events mm -hmm. out there. Um, one, you know, it's good training. It's important to know um, because those things might fail. I think people learn as much about themselves when they're alone, you know, relying on a map and compass and their own skills, uh, using terrain and a map and, and a pace count uh, to get from point A to point B, both day and night. Uh, they learn a lot about themselves. Same, same type of, you know, learning experience you get from just being by yourself for five days without any food and having to accomplish those tasks. But where I think that you get the most out of land nav long-term is I'm thoroughly convinced that you cannot be a small unit tactician if you haven't land nav because you haven't walked the ground and you appreciate how to how to look at a map and how to look at the uh, terrain 
water features, uh, contour lines, and, and be able to turn that into a vis visual image on your head in order to plan uh, you know, any type of patrol movement route or you know, a raid or an ambush or any type of tactical operation. Because with relying on GPS, you, you can't really look at a map and say, okay, I, I can visualize what the terrain looks like in and around that area. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's why I think there's, there's a lot of reasons why I think land nav. So yeah, every time that came up, you know, basically I have to come off with that same spiel. Yep, you got GPS, yep, um, mapping compass is an outdated thing, but you learn so much more uh, from land nav than just how to navigate. Mm -hmm. So when the conversation come up to, to um, having done eight weeks of Morse code, I can't even imagine how boring that was. My goodness. Can you pretty, still do Morse code if I, you had to? The, the last couple of times that I have uh, pulled it up, you pull up like a computer program and run it, um, it's probably been about four or five years. It, it probably takes me about four or five times, and I can I can get back up um, with with two two sends of the message to copy enough to meet the standard at that point in time. I think I already know the answer to this, which I do, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's the attraction of Morse code, and what why what would the argument be to keep it? Um, the, I I don't think there would be an argument to keep it. You know, at some point. Um, at some point you got to quit t teaching people how to ride horses and you know some people would l use that same uh, you know argument for land nav against me but there's so many things that an 18 echo has to learn now um, they've got to learn you know how to set up routers and computers and mm -hmm. networks and all that type of stuff so to teach them eight weeks of morse code just in case um, and then and then spend another 12 weeks or whatever it is now to teach them all those skills you know the Q course can only be so long. You got to get these guys trained, and so that's one of those things that uh, you know. Back to the what started this whole thing on on the uh, on the training is I said, hey, you know, it, it the things that the 18 echoes from my perspective, like I said, probably the only E8 in the room um, as an echo that was pretty good at Morse code. Um, I think it's time to let that thing go because there's so many more things that are important, and, and that and you don't get you know. The, the 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 second third order effects from training from Morse code that you, that you do from land nav. Mm -hmm. Did a lot of people fail it? There was uh, yeah, I can't remember if there was a lot. There was some. In fact, I barely made it because I, I I started a week late. Um, you had eight weeks to learn. Um, thirteen thirteen. I think you had to have thirteen thirteen. So you had to be able to copy thirteen five character groups per minute. And I think there were like five minute messages and. Uh, and you had to copy it and you could have like two errors or something like that. Um, so that was the 13 receive speed. And then you also had to send a message into a recorder um, at the same speed and then you had to copy it back. Mm -hmm. And that was that you had to have at least a 13-13 to pass. And I think I passed 10-10 probably about two days before the test. And and I don't even know how I passed the 13 Adrenaline. Uh, it was It was like... You don't want to recycle. Well, and, and we go back, you know, they told us, hey, if you don't make this course, um, then, you know, you'll just go back in. If, you know, if you fail, don't worry about it. You'll go back into light weapons. And, and I would like to say that, you know, I wasn't going to let anything beat me. I was just like, yeah, that's probably not the case. They'll fail me if I don't pass this. So mm -hmm. I, I, you know, gave it the, the, all the effort that I could, the focus, and, and passed it and moved into phase two. Did you go to a language school back then? 
Well, was that something you did language on, on school the team? was I went to language school about a year after I graduated the Q course it was not part of the Q course at that mm -hmm. point in time how long was the Q course start to finish like after not counting selection but from phase one to the end it was about like uh, one two, maybe about six months yeah for, for the 18 echoes with the additional two months because it was about phase one was about a month long and then I had uh, you know, 16 weeks, so about, you know, four months of, uh, of Morse code in uh, phase two, Camo, and then Robin, or the phase three with Robin Sage, I think it was maybe five weeks or something like that. Yeah, and 18 Echoes Q course right now is probably 18 months. Uh, there, there's some gaps between training that make it very long too, so. Well, we saw that new Q course that they're going to, what, about, I don't know, six months or a year ago. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's shortened down quite a bit and I can't remember what the total time on it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, looking back now after 32 years and all the leadership roles you're in, what, what, what was the, the leadership and instruction like back then on the Q course? To me, it was, you know, everything was new to me. I, I didn't have anything to base, so it, it seemed to be all good to me. I mean, these were older, you know, a lot of Vietnam vets. Um, you know, obviously there was a couple guys that, that you inherently knew even as a young guy that that guy was a little bit more involved with himself than, you know, what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the most part, I thought it was, you know, pretty good instruction. I was pretty much hanging on everything that was taught because I was just scared to death. You know, when I went to the Q course as a young guy back then, you know, there wasn't a lot of social media. You know, I, I thought that you, you just had to not die and then you'd be a Green Beret. I mean, yeah. that's how hard the Q course would be. Yeah. And even when I graduated, I was like going, man, that was nowhere near as hard. And I, I had a mental image that it would be impossible to get through the Q course. And mm -hmm. obviously it's not impossible. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for the most part, you know, a couple guys, maybe a couple of the instructors in, uh, in phase one might have been a little full of themselves. Uh, and but for the most part i didn't have that perception and then in phase two i didn't have that perception at all i mean those guys it, it seemed like all the instructors then because it was kind of one crew that ran both imc and the uh you know they'd switch over a little bit you know they seemed to be genuine genuinely interested in you know in training you and you getting you to the next level mm -hmm. and the same thing phase three you know all the classes i i, I don't remember anything negative about it so that's good to hear Positive because we, we both know that sometimes instructors are hit and miss, right? Sometimes you get the guys who are genuinely interested in teaching and then you get the guy who's disgruntled because he doesn't want to be You there. have some guys that probably wouldn't have passed the Q course if they had themselves as an instructor. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you go 18 Echo, Robin Sage, and then you're done, right? Yep. Yeah. And you go to a seventh group? Seventh group. Seventh group in Bragg at that time. Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, what was your impression when you got the group first? Because you're like 20 years old, right? Uh, you know, it was kind of like You're a, looking at yourself in the mirror with your green beret like, I'm a badass. Look at me. <laughs> no, I looked at myself in the mirror with my green beret and I said, I hope somebody doesn't come take this from me. <laughs> yeah, that's funny because people... People who don't know think Green Berets are all six feet tall and fucking like 300 fucking pounds of muscle. And that is so not the case. And me and you are both an example of that. Um, so when you got the group, was uh, was it what you expected when you got there? What, you're talking 84 now, maybe? Yeah, this was summer of 84 when I graduated the Q course. I, you know, I didn't really have any clue what it would be like to be in group. You know, it was just, mm. you know, 
like I said, not a lot of social media and movies and, you know, pictures and stuff like that. So, you know, going back to the, 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 uh, Sean Kirkwood, uh, podcast that I listened mm-hmm. to, you know, gung ho magazine and, and, you know, I was the same as him gung ho, uh, uh, what it was the soldier of fortune magazine, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. also when I was a kid, I, Sergeant rock comic books and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I was all into that. So there, I had no real image. You would hear, uh, some talk from the instructors, in the Q course about what it was like in group, but re- really no, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into at that point in time. Mm-hmm. What were seven group doing back then in the eighties and that you can talk about that that's not classified, um, in, in South America, seven group focused even back then in South America, right? Yeah. Very central, little of it was central in South America. Yeah. Very little of it was classified. It was mostly going to, so if you were in third battalion in, in Panama, then they had the El Sal mission and they had a lot of the South America missions. If you were in first or second battalion at Bragg, pretty much you went to Honduras uh, back and forth. Cause at that time, I think it was 79 when the Sandinistas took over the government of uh, Nicaragua and you had a, uh, an, an almost successful uh, insurgency, uh, communist insurgency in, in El Salvador. Um, so there was a heavy effort in El Salvador, but it was limited by law on how many could be there, um, helping the, uh, the government forces there. So the, the next block that we were concerned that would fall would, would be Honduras. So a lot of, uh, going to Honduras, going to all the battalions there. And, and, you know, from my perception now thinking back, you know, as, as a young E3 or E4, E5 on a team is like, Hey, you're going to this battalion, you're teaching these small unit tactics and combo and how to build a jungle antenna and all that type of stuff. It was as much for presence as anything else. Mm. Um, and, and obviously, you know, training up and, you know, professionalizing the Honduran military to the extent that we could. And gathering intel, right? Because there's, not, there's nothing better than having people on the ground that tell, you know, the higher-ups what's yeah, going on. Yeah, you know, on. having that essay, and, you know, if you spend a lot of time in a country and then something happens there, you got a whole lot of people that have hey, been there. I've worked with this guy. I know what that terrain is like, you know, because mm. we've done exercises there. So that, you know, if, if that problem would have got more serious and uh you know if honduras would have become the next el salvador or nicaragua then obviously we had pretty much flooded the zone and a lot of people with a lot of experience and and you know uh contacts within that country and had walked the ground when you went down there to train the the indage basically did you bring a package with you to fight if you had to like we did you take all your your weapons and trucks and all that gear with you, but you you pretty much didn't have what s- trucks? Yeah, I was just gonna say <laughs> back then you didn't have soft peculiar equipment. You just had army gear, right? Yeah, and and that that comes up a lot. You know, I obviously shared that with several people. All I can remember when I got to my first team is we had two PRC seventy radios, we had two PRC seventy four radios, which are high frequency radios that you use for. Um, we had a digital message device group, but you always had Morse code if it if it failed, and and we actually had a 109, which was like a pre-Vietnam radio. Um, and the the older they get and the higher the number got, it seemed like the heavier they got too. But pretty much we used the uh, the uh, PRC 70, and we had like literally like a couple rappel ropes, and we had like 12 foot piece of rope to do a. Uh, a, a rappel seat and, and a couple carabiners per man and some work gloves and uh, I think we had two um, um, PVS fives the, the mm-hmm. old uh, 
night vision devices and I, I like and a demo kit which was you know didn't have demo in it but it had the stuff to make demo and demo knives and and made like a like a pioneer kit carpentry kit and I, I don't think we had any other special equipment besides that was there talk back then that you can remember it about like, we can't function like this we need better gear or was it just not a thing? People just sucked it up and moved on, and that was normal life. Yeah, I, I don't think that. I don't remember ever. Oh man, I wish we really had this. Mm -hmm. We just, you know, the, you know, we. It was a little bit of a. I'm not going to say a fall. I, I I can't think of how to you know articulate it accurately, but we we weren't thinking. Hey, we need all this uh, different equipment. Um, I'll go to like the Robin Sage raid, you know, so for years and years and years and years you were, you know, trained on the, what I call the Robin Sage raid where you'd go up there and there'd be a tent and you'd get online and you would assault through and then you get to the other line, you consolidate and reorganize and that's really not a re realistic way to conduct an operation. So, um, you know, obviously if you're doing an ambush or something like that, but if you were to, you know, go into any urban area or something like that. Obviously we had elements that were more trained in that, but the, the ODAs were at that time, seventh group were totally focused on operating in the woods or in the jungle, mm -hmm. um, either doing FID and teaching small unit tactics. And we also did UW exercise then, which was, you know, completely field based, uh, living in the woods or in the mountains or mm -hmm. in the swamps or the jungles and training gorillas and, and doing raids, ambushes and recons. Unconventional warfare. Yeah. So when you got there, like when you got the, uh, your first deployment, did you feel ready or were you like, oh my God, I can't believe, the, you know, did you feel like you were trained and ready to go or did you feel like, man, I, I got a lot to learn because you're training guys who live there and have probably been trained by Americans before uh, you came. So like, was that like overwhelming or was it like, I'm good? No, to go? it, it really wasn't. The, uh, the, the, the bigger thing that I was focused on because I had a, a very or a much lower level of, uh, of Spanish than I do now or I ultimately achieved. So I was more focused on just, because we were gonna go down there, we are gonna train, um, and, and, and most of the courses you were teaching like soldiers, um, which wasn't the best target audience for us, but that was what was available at the time. Um, so I was more focused on being able to present the instruction, um, you know, uh, being as, as expert or having the subject matter expertise on even those basic tasks and, and then trying to learn the Spanish. Um, I was more focused on you know, getting my skills up than I was, you know, concerned about, you know, not being able to perform. So as a young guy went down there, showed up, you had older guys on the team. So they, you know, you'd get out to the, the quartel and, and, you know, move into whatever barracks and set up your hooch. And the training was, it was, it was actually kind of fun for me. I was like going, oh, you know, let, let me go teach this. Let me go teach that mm -hmm. you know, small unit tactics or go out to, and to the rifle range and, you know, try to teach people that couldn't see but didn't know they couldn't see to, mm. to shoot a gun and teach people that couldn't read to read a map and mm. and teach people that couldn't do math to uh, figure out how long an antenna needed to be. Mm. How long was that deployment? Typically, I, I can't remember, but the typically those deployments were like anywhere four to eight weeks. Oh, um, okay. They kind of varied in there. They were they were shorter ones. Okay. And then uh, you come back. What 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 a uh... What was the next big step? It was just deployment after deployment after deployment back then? No, actually, it. Uh, I spent a lot of time. So, like, the first three years that I was in, uh, first of the seventh, before I went to DLI and then went down to Panama, um, you know, I went through Halo School. I went through PLDC. I went through, like, three or four months of language training. Uh, the, the first thing I actually did when I graduated the Q course 
was uh, they said, oh, you're brand new out of the Q course, so you're going to uh, go over here and teach this 18 Echo cross training course, um, which leads to another little funny thing. When we first showed up to the battalion, um, at that point in time, all 18 Echoes went to the signal company, which the signal company mm -hmm. fell directly under group. And usually those guys would spend like a year or two um, in signal company before they'd be released uh, or paroled to go to a battalion and go to a team. Mm. But because I had originally went there as an, as an 11 Bravo, um, I think I was like the first or second class that got the 18 series MOS. So I was awarded an 18 Bravo MOS. So I went straight to first battalion. And when I showed up there with all the other guys, you know, the battalion CSM, I still remember he's like, what am I going to do with all you 18 Bravos? I was like, uh, Sergeant Major, I'm not really an 18 Bravo. I was trained as a combo guy. And he's like, really? And he turns around, looks at his board, which all Sergeant Majors, or anybody that's done a Sergeant Major knows that turn and look at your board thing. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, I'm going to send you to A Company. Go ahead and go out there and tell Sergeant so-and-so you're going to A Company. So show up to A Company. And that was the other interesting thing. You know, I'm a PFC at the time. And I'm like, ah, oh, A Company. So I go down there and I'm, I'm like, I'm walking into my first SF Company. There's probably going to be like, killers waiting lurking in the shadows knives in their mouth yeah, you know, yeah i didn't know what to expect and, but what i saw was not <laughs> didn't meet the uh, level of my worst fears what did you see the uh it's just a couple guys hanging around and mm -hmm. i'm like uh sergeant major here yeah he's in there you know i was like waiting for him to punch me or i don't know what the hell i expected go in there you know there, sergeant major johnson i still remember him to this day he's He's like, uh, I was like, hey, Sergeant Major, you know, I was sent down here to A Company. I'm being assigned here. And he's like, what's your MOS? I said, well, I have an 18 Bravo MOS, but I was trained as a combo guy. He wheels around, looks at his board, and he's like, he's like, I've only got seven combo guys, one per team. What team do you want to go to? You want to go to Halo team, Scuba team? And I'm like, yeah, that Halo stuff sounds pretty good. Hmm. So that was, uh, that was one of my first really lucky moments in the in the military to go, you know, as a 19-year-old PFC, go mm -hmm. straight to a Halo team. And I went to Halo school probably about six months after that. But the bottom line is I, I went and I, I was about three or four months, I guess, that I spent teaching that. Uh, they're like, okay, the first thing you're going to go is teach this combo cross-training course because the groups were so short of uh, combo guys. You know, we put them through... I guess it was eight weeks of Morse code, so that was kind of boring going there. You know, we'd have to, while we were putting them through Morse code, we were murderboarding ourselves in the back, especially like young guys like me on on teaching the classes we were going to teach once they got out of, uh, out of the uh, Morse code training, and put them through more uh, phase two. Graduated who we graduated. I, I can't remember what the uh, attrition rate was, or even if there is one, but then went back to the team. Um, I remember, like, the second thing that I remember we did, because this is, like, about wintertime now, and a lot of the guys were complaining about it, but I thought it was pretty beneficial to me, is, like, the company commander determined that, that we were not good enough on small unit tactics and, and, and infantry uh, tactics, so... We went out for the, the company commander with his one year on an ODA. Well, actually, it was a little bit different then. Um, so then there were not SF officers then. Um, at that point in time, you know, they were typically mostly infantry officers. Mm. So they'd bounce back, and and so like a, uh, you know, you, you might have a guy that would have a platoon and then go to uh an sf group or go to the q course and he's still a lieutenant and he might be an exo on the team because we didn't have warrant officers when i first got there and uh then he might disappear and go to some schooling and then be like a company commander hmm. uh in the infantry and then come back and be a detachment commander for a year or two and then maybe go back to the infantry 
So that in, in the promotions for the officers, I think we're a little bit slower than they are now. So the, the company commander, um, might have had the opportunity to have more experience, uh, back then. Um, so he's an SF company commander with no Q course training. No, they, they, like I said, they would go through the Q course, but oh, they I'm might sorry. go back and forth back okay. to the infantry and, yeah, and command yeah. a team and then hmm. come back. So interesting. But, uh, well, yeah, that was, I remember the, the, the griping and the howling from the guys that had been there for a while, but cause we went out there and it was cold as hell. We were living in Poncho Hooch somewhere in the backside of Fort Bragg and we'd get up and one of the E7s would give a class on movement of contact and we'd all get in and do movement of contacts walking through. And so once again, for a young guy like me, that was, you know, good training, mm -hmm. um, raids, ambushes, movement of contacts, uh, you know, set up a infantry defense, uh, crossing lines, you know, that type of stuff. And I'm probably embellishing a little bit, but that's the type of stuff that we did for two weeks. And, mm. and then we went and did a couple of live fires. And I was like, and like I said, the, the rest of the guys, the guys that have been there for a while were howling about that. I was like, oh, this, I don't know, it's good to me. What year did you go to free fall school? 85? 85. 85. So you've been on free fall status for like 30 years, right? When you left, no, maybe not that long. Yeah, well, yeah, mm. it, uh, because uh, well, I came out of position in August of 15 um, and yeah. went to uh, free fall school in like April of uh, 85. No wonder your back is jacked up. Yeah, it's no wonder yeah. why I can't get out of my truck. <laughs> um, how many deployments did you do in 7th group before? You were in 7th group when 9-11 happened, right? You were still there? Or had you bounced back and forth? Yeah, well, 9-11, that's, 9-11 was like, what, 17 years after oh I got, God, yeah, so, true. yeah, 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 so, so I was in, uh, 1-7 at Bragg for three years, like I said, I, I did, uh, a deployment to Honduras, I did, uh, we spent about a year on a, on a classified assignment, um, and, and then I went to all those schools, and that was, that pretty much ate up the first three years, and then I went to, um, DLI and well, that's, actually, that's coming lang out of the, language school, right? In, yeah, Cal was, in California, school. Did you go to California? I did, San yeah. Francisco. Did you go for a year? No, it was six uh, months, Spanish okay. for six months. And that was mm -hmm. a funny thing because I, I fully planned to go become a Green Beret and well, not necessarily become a Green Beret, but try to be a Green Beret and then four years later get out and go to college because that's what people do, right? Mm. And uh, so when we, get, we got back, I'd been pretty isolated for about seven months at that time. I got back, I had two months left. I was fully intended on ETS and about two months later, um, and go to college, you know, in California, I hadn't done much to, to prepare for that. And I probably would have missed the boat at least for that first semester because I hadn't done anything at that point. I was like, yep, I'm getting out in a couple months and that's going to be it. And you know, my team starts like, Oh man, you need to stay in. You need to go down to Panama and, and I'll, I'll call some people down there and we'll send you to Charlie company. It'll be a great thing. You know, you have the CT mission. You I took like, the base. Yep, I you did. might you might be able to get out of your truck now if you hadn't taken the bed. <laughs> I, I I didn't. Uh, I was meant to do this, so that was a good decision yeah. on my part or or influence on others. But I didn't even take that bait. Um, a buddy of mine that was on that same uh, mission that we were on, he came back, and the first thing they did was they're they're like, okay, you're going to go uh, be the re up NCO, um, and and he's like, okay, and and he had been gone quite a bit from his wife, so he was good for that because that was like a little six month or a year thing, one of the mm -hmm. taskers that they had you do. So I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go see him and went by and was talking to him. He's like, yeah, that's not too bad. And the E8 that was in there, who was an SF guy, he's like, he's like, so uh, have you re-enlisted yet? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm getting out. When are you getting out? In like two months. 
He goes, he's like, uh, not interested in going to Panama? And I'm like, yeah, you know, my team's starting to talk to me about that, but I'm just going to get out and go to college. He goes, how about uh, if I got you a contract to re-enlist and you get like 20,000 bucks, which is a lot of money back then, Mm. and you re-enlist for six years, 20,000 bucks. He goes, I'll send you to DLI and then you go to Panama after that. And I was like, I thought about it and I said, yeah, I'll do that. Like about that long. Yeah. Yeah, you so. make a lot of decisions like that. <laughs> you do. Yeah, I've known you for a while. Um, so you go to DLI, you go to language school. Um, just walk me through the, the chronological order of your career, just as it as it unfolded through through the late eighties and nineties. Yeah, so I went to DLI. Obviously, that's where I met the love of my life. Uh, you know, what is it, 32 years later now? Or uh, that's maybe, unusual for an SF guy to be yeah, married. Actually, yeah. actually our, our 33rd anniversary is coming up in October this mm-hmm. year. So uh, it was another good decision I made. Mm-hmm. Um, might not have been a good decision on her part, but it was on my <laughs> part. Yeah. Um, so married her, and, and then... Uh, that, that got interesting because I got orders to go to Panama and she was a German lingu- linguist, so she got orders to go to uh, Germany. Um, didn't mean to, but uh, my oldest daughter came to being, uh, you know, and uh, at, at a very early stage at that point. So once she got pregnant, right before I left, because I left about two months before she did, they changed her orders to Fort Carson. So I went down to Panama. She spent about six months after my oldest daughter was born and and she she took a chapter to get out because they just weren't playing ball at that point in time they there was no intent on the army's part to you know ever get us back together so really um, there was no there was no dual military thing back then uh, not that i saw so i didn't have the visibility on those higher level uh you know happenings that uh, that i obviously came to understand later on all I knew is that, you know, when I called her, she's like, I got to get out because they're, they're not going to send me to brag. And mm-hmm. and so it doesn't like like we'll be together. So she got out, which is unfortunate because she, she was a pretty good NCO. Um, she was really focused on, you know, being an NCO and being in the Army. But she's like, well, you know, sometimes the uh, the perspective changes when, when, when you become a mother and you can't mm-hmm. focus on it. So she got out and... Uh, and uh, moved down to Bragg when, when I came back from Panama. So I went down to Panama um, when I first got down there, and that's another one of those things. I was like going, yeah, I'm supposed to go to Charlie Company. Go in there and talk to the uh, CSM, like, hey, Sergeant Major, you know, I'm here, glad to be here. And he's like, yeah, we're going to send you to B Company. I was like, well, you know, my, my team sergeant, you know, he said that he would hook me up. He goes, that was the plan, but there's a guy on the uh, parachute team, because at that time, Panama had... Uh, the battalion in Panama, 3rd Battalion, all the Halo teams were in B Company, all the Scuba teams were in A Company, and then you had Charlie Company. And, and Charlie uh, Company was a SIF back then, yeah, right? Yeah, they were yeah. a SIF. I think yeah. they were called a SIF. They had that mission then. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and that's where I wanted to go to because, you know, that's one of the, that's why my team started talking me into because because yeah. I love to shoot, and he's like, oh, you want to go to Charlie Company? You yeah. shoot all the time. Yeah. And uh, so he's like, no, the uh, the parachute team, I'll get into the parachute. The parachute team was a parachute demonstration team. So one of the Halo, Halo teams... NB Company was actually the U.S. Army South um, Command Parachute Demonstration Team. And so obviously there's some jealousies and some concerns uh, surrounding that. So ah, we need to RTEP these guys. And they were some pretty good dudes on that team. I mean, they weren't just skydivers. There were some quality you know, guys on that team. And he said the, the, the commo guy from the parachute team, um, he, the commo guy from the parachute team, 
had hurt himself so he couldn't go on this RTEP, which was a UW exercise up in the States. He said, so I'm going to send you to B Company um, because I need a combo guy down there. So they send me to B Company, or, and I go down there, go to the parachute team, go up to Bragg with them. And that's one of those, uh, we did, I actually did one of these uh, in, in A172. But we went up there, did an isolation. On this particular one, we flew down to uh, Hunter Army Airfield, and we got on helicopters, and we infilled into Dahlonega, Georgia area. And we did about a two or three week UW exercise. Unconventional warfare exercise. Yep, yeah. unconventional mm -hmm. warfare exercise. So we linked up and they were School of the America students. Um, so they were, you know, Spanish speakers from, you mm -hmm. know, South and Central America. And we had to train them up and, you know, establish our guerrilla base and raids, ambushes, that type of thing. And so that was, that was a pretty good experience, except we were coming out of Panama in the winter in, uh, in uh, Dahlonega, Georgia, and we weren't uh, hmm. quite outfitted for it. Um, hmm. So that's one thing. But it was, that was a good trip. Uh, went back and then uh, the company sergeant major at that time said, you know what, now the parachute team is going to go do a basically a JSET, Joint Combined Exchange Training uh, 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 mission down in uh, Colombia. And I think that was one of the first uh, U.S. elements that went back into Colombia because they, you know, we couldn't go in for a while because their human rights uh, record. And then when they cleaned that up enough, we were one, at least one of the first ones to go back in there. So... Basically, that was going there. We linked up with their police um, down in Espinal, Colombia, which is there's half the mosquitoes in the world, I think, are in, this, in, in Espinal, Colombia. But that was like a, probably a four or five, maybe a six week uh, trip there. And that was the same thing. Go down there, teach uh, marksmanship, land nav, small unit tactics, radios. Uh, and we had some helicopters on that one. So we that was one of their focuses, a lot of uh, air mobile training. So mm -hmm. it's get on the helicopter, fly over here, get off, conduct an operation. Were they fighting the FARC back then, or was it counter drug, oh, yeah. drug stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, the, at that time, the uh, yeah, the FARC, the, at, in the 80s, the FARC was still, you know, a, uh, a, a communist organization, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, Marxist-Leninist. And then the, the drug trade was controlled by the cartels there, so that was two separate entities. So, you know, the U.S. and Colombia's success on uh, wiping out the cartels, that's what turned over the drug trade to, to the FARC. And, mm. you know, that, it, it's, it's a big difference because last time I went to Colombia was in 2011. So, um, you know, the threat was super high back in 88 when we went in there. And, uh, and it was a lot lower except for a couple parts of the country um, when I was back there in 2011 visiting as the group CSM. Mm. So that was the second thing that I did with the parachute team. And then uh, my team got back because they were kind of blown to the four winds because the El Salvador mission was more for Kamo guys and uh, officers and E8s and, and that. So most of those guys were up there and some of, some of the other guys on my team had went to other places. So when they came back, um, and that was also 88, was when we were starting to have a lot of problems with, with the Panamanians down there. Um, so it spent a little bit of time, you know, the team got back, um, did a little training, um, didn't do a lot of training down there. It was more focused on deploying, but you, you had the, uh, and I can't remember what it was, but we, we were concerned about the security of our bases down there, especially Howard Air Force Base on the other side. And we had a tank farm on the other side and a little naval base. Um, so they brought in a company from Bragg, um, to do... Uh, you know, enhance our security. Their focus was enhancing the security in Panama 
And uh, what they were doing is they were putting out, um, I'll call them SR teams around the tank farm and Recon around reconnaissance teams around the uh, around Howard Air Force Base, and they also had a QRF. So me and a couple of my buddies, we got sent over there and said, hey, you guys aren't really doing anything right now. Go over there and, and, and make yourself useful. So I got attached to the QRF uh, element for a while. We, we got blown out once, you know, obviously didn't make contact, but uh, almost did. And so that was, you know, that was a, a good almost experience. But the rest of it, sitting around, I mean, literally, mm -hmm. I mean, because we had helicopters out there. They were rigged with rappel ropes and they were rigged with fast ropes. And a lot of people say... You know why repel and fast rope? Because eh, in the jungle, you really want to repel. Mm. Uh, fast rope is, uh, you know, pretty much a recipe. Both of them are pretty dangerous, but uh, at least you're attached if something goes a little bit wrong in the jungle with that with the repel. So we pretty much spent, you know, 24/7. Um, even when we were sleeping, you know, everything was right there, ready to go to, you know, tie on our uh, Swiss seat and and uh throw on our pack and go out that was that got kind of boring especially over a period of time where, where you weren't called out but anyway. seven group was probably the place to be back then right because at least you were doing stuff right you doing something because nobody was engaged in combat back then so i i imagine no uh i think so mm. um i know that uh so like first group was being stood up when i was in the q course mm. and and when i was in the q course i was like yeah i want to go to first group because that's on the west coast and i'm from the west coast no other reason um, <coughs> and and fortunately um, because seventh group worked out pretty good for me i went to seventh group um actually during the late 80s and early 90s they actually had some first group teams that would come and deploy with us to latin america just so they would have something to do. And I, I don't know the whys or anything because I was like an E6 at that time. Mm. And I'm not sure what fifth group or 10th group and third group didn't exist at that time. Um, but, you know, we, we stayed busy in seventh group, you know, deploying. Well, first group had jungle stuff too, right, in their AO. So maybe it was just training for jungle or, or yeah, whatever. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they had a lack of work because obviously there was work to do, but mm. obviously they would come, you know, and if we deployed a company, they would usually have four teams that would come with us and, mm. and you know, they would pair up teams to go to a place and, you know, run all the training. Okay. Next. Uh, so. It's a long career, man. We got to keep moving. Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. So did that for a little bit, came back, uh, went to jump master school that summer. Um, we went and did static uh, line jump master static or, line yeah. jump master um, went to we went to Venezuela to do a free fall J set spent about four or five weeks down there um, the intent was to run advanced free fall um, went there and we had students from their like their Navy SEAL equivalent their Army Ranger equivalent and they had like maybe like a Air Force uh, combat controller equivalent um, our, our intent and the purpose was to train them up on advanced free fall, but they, they didn't have O2 systems. Um, and our systems, which I think was, uh, I think it was a double X then that we had, they had a problem with the, uh, the parachutes at that time. So they, uh, they deadlined all the shoots. And so I don't even know if this would happen now, but we got authority to jump the ended shoots and we had a couple of riggers with this and I don't know if I'd want to. <laughs> oh no, the rigger I mean the riggers, you know, they looked at most of us most of us at that time were uh were skydivers. We had our own rigs, so mm -hmm. you know, and we had, were packing our own shoots, you know, under the supervision of uh of the riggers and and we, we tried to make some training out of it, you know, so we focused on on hay hose. Mm -hmm. We couldn't didn't have O2 uh 
we did a couple night jumps, but that was a little sketchy with them. So we just trained them to the best that we could. And, and, and once again, we were using indage aircraft. So we would, we would get up in the morning, you know, do PT. We'd go down, meet the students in the hangar. And then we were just strap hanging on, you know, literally, I remember one time they're like going, Hey, we got a C-130 leaving. And so we're like, okay, do a quick uh, jump brief and get everybody JMPI and rigged up. And we go out there to the uh, C-130 and, and it had like a, I don't know, it was like a Mercedes car on it and a, and a general and his family were all on there and we all packed at the back and they took mm. off and, and it was a flyaway. We jumped out and they flew to wherever they were going with, mm. the, with the general and his Mercedes or whatever it was. Wow, nice. Um, what's next? Uh, then you have a good memory down there in Panama. Um, well, that was my life. I should remember it. I remember what I did yesterday. That's what happened to me. I, I'm leaving mm -hmm. out tons of stuff. Remember, yeah. I get to pick and choose what I say. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. The uh, so after that, it was plus you, you had threatened to make me do this, so I had to think, what did I do? Yeah. Um, and since I didn't do anything, I had to make everything up. <laughs> everything I'm saying is not true. So then it was a, a six-month trip to Chimere, Bolivia. Uh, once again, you know, my detachment commander, my warrant officer, my team sergeant, the other combo guy on my team, uh, the 18 the Fox, they all got picked to go on uh, to El Salvador. Uh, one of the other, I was assigned to 8-1. Where did picking all these senior guys? Was there a reason? It seems to be like team sergeants, officers, and you always need a combo guy, right? So It was because, I think it was like 55 military advisors is all the U.S. could send mm. to um, send to El Salvador. So what they did, and they had all these brigades and battalions that, that they would send like one or two advisors to. Um, so they were picking you know the more senior people uh, mm. to do that. And at that time, there was, uh, I, I don't even think it exists anymore because I didn't see it later on, you know, uh, throughout my time in seventh group. But there was, uh, there was a reluctance on the part of uh, officers in Latin America to listen to NCOs hmm. at all. You know, they just wouldn't attend the training. That's one of the reasons why we trained who we did, I think, down there is, you know, the younger soldiers and the... And, and a sergeant in Latin America and Honduras in the, in the mid 80s was just the guy that could beat everybody else up. Mm. You know? And so that, that, that was his qualification to be a sergeant. There's a few, I'll say, career NCOs. But so they would pick those people to go to El Salvador to do that mission. And then me and a couple other guys from my team, eh, we're going down to Chimere with 8-2. Mm -hmm. um, so I started off that. So that was Chimere, Bolivia. You know, that was a counter drug mission. We were training the. Uh, the Umopar, which is the rural counter drug police. And uh, they had a couple outstations there and we were also running the qualification school for them at that time. So the first month or so that I was there, um, I was basically just the combo guy. Um, and then the guy that was running, we had one guy that was running the school working with, uh, I don't know, it was about 14, 15 Bolivian instructors running the whole POI. He had to go back for some reason, a medical reason for his wife or something like that. So they're like, okay, you, um, because I'd paid very good attention in DLI and ended up getting a 3.3 and had a pretty good language capability. The 3.3 is fluent, right? Pretty much. On paper it is. I mean, yeah. truthfully, I'm, I'm, I'm not fluent and very, very proficient. But uh, yeah, but it was a little practice. Yeah. 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 Very, very proficient, but uh, fluent. They're still, you know, searching for words. I, may, maybe as bad as good as I am now that I'm getting older with English, searching for words. <laughs> Um, but, uh, so they put me in charge of that course and that was a really good experience. So I spent the next, you know, what, four months, uh, probably running two courses of what they called the Garus course. Garus is like claw. And, uh, so I would spend, 
you know, when we had students in session, we would get them up at like uh, 4.30 in the morning. You know, it's kind of a ranger school type atmosphere, PTM, put them in classes all day, you know, patrolling, land nav, weapons marksmanship, um, you know, high stress, you know, course. And, and it was me and 15 Bolivians. And I, I started forgetting English languages and I was mm. staying right there with my team. And I remember uh, I, I went in one time because we needed to get some protractors. And I was like, hey, I need some. <laughs> I was like, how, how do you say Escalimetro in English? <laughs> protractors? I said, yeah, we need some protractors. That's how much time I spent with wow. those guys. Yeah. Um, and, and we did. Uh, the good thing is, you know, the ROEs back then, obviously, military personnel could not go on patrols. There was... There were, there were uh, DEA and Border Patrol guys that were down there advising the uh, UMAPAR operationally, and we were there for the training piece, and we weren't allowed to go on those missions. Um, but we had school patrols, um, mm. you know, so the school patrols, and you're in the area, you can't go anywhere and do a school patrol without running into it. And, and truth be told, you know, there was a high-level drug lords in the uh, Chapari Valley back then. It was, it was those low-level, you know, campesinos that are growing the coca, and, and uh, you know, doing the process to turn it into paste, which is basically putting all these chemicals and coca leaves and lime and everything into a, a fashioned uh, waterproof pit and stomping up and down in it to get the, uh, to extract the, the active ingredient from the leaves and mm -hmm. then turn it into paste and then exfilling it out of the country up to the north for further processing or into Columbia for further processing. So. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, like I said, school patrols went after that a little bit, but that was, that was low-hanging fruit, but uh, it was a good training event. It's a good confidence builder for a young NCO, huh? Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I enjoyed the hell out of that, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, and, I mean, that was 89, so I was in charge of the uh, Bolivia Garis course when I was 24 years old. Hmm, okay. That thing you said about uh, they didn't want to, officers didn't want to let get interrupted by NCOs, that doesn't seem, you see that sometimes, you see it in the Middle East a lot, but um, that doesn't seem like a South American cultural thing. Is that, is that common? Well, it was, uh, I, I, I will say it was more common in our army back then than it oh, is now. Um, there, okay. You know, there was, there was a, a more of a separation between officers and NCOs back in the 80s than there is now. Mm. Um, and, and I'll be the first one to say there needs to be a separation. Officers need to be officers and NCOs need to be NCOs, and, mm -hmm. and that's how successful armies run. You need to have those di different experiences. You know, um, officers, you know, should not be spending, you know, they shouldn't have five years on a ODA because then they're going to be missing the other experiences that they need when they become battalion group and, you know, higher level commanders. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, a, a much more egalitarian society now. Um, I would say that, you know, from, I'm not going to say NCOs weren't valued back in the eighties. Um, but they were valued less than they are now. I, I would say, you know, maybe nine 11 after that, you know, army NCOs and specifically SF NCOs, you know, a lot of people, relied heavily on them and valued that experience and, and capabilities. And it's evident by the fact that everybody, you know, if I only had two more Green Berets, I could, you know, put this over the edge. I could win. Yeah, yeah. Uh, NCOs are better educated now probably too than they were in the 80s, right? There's more college degrees. It's very, very common now. It's, it's a requirement in SF now to, to climb the ranks to have some college, right? And it's a factor of before 9-11... You know, to be successful in the Army and to be successful in SF, you had to juggle 
maybe two or three balls, you know, because that's that's all that was getting pitched to you. Mm -hmm. And then when you go over there, and and especially when you're talking about Afghanistan or Iraq and 04, 05, 06, uh, 07, 08, and then Afghanistan all the way up into, you know, you're juggling a lot of balls there. I mean, you're out there, you know, on your own in the middle of bad guy country. You probably got 30 different people there. You got infantry guys. You've got... Uh, intel specialists cooks and all that type of stuff and you've got all the assets that that are available and you got mobility platforms it's a little bit different when you got your rucksack and mm. and your gun um so i would say the 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 nature of our job made us up our game it forced us to up our game as far as you know what our capabilities were and i think that's probably across the board i mean combat will do that to you yeah yeah we're going to talk more about NCOs and officers later on. Because <laughs> you know I love officers. <laughs> okay, let's go. Let's keep going, man. Anyway, so I'm finished good. up that deployment. I uh, went back to Panama. I can't really remember. You know, there was, I was there for maybe three or four more months before I PCS back up to Bragg and picked up my wife and uh, went back to 7th Group at Bragg and got assigned back to 1st Battalion. Was Panama, uh, uh, you couldn't bring her to Panama at that time? Or, I could have, but once again, she was still in the army. Yeah, she was. She yeah. was stationed now. Now, once, but she uh, didn't get out before you actually went there. Was she, she getting out while you were there? She got out um, at some point in time when I was in Bolivia. So I'd I'd already had so because I was down there, I only had a two year um, tour in Panama, and I think that was curtailed to like twenty two months because of all the problems that they were having in Panama. Yeah. And, uh, and I just decided, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm not going to try to, you know, bring her down here at this point. I'll just go back up to Bragg and, and, and try to establish this thing that I'm not sure, quite sure what it is called a family. Cause, uh, yeah. it was a different thing when it was just me and her at DLI. Did that, uh, did that influence decisions you made later on as like the regiment CSM or when guys are like, look, I'm, I'm separated from my wife and, and I, you know what I mean? When, when, cause you've seen all of those problems. Did you think back to that time when you were separated and you're like, I get it? Yeah, every everything influences you, um, you know, when you get up to that level. It's obviously, the things that happen to you, um, mm. and and you can take that one or two ways. You can say, I empathize with that guy. Yeah, I sucked it up. You can yeah, suck it yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you remember a, a little mentorship session I gave somebody when... He, he uh, that, this uh, very good NCO asked me uh, a couple of questions. And I was like, well, you know, I did this, I did that, I did that. And he's like, okay, I'll shut up. I got it. I, <laughs> I do remember that. I, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I came back to Bragg and, and then it was basically back to the, uh, you know, the, the stuff that we were doing before, although we were, we were, we were busier um, at that point in time. And let's see. So I got back there in 89. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting one. So I get back there in like September of 89, um, September, October, and uh, go to uh, C-17. And like right off the bat, we went down to, we did a deployment to Costa Rica. Um, and we came back, we flew back from Costa Rica um, and got there the night that the 82nd had flown down to invade Panama. Mm. So when I found out about that, I was a little frustrated because I was like, surely we'll go you know mm -hmm. and uh our i think it was our b company at the time was down there on that security enhancement uh operation whatever they called it and so we're like oh yeah b company's already already down there so we'll certainly go down there too and second battalion obviously third battalion was still down there second battalion was there and b company from first battalion was down there already and 
and we're like, yeah. And Hey, you know, you know, let me, let, you know, we're like, Hey, we're ready to go. And we just got back they're like, okay, come back, refit recovery for a couple of days. And, and this was like close to Christmas, obviously. And they said, tell you what, you know, when we get the call, we'll call you, you know, go home. And after about two weeks, you know, it's like, Hey, are we getting the call? And this is kind of a funny thing because we had certification back then. I think they might have still had some form of certification when you came in. And that was like, you know, common skills task, uh, MOS tasks, several road marches, land nav, um, all that type of stuff. And you had to be certified to deploy. Well, we had certified mm -hmm. um, before we went on that deployment. I wasn't there, but the, the, the battalion did and the team did. And then I showed up. I had certified. That's one of the things I did before I left Panama. And so we were certified. So we we're like certified, you mm -hmm. know, second battalion's not certified. Over Christmas, they ran a certification for second battalion so they could send them down. To really? Panama. Yeah, I was like, well, you, you like over Christmas, you're like, I can't drink. I'm going to get the call any minute now, you know? And yeah, never, never no. Came. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I figured uh, if I got the call, then uh, then I could uh, recover from two or three beers or whatever it was mm -hmm. to, to, to go. Mm. Now, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's a little bit surreal. Um, didn't know how long it was going to last, but obviously I was one, in one of the two companies that was... Uh, you know, uh, home alone um, for uh, Just Cause. Nice. Missed the boat. I did. The boat came back around yeah. a couple of times since then. Yes, it did. All yes, right. it did. Let's keep going. So then uh, rolled out of that. So I, when I got back from Panama, I, I said, hey, I want to go to the dive team. You know, I want to I give that thing a swing. And uh, spent quite a bit of time in the pool. Never could quite meet those standards for bobbing. So after about a year and, and three good deployments, so we'd... I did two deployments with that team on uh, to uh, Costa Rica, um, which were, were both pretty good trips. And I did a, a trip to Honduras, basically doing the same stuff. But in Costa Rica, we I would say that we tended to work with more relevant partners that uh, you know had long-term use of the knowledge that, and skills that they gained from us. Uh, did another trip to Honduras, and when I finally you know the the team our company star major used to be the team sergeant of that team. So when I went up and said, you know what, this, this bobbing stuff just ain't for me. Mm -hmm. He's like, he's like, well, you're not going to the halo team. Mm -hmm. The halo team sergeant has been like going, Hey, I want to get Edwards over here. He's like, you're coming to the B team. So mm -hmm. I got, got punished for uh, tapping out of the whole scuba thing and, uh, mm -hmm. and spent about, spent about six months on the B team. And then we deployed, uh, the whole company deployed down to Bolivia again um to work just out of santa cruz and in our job there and this is another one of those counter drug operations that was all about training this battalion up so i mean we went down there and we had every team and every team had like a company that we were they were training and uh we were uh, outfitting these guys with uh m16a2s and and army uniforms and rucksacks and compasses so that was like a full-blown effort to you know um train these guys up to for the, the the counter drug fight and the interesting thing that battalion is the actual battalion that got che guevara way back in like 67 or whenever mm. it was um and that battalion uh it was actually eighth group that was advising them at that time but that the battalion wore green berets with red flashes um and uh so that was a good trip especially since as the b-team combo guy i was the senior guy and my junior was actually older than me um you know, I had very few tasks to do with the B team, you know, make sure we made combo once a day or twice a day, whatever it was. And obviously the B team's got to do little milk runs and stuff. 
Um, so when I wasn't doing that, I was able to go pretty much that, that was about a four or five month deployment down there. Um, spending a lot of time going with the team, the, uh, uh, the Halo team did training. I would train with them and, and spend a lot of time helping them on live fire ranges and running stuff. So when we got back from that trip, then, then I went to the free fall team. Hmm. Okay. And uh, yeah, in Bolivia, so the B team just supports all the A teams that are out working, basically your, your backside support for them. Yeah, specifically on that one, there wasn't a, I mean, you know, we'd deal with the contracting for all the support, you know, we were living in tents, uh, but it wasn't a, a full-time job for, I don't know, there's probably about eight of us on the B team. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was plenty of time to, to go train and, and, and work with the team. Okay, cool. So we got back from that, uh, went yeah, to the how Halo. How many deployments is that at that point? Four or five? Uh, it's... I don't know. You want me to count on the podcast? <laughs> no, no, no. Let's talk about it at the end because that's a lot of deployments. Seven or eight yeah, at that time. That's a lot of deployments. Yeah, but they're all they're all a month, two months. Are they are they fairly short? Most of them. Uh, anywhere from a month. I mean, the the Chimaray trip was six months. The Bolivia mm -hmm. trip was about five months. Uh, the other trip uh, early in my career was about seven months. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a mix between anywhere from a month to about six seven months. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I went to the free fall team and now we're at about, what was that? 90, 91, I guess. So by now I'm a, I'm a staff sergeant. I had been selected for uh, sergeant first class. So the good thing is, is, uh, that's one of the things that kind of took me down to the route that, that brings us to where we're sitting right now is mm. get back. And, uh, my team sergeant goes, uh, he goes, Hey, I'm going to send you to this, uh, uh, SOTIC course, sniper course that the group was running. And I was like, great. And I've always wanted to do that. So we go up there and they went to Camp, Camp Dawson, West Virginia. And it was kind of weird the way it was done that way. A team in my company, it wasn't a group run course, a team in my company, they said, hey, we want to run a sniper course for other guys in the uh, company. So they put all the effort together and they put the POIs and they did the murder boards and everything. And there was like three guys from every other team went up there and they put us through a level two sniper course. Mm. And uh, so and the main, the main course that's at Bragg where I worked is level one. It's the, the and then each group has their own level two kind of a, a little shorter. The POI is not dictated. It's kind of the commander's training, right? For a level two. So it's, it's based on the level one course, but it's a little shorter and it's run internally. In yeah, the it's group. kind of what you can afford to do and what you're capable of doing with the instructors and the training areas that you have. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. So fortunately, I, I was able to get honor grad uh, from that course. So when I got back, the company sergeant major is like, oh, great. Now I'm going to give you the company slot to uh, SODIC. And mm -hmm. uh, that was like a month later. Mm -hmm. So I came out of that course and then like a month later went into, and that, as I understand it, at that time, they there was some complaints on SF not getting enough slots. And I think the course was like six weeks long. Bottom line is, uh, so they said, okay, we're going to run this course just for SF guys. And it's going to be two weeks longer for whatever reason. So I would say that uh, no day as a, as a uh, SOTIC student sucked. Um, the stock days were sometimes less fun than the others, but uh, it was a winter course. So the stocks are much more enjoyable in the winter than but they the, are. But the vegetation's more sparse, so it's harder to stock in the winter usually. But if you know how to stock, yeah. it, it's easy. And, it's all and about that's, road that, selection, right? That, that mm -hmm. was a big benefit of going through that level two course because the stocks in that level two course were like almost impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, they made them very hard. Um, so the stocks when I was in, uh, you know, the course at Bragg, the level one course, I was like, wow, man, there's like, there's like entire tree lines you could move behind, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, and once you've done a few stocks, you can realize that, uh, 
no matter how much he wants to, he can't see through things. To yeah, the observer. yeah, yeah. And if you're uh, if you're in a ghillie suit and you're crawling across an open field, you're probably suck at route selection. And, yep. and after you take that shot, I don't know how you're going to get away because you you just crawled into into somewhere you can't exfil from. Um, so it was supposed to be six weeks and it was eight weeks. I think so. Yeah. I, I just remember them saying something was a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I don't know what more or less they taught or what more or less we did, but, uh, mm. the whole course back then was M24, right? It was the whole mm-hmm. course. M24. Did they do foreign weapons back then? I don't remember. They did reloading though. They did a little bit of reloading. So it was, it was a, a quick class. Uh, basically you took some fired brass and you uh de deprimed you know, i think it was like 10 rounds mm-hmm. you deprimed uh the brass you, you didn't i don't think we cleaned them at all you used a volume measurement to um or you, you primed them you used volume measurement to put the uh the powder in there and, and somehow i put too much powder in mine um wasn't disastrous but uh i know i knew what a heavy bolt lift was after that mm-hmm. and then you know you you seated the new bullet in there and you went out and shot them and you compared them you compared your groups with uh with the uh issue ammo and and because i had loaded mine so hot somehow and and, and i know what i did now you're supposed to like scoop it put it in there scoop it put it in there because you know it was a, a volume measurement and i scooped it and like tapped it down yeah. you know so that it could settle and i mm-hmm. scooped it and i tapped it down so that it could settle and that caused it to be a little bit hot but uh like i said it, it was hard to lift the bolt and it didn't shoot as good as the uh the issue stuff so mm-hmm. i was like yeah i'm gonna stick with the issue stuff was the purpose just to teach you a little bit more about ballistics or was that the purpose because we didn't do that right it, it got chit can before i got the sniper go but was the purpose so you could reload your own ammo down range or was it that you could help indage or was it to teach you about ballistics and bullets or did they not tell you about to teach you you know you know how bullets are put together yeah um but as i recall it was something mentioned about you know you could take a russian you know bullet and take the bullet off and pour the powder into your case. I'm not sure how you'd manage yeah, that. Let's not do thing, that. Yeah, the, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it was interesting to know, you know, that was something I hadn't done before. And, yeah. and so that was one of those things that's always in the back of your mind that, you know, if I had to, you know, I remember the minimal amount of things that you actually need, as long as you shoot that same case through that same gun, mm. um, and it's a bolt gun, you, you'll probably be okay. You could have those, you know, just a few items and and be able to uh reload your bass and and fire it how was the what was the level of instruction like back then it was good now you're more senior right you're an e6 you've seen a little that you've taught a lot of classes so when you went there were, were the instructors what you what you hoped it would be it was professional instruction was. like i said it's probably the best course i've ever went to enjoyed it obviously you know what we know now the the stuff they were teaching was based on what we knew then and it mm-hmm. wasn't you know didn't line up you know exactly with physics and the way things really are yeah um i said it today when i was in the class we did the best we could right with what we had and and it's come a long way since then but what year was that that 91 91 see i went to sniper school in america in 2007 pretty much did the same stuff you did a little different we had gas guns and we had 50 cal barrets and um but we had, you know, M24s and minute of angle turrets and mill dot reticles and all that. And then it, it, it took a leap after that, but it, it took a long time. Um, but yeah, super fun school. Yeah, it's a good course. Yeah. You know, I, I came out of there. Um, and the other things too, 
is you come out of there a pretty good shooter because we shot a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe not using all the same te- techniques that we would, uh, or, or marksmanship fundamentals that that uh, that we would teach and use today. Um, we obviously did the, the a week of uh, shooting with the sling and iron sights, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's another one of those things where, you know, when, when not, not that I was a decision maker at the time, but when I heard about it, I was like, that was good training, but at some point you got to quit teaching people how to ride horses and drive cars. I was there, right? Sean brought that up to, to shit can it. And the theory was, we do three days of it. Let's get them on this scope for three more days. No, I take that back. I was the training You were. Group. Yeah, I was you the training were the decision maker. Yep. That, that was my mentality at that time. I remember when you guys came and briefed me that. Mm-hmm. I was like, I looked at what you wanted to teach, and you, you weren't, uh, actually, you were lengthening the course. You were making it like a week or two longer. Mm-hmm. Um, we were uh, co-aligning it with Safari. Yeah, there was a thing, whole yeah. re-wicker into things, and when you guys briefed me on it, I was like, yeah, I agree. I, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it's getting more and more modern equipment. Um, you know, it's time to quit teaching people how to ride, uh, the horse and mm-hmm. teach them how to drive cars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. We can sit here and talk about sniper shit all day. Let's yes. Keep, let's we keep could. moving. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, we'll, we'll come back to sniper stuff later. So then that was, uh, right before Christmas went, you know, went on Christmas break, came back. We, we went and did another trip to Honduras, um, with the free fall team. That was, uh uh yeah we we were down near the uh the tribord area of nicaragua um honduras and el salvador um not that it was you know that really was anything other than the fact that that's where we were there we were there we trained up another battalion basically the th- same thing uh younger ncos officers we were down there for about six weeks uh and that's where that that team starting i had there which uh, of the freefall team that that was probably one of my bigger influences um as far as a mentor as a team sergeant because that guy would be like every spare minute that we had well not every spare minute but every saturday we would train team train all day long mm-hmm. so you train the indige during the week um and he would look for a lot of opportunities to train the indige it wouldn't just be you know one guy teaching one class with an ai he'd split things up so you know keeping guys busy getting them experience another uh mindset that he had was uh, i figured you know I, i'm I'm the guy with one of the you know, one of the guys with the strongest language capability, so I'm going to be teaching a lot of the classes. And I didn't teach any classes on that team in Spanish, but I was an AI for every one of them. He's like the guys that don't speak well teach the classes. The guys that do speak well are going to AI and, and, mm. and help them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so another trip to Honduras, you know, teaching those same people. Came back from that, and I think yeah, that's about the time frame that I went to ANOC. That was about two or three months at that time. Mm. Um, and that's where I, uh, made a big mistake in ANOC. ANOC is the advanced non-commissioned officer school. So that's becoming an it's, E7. It, it, yeah. It's becoming mm-hmm. an E7. I've already been an E7 for, uh, you know, that's the course that trains E7s to be E7s, but yeah. you know, most guys went to it after they were E7s. Um, and, uh, I screwed up and got honor graduated out of that course in mm. the 18 echo portion. So when my battalion CSM, you know, he went to the grad, he's like, oh man, you got honor graduate. That's great. And I figured, yeah. oh yeah, you know, he's going to like me and give me another school or something. Yeah. No, he's going to pull me up to be the uh, battalion S6 NCUIC. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I mm-hmm. did not see that one coming. Mm. And, uh, and, and then I started thinking through things. I was like, so here it is. It's uh, 1992 by this time. I have been, you know, eight years in group by this time. All my buddies have been to SWIC already. Yeah. And I'm like, 
and I'm like, hey, you know. How did you avoid SWIC? Because some guys do and some guys don't, right? Well, SWIC is the schoolhouse where all the people are trained. And every couple of, every year people come down on the list and you got to go to be an instructor if you're the senior guy in the company. Yeah, well, yeah. Or it's, it's kind of like it's a group CSM. Uh, that levy comes to the group CSM. The group CSM sends that levy out to battalions. The battalions distribute it as they see fit and the company sergeant majors distribute it however so it's it's kind of like timing either good timing or bad timing availability um you know obviously if you just went to if you just sent a guy to the 18 fox course or something mm -hmm. like that you're probably not going to send them so it's 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 luck of the draw it's not always the the senior guy so they're probably short on echoes too were they yeah. maybe that's why you didn't go uh, I, I don't know why mm -hmm. i didn't ask i just yeah i the, the most of the guys that went to Panama went to SWIC when they PCS back, and I was surprised when I wasn't going back to SWIC. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, oh, well, that's good. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I was concerned about that. I was like going, you know, SWIC, SWIC is going to hit me soon, and I don't want, and I actually said, I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I've been around for eight years. I really don't want to come up here for a year and then have to go to SWIC. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about that. You just go up there. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and, you know, do that and do the best that I can at it. And, uh, and, and, it, and typically that was a one-year job. About nine months later, um, when I went up and we had a new battalion CSM, battalion CSM at the time, and I was like, hey, Sergeant Major, you know, we're about three months out. It's time to pick my replacement. You know, I was told a year, and he's like, oh, no, I'm keeping you up here for another year. Mm. And uh, that's where that's where I uh, probably one of the first instances of me going behind you know people's back because I was like, I don't want to do this job for another year. You know, I should have been a good NCO and and done it. And uh, and uh, but I was like, now two years because I know what's going to happen to me. I'm going to do this for two years and then I'm going to come out in the SWIC. And I'm going to do three years in SWIC and then I'm going to be out of the out of the mm -hmm. pool for five years. Or at least I talked. That, that's that's how I justified what I did mm -hmm. because that same team sergeant that had told me, "Hey, I can hook you up with uh, going to uh, you know Charlie Company in Panama." He'd been hitting me up. Hey, you know you need to go to SWIC. It's good for your career. And I'm like, "Yeah, when it comes up, I'll go." And he goes, "You need to go work at the NCO Academy. That's a great thing." And, and I started thinking. I was like, "You know, the NCO Academy wasn't a bad place." Um, and I and I started thinking about it. Of all the places, you know, obviously I would have loved to gone and, and work at uh, Sodic. Um, but you know, I was kind of being recruited to go to, uh, to, uh, the NCO Academy and I started looking through it and I was like, you know, I could go there and I could, uh, I could, uh, have my own guys, you know, basically an ODA and I'd be mm -hmm. in charge of get basically my peers and I'd be working with my peers and I'd be instructing my peers and, and the type of stuff that I had to stay relevant in. And, uh, you know, doing PT and then focusing and at the end of the day it would give me an opportunity to go to uh, a little bit of college at night. So I, I decided, yeah, I, I told that my old team sergeant who actually didn't work there. I said, you know what, I'll, if that's available, I'll do that. So got uh, called by the NCO Academy. They interviewed me and came down on orders and, uh, and my battalion CSM was not too happy about that. Mm -hmm. and, and a year later when he became the commandant of the NCO Academy. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't hold it against me, but, yeah. uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how small a community we have. Yeah. And it was ANOC that you, you worked at, right? Yeah. I was an ANOC, uh, small group leader. So and then it was ANOC and O&I at the time, right? Or was it? Not, not, a, no. it became that during my trip. There. Okay. Yeah. What is that? So, um, the first, I would say first year that I was there, we ran four ANOC classes a year. Like I said, I guess they were about two and a half months, mm -hmm. uh, 
long. You would, you would teach them Army Common Core. Um, then they would get MOS training to get more advanced training. Not mm -hmm. that there really was uh, advanced training in the MOSs. And then you would do uh, an FTX, and, and then you would graduate. Um, the Intel Sergeant course, or Operation and Intel Sergeant course at that time, um, that was about four months long. And that was uh, about a month of uh, tradecraft and photography and those type of skills. And then and then the rest of it was uh, operation, operational planning, op orders, uh, intel estimates, evasion planning, um, and then and then heavy intel. That's where they were actually, you know, learned how to be an intel analyst mm -hmm. um, with a, with a, about a two week exercise at the end of the intel section, which in a test, which was like the uh, the the big cut for O and I. Um, that was a separate school, and then the determination was made: hey, we need to put these two things together. So got, got rid of some of the MOS portions of the uh, of ANOC, uh, put the ONI course like right in the center. So they did Army Common Core up front, then you did ONI, and then you did two weeks of MOS, and then you did an FTX, and then you graduated. So I was there during that time. So on the side, I had to go through, because I hadn't been to ONI yet, I had to go to ONI um, to get qualified while my students were actually going through ANOC because um, they were split up. They had ANOC and then you had ONI that was still teaching the guys that needed to get those skills that hadn't been to ANOC. Um, so parallel, I went through the training, got qualified, linked back up, and then then we did like two courses a year um, as a small group leader, training you know training these guys up. And we got integrated into the Intel and the operation side. They cut back on the number of the instructors um, that O and I had in, in the NCO Academy, we're all NCO Academy, but the guys that were, that were small group leaders there became more attacks and got more involved in the training and, and, uh, grading papers and area studies and stuff mm -hmm. like that. How long was that gig? I was there for three years. Three years. At the yeah, I got, I, I came out on the E8 list, um, about halfway through that rotation and, uh, three years and then I got promoted about six months uh, before I went back to group, got promoted to E8. Okay. Um, so after you finished your tour, your three-year tour at the NCO Academy, did you go back to seventh group then? Cause I know you bounced around a couple of groups. Yeah, at that time I went back to seventh group. Uh, like I said, I'd pinned on uh, E8 about six months prior to that. So I went back, um, took over a team and went to second battalion, took over a team. And once again, I got kind of lucky on that one because there was only one Halo team per battalion, and uh, the one Halo team in 2nd Battalion was in B Company, B Company 754, and I got assigned as a team sergeant of that team. And the benefit on that was not so much that it was a Halo team, but because that was, uh, that was a good draw for the senior talent. So, mm. um, are you, are you, were you like super into free fall stuff? Because I did it because I had to do it, right? I, I, it was okay, it was, it was fun when it was slick, but when you strap on a rock and nods and O2 and you climb up and you do a, 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 a high altitude, high opening at, at 24,000 feet and you got to fly and yeah, it wasn't that much fun anymore. Were you, were you always into the free fall stuff? I, I would say I was in and out of free fall and I think we kind of glossed over it. When, when I was uh, attached to the free fall team in Panama, I actually got qualified to do demos and I did demos. So yeah. Um, you know, I would, uh, even when I back, went back to eight, one, we'd do, uh, trips to do demos. So four ways, you know, jump and smoke. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's know. like golden nights, but at the group level. 
Yeah, um, probably probably not quite as uh, expert, mm-hmm. um, but but it you know pretty good uh, pretty good amount of time spent you know training up because if you do a demo you you, you want to do it right you want to mm-hmm. land where you want. We were uh, we were issued two parachutes apiece, and in some some weeks we'd jump thirty times the in a civili- week. Civilian rigs? They were civilian rigs. Did uh, no, they were non-standard military rigs. There you go. <laughs> did, do do groups still have that? Not that I know of. I, so after I, 9-11, maybe it went away. Yeah, you know? No, it was even before 9-11. So that, that parachute team was the U.S. Army South Command Parachute Team. Mm-hmm. Um, when 3-7, I think that went away when 3-7 moved back to Bragg. Um, then, you know, and I think U.S. Army South moved out of there. So that's when it went away. So to come full circle and not to go back down a rabbit hole in mm-hmm. reverse like we did rabbit holes forward mm-hmm. earlier. Um, I, I was kind of in and out of it. I was I was into jumping, and then I kind of got bored with it, and then in, into jumping. So by that time, um, when I went back to the free fall team, I maintained my cap- uh, you know uh, qualification and skills and chamber and everything. Um, I was focused on it as a military uh, standpoint, and I actually did get back into a little bit of skydiving, but but not like I did before. It was. Too bit life was too busy as a team sergeant. Yeah, if when, you're doing when, it right. When you finished up your career, how many jumps did you have? I don't know. Oh, you don't? You lost count? I I never compiled it. I would say maybe four or five hundred. Okay. Uh, any malfunctions? Mm-mm. None. Well, I take that back. One time down in Panama, and that's when I was on the parachute team, and uh, we actually did. Uh, w- sometimes we had to do what we called low shows, and I think people do it lower, but at that point in time. Um, we would get out out of a helicopter as low as 2,000 feet, and then you basically you'd have your pilot shoot in your hand, and you would poise out and count to two or three, and then let it go, as I recall, um, so that you know you could give give the people a show. Um, typically, we pulled at about 2,500 feet. Um, the guys that did canopy relative work, which I would have no part of, they would open higher. Um, so I was used to opening at 2,500, 2,000 feet, and and one of the times that I was jumping a military rig down there at Panama. Uh, we were pulling at 4,000 feet, come in, pull, look up. I had a hung slider, you know, mess with mm-hmm. it a little bit, try this, try that. And it's it's trying to come down and mess with it a little while. And I look at my altimeter and I'm like, at about 3,300 feet. And I was like, oh, I got time. I mess with it a little bit, mess with it a little bit. Check my altimeter again, about 2,500 feet. And I'm like, yeah, I still got about 500 feet to play. Finally, it, you know, it slowly slipped down. I was under canopy at about 16, 1,700 feet. And people on the ground were freaking out. Well, it's hard to cut that shoot away if there's hope that it'll inflate yeah. because now you got one. And and I, and, you I was checking, you know, I, I was used to pulling lower than that. Yeah. So, I, you know, kind of consciously in my head and, and, and like I reminded him, I was like, you know, the decision to cut away was, must be made by 2,000 feet. Mm. I said, I made that decision before that. Mm. You might not like that decision, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I'm sure it looked, you know, and especially... The perspective from the ground is everybody's under canopy and this one guy is still falling, yeah. still falling, mm-hmm. still falling. And it was, you know, you can fall, if you've got a little bit of parachute up there, it, it might be 15, 20 seconds that it takes you to fall that 2,000 feet. Yeah, as, as malfunctions go, it's not a bad one because you're you're, yeah. you're you're still falling, you're still upright, you're not tumbling, and, and you've got some time to make a decision. And you got a parachute that's trying to come I out. I know, yeah. So anyway, yeah. back to the team starting time. That was your rabbit hole, not mine. The... Uh, mm-hmm. Mostly, mm-hmm. the um, yeah, I was I was mostly focused on that time as a team sergeant. I was more focused on hey, you know what? Now's now I'm in charge of this team. You know, every 
all the good examples I had seen as a team sergeant, all the bad examples, and, and I like to train. I mean, I really, really love to train. So I go back to that one team sergeant where, you know, he'd take every opportunity to train the team. That was kind of the model that I used, um, you know, maximize every training opportunity. Um, so I spent most of my time focusing on, you know, planning and preparing and, you know, and, and determining, you know, how you're going to get this training in between your, your deployments and red cycle taskings and all that type of stuff. Um, so that was my main focus there. Free fall was one of those things. I wanted my team to be proficient, you know, to be able to jump at night. And, and we didn't do the same things back then that we're doing now with, uh, you know, jumping with nods and everything. Mm -hmm. um, we had just started to jump with like e-trex uh gps's and yeah. you know, we made our own little boards and put g uh, e-trex gps's on there so that so that we could navigate and you know the low guy and maybe one other guy would have it so my big focus was you know if my team had to do a free fall at night night combat equipment o2 you know wall locker twenty four thousand feet we would be proficient at that mm -hmm. um so that that was the focus on that and other than that then then the main focus was um I tried to continuously maintain our ability, you know, the basic shoot, move, communicate. Um, when we go into green cycle, which was our dedicated training cycle, we were in three month cycles at that time. Three months of green, which was dedicated training. Uh, three months of amber, which was usually a deployment and usually to Latin America. And then three months of red cycle, which you were kind of blown to the four winds. That's when you got all your schools. Guys would go to school and you'd be tasked to do uh, demos and, and other things like that. Um, I, the, when we would start that green cycle, I would go out to the woods for like a week. We'd go out on Monday morning, we'd find a place, you know, cheap training, go out there to find a place in the woods. Mm -hmm. And, and as a halo team, we were also a quote unquote SR team. So we'd go out there, we'd practice our movement techniques day and night. We'd practice, uh, not really raids and ambush, but we'd go over those things. Cause ultimately we were going to end up teaching it probably an amber cycle build hide sites. Uh, that's where I did, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you do in sniper that's field craft oriented. You know, I use those skills to, uh, train the team, you know, hide sites and observation exercises. And so not everybody in your team was sniper qualified. No, no, that was just, a, it was, it was a regular ODA that was free fall qualified. It okay. wasn't like a, a sniper team. No, I uh -huh. think I had four snipers on the team, including uh -huh. myself. Uh -huh. Um, and then typically what I would do to train the team after we'd come out of the field, we had our, you know, we'd had our, our tactical SOPs down. And we'd usually, I'd have the uh, weapons guys give some uh, marksmanship training while we're out in the field because I tried to coordinate at least a week of ranges right after that. We'd do all our uh, uh, basic uh, medical cross training, you know, IVs, basically combat lifesaver type stuff. Next week, you know, we'd come in. Next week, we'd uh, prep on Monday. Um, I'd try to get a week or two of, uh, of ranges in there. And normally in ODA, you'd have to, as you know, you'd have to pair up with another team so you could train while the other team's helping you run the range. And uh, the focus there would be go out, do uh, like uh, some basic rifle marksmanship with your, uh, well, yeah, we had M4s by that time. I think we got M4s about 94, 95. So we had M4s, so basic rifle marksmanship with the M4s, um, basic, basic marksmanship with the pistol, um, then we would, uh, I'd try to do two or three days of KD range and that's where we'd use the, both the M4, we'd take the M4s and use them, try to get out to about, you know, 600 and mm -hmm. refine people's, uh, capability to hit targets out to about 600. And we also took the sniper weapons out there. So we also, you know, trained our snipers up out to, you know, 800 or a thousand, depending on how much time we were able to do. And also get other guys familiar with, 
you know, how to shoot the sniper rifles and how to spot. And, uh, and, and the non-snipers also got real good at working the pits because mm -hmm. that was a thing back then still yep. down there too. And then I would focus on going to several days, like the next week, several days of uh, live fire, uh, you know, SOPs like break contact, battle drills, things like that. And then once we had those basics down, then we'd start to focus a little bit more on whatever was required for what we had coming up. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of varied from, you know, green side. And I would say a lot of the time the, uh, the, uh, the company would plan to go. I know we went out to like, you or not, uh, not Yuma. We went out to um, Fort Huachuca, Arizona, twice. Um, why do you, why does an SF company go out there? Because it's an Intel post with ranges that don't get used very much. Oh, so mm -hmm. we kind of had it was almost like we owned the ranges there, and uh, you know demo ranges, long ranges. So typically the company would go out there, we do a couple of weeks of team training, and then they would put the teams through some sort of like evaluation exercise. Mm. That was a I'd say that was a typical you know green cycle back then. Mm. Uh, while I was a team sergeant, I actually spent about uh, a little over three years as a team sergeant. I went there in late 96, um, already kind of went through how we how I did the green cycles, how I saw training. Um, the first deployment we deployed to, uh, half the team went to Nicaragua and half the team went to Costa Rica to teach demining, which wasn't a very good mission um, because we couldn't go anywhere near the minefields, not that we wanted to, mm -hmm. um, but it was more of a U.S. presence down there and we weren't able to take any of our equipment. Um, so there was no opportunity to go out and do, you know, train. We took pistols and we took like radio equipment to report back and a few uniforms and that was all we were able to take into country. You went to a ranger school when you were really young, right? Like E3 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that was, that, was first... that first three years. Hey, did, did you... <clears throat> encourage quote unquote guys in your team to go to ranger school or did you make them go to ranger school because it's optional kind of thing right but it is a good depending school. on what they were bringing to the table uh, if i got a new uh, young because every now and again so like i said as be, being the only halo team in the company i could pull in some you know a lot of older guys and i had a probably the most senior team in the battalion um but i did like to get some younger guys so there were a couple younger guys i, I never made anybody do it Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, strongly encouraged it. You know, if I had a, if I had an E7 that, you know, especially if he had been infantry and, you know, he had four or five years in SF, you know, if you want to go to ranger school, you can, but, uh, I think, you know, the law of diminishing returns, the, the more experience that you already have, you know, the, the less value that ranger school has for you. I mm -hmm. think when I went and I went, what, 86, I think that was, uh, so I was like 21 years old, you know, I'd been out of the Q course for a couple of years and, and, you know, that was, that was prime time to go. I mean, that was, I got a lot out of ranger school. How come, and I'm jumping around here, but I don't care. Um, how come when you were at a training group CSM, did the conversation ever come up? Cause me and Mike just talked about this the other day that if, uh, if, uh, a guy, not an x-ray, but a guy who, who comes from the regular army infantry comes, passes selection, goes to the Q course, was there ever any conversations about letting him skip SUT because he's already ranger qualified? Um, yeah, I think there might have been, but I would have been the type of person that would have said uh, that's not a good thing because, you know, SUT, if you're not in a leadership position, you're, you're, a, you're a training aide. Um, and, and I think that, and I will tell you firsthand, 
guys from Ranger Battalion were beneficial That's for the true. guys that mm -hmm. haven't, or, or infantry, you know, with, yeah. with a lot of experience, were beneficial for the younger guys. That, yeah, they taught know, that, most of the class. That, that raises mm -hmm. everybody's capability across the board. So, and I think most guys will admit, yeah, you know, going back into a student environment, focusing on that, you know, that I, they, they probably got something out of it. Like I said, not the more experience you have, the less you're going to get out of SUT, but it is beneficial for, uh, you know, for the other people that are there doing it. That's true. Okay. Moving on. So that first trip, demining, I would say, uh, you know, we try, I tried to make the most of it. I had half my team in Nicaragua. The other half of the team was in... Uh, in. Uh, did you do a train up for demining? Because that's not something... Your, we did. your Charlie probably knew some stuff about it. We but. did. We did. I think we did three or four courses. I know we went to Belvoir. We went to uh, Fort Leonard Wood. I think we did a couple courses in Fort Leonard Wood that were focused on... And it was kind of all over the place. It was like... You know, um, you know the probing techniques. How, how, uh, or we also went to a humanitarian demining course. So we were in in the we were trained up to do that. I yeah, mean, when we, we were in Force Mod, I remember land, uh, mine detectors came up and you were all over it. That's how you knew it. Well, there was two things. The reason I was all over mine detectors was one reason I had done that demining mission, and and then jumped forward again to when I was the siege of CSM in uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll get to that, but I saw my value is the fact that I went and from team to team to team to team and saw what they were doing and how they were doing it. And so I tried to, you know, take, you know, quote unquote, best practices and share those with other teams. And what I saw was that we were throwing tons of demining equipment, um, whether it's vehicles or detectors or Intel or, uh, um, Dogs. metal detectors, mine detectors, because there is a difference and a similarity at the same time. So I was like, hey, this is a problem because I was like, so that thing right there, and then I go somewhere else, and there's a different perception that they had of that capability because there's a lot to know. You can only do so much to mm -hmm. train up for a combat deployment. Um, so I, I, I made myself get smart on that so that I could have a really good understanding of how well all the units were coming in and I didn't have just have seventh group. I had people from all groups. I had SEALs, I had MARSOC guys and I had combat controllers. Um, so I, I focused on, Hey, what did these guys need to know and, and, and try to figure out how to make sure they were focused in their training, depending on where they were going on, on the threats that they were going to face. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's why that's really, that's why I knew, you know, I started and I actually went over and took classes on like the mine hound and, and the chia and some of the other things. And that's when I was like going, so we're giving guys a two hour class. I got a two hour class on the mine hound and, and that, it scared me. I was like, there's no way I would want to walk into minefield with two hours of training on this yeah, thing. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So anyway, we did the demining trip. Best thing about that was, uh, because that we, they work three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we went there and after they'd been in the minefield all day, we gave them refresher training for two hours after they'd been in the minefield all day. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, we, we made the most of it. I think we were the second team to go back into Nicaragua. Um, and we were the first team to get out in, into the uh, countryside. The first team stayed in Managua. So that was interesting. Spent a lot of time, you know, talking to former Sandinista officers that were now, you know, Nicaraguan officers, uh, especially on you know some of my experiences in the past you know their perspective on the contra conflict and what they did and you know what they saw that they were fighting for and what they were fighting against and uh and then the other thing is so in most of latin america you know soccer is everything and everywhere you go they're playing soccer in nicaragua it's baseball hmm. 
Um, they actually, we went to a little podunk town. I think it was uh, uh, Wegalpa, I think it is, which is probably about two hour drive outside of Nicaragua, a little, little podunk town. It had a baseball stadium. Mm. Um, so me and a couple other guys, you know, that we'd bring our gloves and stuff on trips and play catch and maybe hit the ball. So we, we actually had a little bit of a baseball fit going on there, um, <laughs> you know, in our spare time. Doesn't report, yeah. That was about three months. Uh, we collected back up in Honduras and sat there for about two weeks. So fortunately, that was enough. We actually were able to do about two weeks of team training before we came back and blew to the winds in the, in the next red cycle. Mm -hmm. Then the other deployments I did as a team sergeant, um, went back to uh, went back to Bolivia again, went up to, up to the northern uh, Amazon basin. We were there for about two months um, teaching officers from each of the services recon basically we ran a recon type course slash leadership course and that was a pretty good gig no electricity no running water at that place um, all the officers lived in town all the soldiers lived out and we we stayed in a couple of hooches out there and and uh, made the best of it actually spent all our out fund on uh, pvc pipe and lumber to pipe some water in from a nearby pond up to a uh, a water tower to make a gravity fed shower and and mm -hmm. uh, so that was a pretty good trip. Um, mm. Then uh, did a did a JRTC rotation. So that's a good thing. You know, a lot of people don't like JRTC, but that's that ends up being about two months of focused training, team training um, for for the teams that are actually going into the box and everybody else is kind of supporting it. Uh, went back to Chimaray again for another three months on the next uh, Amber cycle. Um, did kind of the same thing, but there were more entities down there, so we were covered down. Not, in fact, we had observers on the school, so the Bolivians were running that completely. So they had the UMAPAR, so we had a couple guys advising and, and training the UMAPAR. They had like two army counter-drug and eradication elements out there. And then I had uh, the, the warrant and the, uh, my 18 Fox that were working with uh, the DEA, you know, helping them with intel. Mm -hmm. And so that was pretty similar to the one that we did before. That was about three months. Um, then the next deployment we were supposed to have, we were supposed to go to Peru and uh, do a free fall, um, another free fall, advanced free fall J set. And we had the right people and the, uh, the, the site survey teams, you know, came back and said, hey, they got the right equipment, they got O2. In fact, we had to go to other entities within DOD to get trained up on the equipment they had because the partner force had the equipment, the more advanced equipment than we did. That's good. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, so we got trained up on that. And as the pallets were going on the truck, they canceled our mission um, because, you know, it, I think it was maybe three or four years before that was when uh, I think it was uh, Chile where they, they had a free fall jump go bad and a couple guys landed in the ocean and one guy was never found again. And the DZ that we were jumping on was right on the beach in Peru, south of Lima. And, uh, and that was a concern. We ended, up, we ended up producing, I think it was like a 40 page um, risk assessment for that and how we were mitigating. And we had like like the Peruvian seal equivalent, we're gonna have boats in the water. And they had like uh, like Peruvian doctors that were gonna be on hand. We had ambulances and, and there was an airstrip right there because we were jumping basically on an airstrip. And we had a dedicated American C-130 that was going to fly everything. Um, so we thought we had it locked pretty tight, but they're like, yeah, we just don't wanna see this happen again. So. That was one of those, had the rug pulled out from under us, and then it was inventing training at that. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, that was about the three-year mark for me. And uh, during that time, you know, once I had two years, you know, it'd be like, hey, you know, 
this first certain job's open. And I'm like, eh, not really interested in that. I kind of like this gig. Because once you leave that team as a team sergeant, you're never going back. You're done. Probably. Probably never going back. So anyway, I, I had turned down a couple first sergeant positions and I and it ended up that I had turned down one too many and uh, my battalion CSM, which who, who didn't really like me and for probably some pretty good reasons, um, uh, basically came into my team room one day and said, hey, you got a month to be find a job somewhere other than seventh group, and which I thought was kind of shitty, but I was like, okay, you know, mm -hmm. I, I stayed for the right reasons. Um, and I thought I was going to get another year because we were ramping up to do another big mission down in Columbia, basically a whole new start. And, uh, and, and my team had been tasked with a heavy, you know, piece of planning a pretty difficult portion of it. And, and it was like, nope, go away. So I thought I was going to get out of it. And, and that's when I was like going, Hmm, I wonder what's available now. So and if you're in seventh group and, uh, and when the music stops, you don't have a chair, you know, you start go fishing around Swick. And I made a couple of phone calls and I'd already spent three years in, uh, in ANOC and I found out that they were looking for a new ANOC first art. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I know a lot, probably most of the SF guys listen to this, that shit bag went back to ANOC after all that stuff. Hey, it was a good job. And, uh, and Kevin will love this part. I, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd really like to go there because as the ANOC first sergeant, I run ANOC and, and by virtue of running ANOC, I also ran ONI, and and I had to report every day everything I did to my company commander. Oh, that's right, I didn't have one. That's I right. was that guy. I worked there too. Yeah, I worked the NCO Academy too. I no officers, best organization ever. <laughs> <laughs> so well, once again, not that I hate officers, but you know, it is nice to be. You know, the buck stop. I, I'm comfortable with that. I, I, I would I don't know. much rather suffer through my own bad decisions and somebody else's bad decisions. I just can't understand how ANOC or the NCO Academy functions without officers. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, like we've discussed before, I got in trouble a couple of times. You know, I would make changes to the POI um, without consulting anybody, you know, and, and that's a rabbit hole. And, you know, and, and, and what are we about 17 years into a 33-year career? Mm -hmm. Bottom line is I, I would see classes that were the students were getting released about noon every day and i see classes where they were be getting released about seven or eight o'clock in the o and i portion and i just take a day from them and give it to them and make it work out and of course we get inspected and we're not following the poi yeah, it, it made sense yeah and uh and you know didn't really get my attitude and, and and it obviously didn't cost my career yeah they make it so difficult to change the POI. We guys like us just circumvent it. We did the same thing in Sodic when you were the boss. Yeah, we just did it. You had top yeah. cover. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. Um, <clears throat> how long was that? How long first arm with two years? Yeah, I was uh, I was the first sergeant of ANOC. Uh, once again, that was ANOC O and I um, for about two years, and I actually became the deputy commandant for a period of time as the first sergeant, and then when I got replaced. I was a deputy commandant because that was a SAR major position. We had mm -hmm. a command SAR major commandant, sergeant major, deputy commandant, and then two first sergeants, one for BNOC and one mm -hmm. for ANOC. And uh, so I was a deputy commandant for maybe four months. And then uh, and then I switched back to uh, being a senior small group leader, which is another E8 position. I actually I actually pulled one of the small group leaders up and uh, and to replace me as first sergeant. Well, the, first, the commandant did. And then I replaced him. And... 
He's like, I don't know if this is going to work. You know, he used to work for you. And I was like, sorry, Major, would I recommend somebody to replace me that I couldn't work for? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, you you might be the right guy. Mm -hmm. Um, So finished up a year there. And and when I was about at about that point in time, so now this is, uh, so I went there in early 2000. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, 9-11 has happened while I was there. Um, So here I am, you know, Home Alone 3, um, desert storm just cause and, and now, uh, Afghanistan. So I'm like going, what the hell? And I, at that point I'd already decided, you know what, I, I'm going to retire at 20. Um, how many years did you have in at that point? So 2011 or, or I mean, 2001 was, uh, 18 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 2002 was, uh, 19 years. Okay. You're on, you're on, if you were going to retire, you're on the on final, oh, yeah. final approach at that point. Yeah. Right? I uh-huh. already said, you know what, uh, you know, I, I, I competed for Sergeant Major a couple of times. I didn't get it. You know, I checked all the blocks, uh, real small selection. And, and my, I will tell you the first time my mouth cost me getting selected the first time. No, um, I'm yeah. shocked, Brian. <laughs> when you, you know, let's put it this way. When you're in JRTC mm-hmm. and the battalion CSM is not there and you're like, why isn't Sergeant Major so-and-so here? I was like, I can't believe that. I, he, I think he should. I was like, oh, the E9 board's going on. I was like, no, I'm not making it this year. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Because uh, being a first sergeant at the NCO Academy is usually a, a, a check the box to, to be a Sergeant Major, right? Well, that was when I was a team sergeant. So my first look, because mm-hmm. I was a team sergeant for mm-hmm. so long, I was still oh, a team yeah, sergeant. Yeah. Um, and then they had some really, they had one year, I think it was... Uh, I think it was my second or third look they selected four guys wow you know you can't be upset about not making that mm-hmm. you know you know the four guys you look on there and you're like yeah you can't be mad about four um so i decided well that's i competed three times and i decided yeah that's it um 9-11 happens and and i didn't think you know i didn't think it was going to last that long and nobody did you know we figured oh we we beat the taliban and this is going to be over soon and mm-hmm. uh and had ticker tape parades in new york and not yet and uh and that'll be it but obviously it kept going on so um halfway through and then they had the stop loss so in mid 2002 when i was about uh let's say six seven months out i'm like i called branch and i'm like hey you know i don't have orders yet i'm stop lost i've been in the nco academy um for almost three years you know i want to go back to group and he's like ah yeah he goes i tell you what why don't you just you know we'll just extend you in in uh and uh, Swick, and I was like, no, no, I want to go back to group. You know, I've, I've been over here, you know, the nations of war, it's still at war, I want to go back to group. And uh, he's like, well, let me see what I can do for you. So he gives me a call the next day. He's like, yeah. He goes, uh, I can get you, uh, what were my options? It was uh, going to civil affairs, which had SF guys in it at the oh, time. Yeah. Um, I think it was an ROTC assignment and then some staff job at USASOC. And I'm like, that. can I go back to group? And he's like, yeah, it's not in the cards. Well, when your senior raider is the SWIC CSM and you talk to your raider and say, hey, this is what they got for me. Um, I, I, I just want to go back to group. I don't care mm-hmm. what I do in group, but I want to be back in group. And so the next day I get a phone call from the guy at Branch and we both know who he is, but I won't mention it on this. And he's like, yeah, I guess you got friends in high places. And he goes, but I can't send you back to seventh group. You know, they're way over on E8. So I'm going to send you to third group. So he punished me by sending me to third group in 2000, early 2003. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a good deal. So I went to, finished up my time there, went to third group, almost went straight into Afghanistan. So I was a senior E8. I'd already had almost three and a half years as a team sergeant. I'd been a first sergeant for two years, deputy commandant. 
and I'd been in E8 for what, seven years by this time. And uh, so obviously I didn't get a team, but I, I, I got assigned as a B team op sergeant, which was a good deal. Almost went straight to Afghanistan, did, uh, did six months as a B team op sergeant in Afghanistan, um, which was a good What, what year? This was, uh, went over there in like late March of 2003 and came back in like mid-October of 2003. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what, what part of Afghanistan? We started out in Orgoon. Mm -hmm. um, we had a B team and an ODA in Orgoon. And then probably about two or three months into that trip, maybe close to halfway through, they decided to move the B team to Kaust. Mm. And uh, so we moved there. So that was a little bit of a slow trip. You know, the, uh, the bad guys were still recovering at yeah, that time. Yeah, they were on their heels. It ramped up yeah. after that, because I was there in 04, you know. And it they, was, they were fresh off an ass whipping, but they, they could were. still launch a, a good amount of 107 rockets. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, we were talking about that earlier today. I got to the point in, uh, in Orgoon, because we got rocketed so much, I said, you know what, I'm just going to treat 107s like lightning. You know, mm -hmm. it, 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 it's just got to be not your day to get hit, because they're yeah. flying all over the place. Um, that was pretty slow. It picked up a little bit. Um, you know, I found ways to get out with the team every now and again. We did a couple of uh, B-team-led operations because it required bringing in a couple teams. Uh, and, and I ended up doing, I'll say, basically the company SAR major type job on those. And, uh, you know, spent some time up at the border between um, um, Afghanistan, or, yeah, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, and me and a couple other guys on the B-team, you know, there was other entities there that would uh you know like to take some sf guys so you know we jumped on those opportunities whenever whenever they popped up so it wasn't too bad of a trip um got some good experience redeployed in in october and actually i spent about the last month and a half two months uh, company sergeant major had to redeploy and so i was uh, the quote unquote company sergeant major for the last couple months and uh the the funny thing is we got back and a couple team sergeants left and and I'd been asking for a team. I was like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a team. He's like, no, nah, you already been a team sergeant. You know, you, you'd be the B team op sergeant. Well, one of the team sergeants, he had two years, and he's like, you know what? He goes, I'm ready to come off the team. I would like to be the B team op sergeant. And uh, three teams opened up. He had a team sergeant to replace that guy. He offered uh, uh, three three two to several uh, E sevens, and and they're all good dudes. And I think they all ended up being team sergeants. But they're like going, hey, I've seen this thing. I'll get the team, and three months later after I train them up, we're getting ready to deploy, then E8's gonna come in and I'm gonna lose it. I'd rather just, you know, take a team when it when it's mine. So he's like, all right, do you want a team? And I'm like, yeah. So the interesting thing is that was right when I got back. So I've been gone for six and a half months and uh, got about a four day weekend when we got back, show up like that Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever we came back to work and company sergeant major's like, Hey, three, two needs a team. So do you want to go take that team? And I was like, yeah, he goes, okay, next Monday they start, uh, uh, and they're redeploying in mid January because they had come back from that. Safak is advanced urban combat training. Yes. Mm -hmm. Special forces, advanced urban combat training, mm -hmm. basically, you know, weaker week and a half, two weeks of flat range, you know, a few weeks. And, and I'll say it was a Safak light because we didn't spend a whole lot of time on explosive breaching. Um, a lot of time on uh, flat range, a lot of time on live fire CQB, and we did a lot of, uh, you know, rolling thunder type exercises. We actually went to uh, Blackwater mm -hmm. um, to do the uh, first two weeks of, uh, of flat range and, and then about a week and a half of uh, live fire CQB up there. So the, the interesting thing was I told my wife, I just got back from six and a half, you know, month deployment to Afghanistan. I was like, 
yeah, you know, it looks like we're going to go back. We'll probably spend a few days, you know, doing accountability and getting everything put up. And then they're saying, we're like, we're going to get, you know, three or four, you know, two or three weeks, whatever it was, a leave. So I went back that night and I was like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get leave. Uh, in fact, I'm not going to get any leave. Uh, they gave me a team and I start Safak next week. Mm. And she had been married to me by that time for what, about 15 years or something like that. So she knew it was coming. She's like, yeah, I figured. Mm-hmm. Um, which was good because at that time, you know, uh, I mentioned my daughter, my oldest daughter being born in, uh, she was born in 88 and uh, had twin daughters that were born in 93. So all this time that I'm, you know, running around deploying and obviously I, I got, being in SWIC twice, I had a good amount of time, you know, back, able to coach my daughter some, but uh, that one was like, hey, I'm starting. In fact, not only am I starting, I'm leaving in two days to go to Virginia for like a month um, to train or Northern North Carolina, Southern Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, when I get back from that, basically it's Christmas leave and then two weeks and then back to Afghanistan again. Mm-hmm. But, uh, she knew the deal. She's like, yeah, his best times were being team sergeant. He likes doing that. He gets to be a team sergeant again. So did she, because of all the South America stuff, obviously that's a lot of deployments, but they weren't combat. Did she look at these differently because it was actually combat or did she just look at it as a, as another deployment? Well, I didn't really know how to look at the first one. I expected it to be more than that. You know, I just, you know, having never been to Afghanistan, I mean, you're probably the same way. You know, the first time you're going to Afghanistan, you couldn't quite build a brain picture mm-hmm. on on how that was going to flow. Um, so that's, you know, I was, we were figuring, in fact, the whole damn element, the army, everybody in Afghanistan, U.S. side, and Taliban, for that matter, mm-hmm. in 2003 was trying to figure out what is this going to look like yeah, in the future. Yeah. So, you know, fudging our way through, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't have good intel assets. And we were certainly a lot less capable as ODAs and companies and battalions. As an army. Yeah, we, as we an army less, in 2003 yeah, as we, we ended up being just three well, or four just, years later. Yeah, we just gone through eight years of Clinton where the, the military got gutted pretty bad under him. So... Um, I don't know what SF was like, but I was in the infantry and we, we, we didn't have a lot of money for training or realistic training. Um, there, there never was. Yeah. Like I said, I went back, there wasn't a lot of money. So that, that going and spending a week in the field mm-hmm. and then a week at these ranges yeah. and stuff like that, there was really, you had to be inventive. Yeah. You could do some good training without yeah. money. I was the same in the infantry, right? But your wife, did she look at it differently as combat or did she just figure it was in her deployment? Hey, you have to get her to come do a podcast. I, I don't know. You just didn't talk about it, no? <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously, yeah. I mean, she would She would have preferred to have, uh, I don't know. I think she got kind of used to me being gone, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe yeah. that's the key to, you know, a 33-year or uh, 35-year, wherever we're at now, uh, marriage. But, you know, I, like I said, I came back. I said, hey, I'm redeploying. You know, she didn't like it, but, the, you know, accepted it. Um, but to answer your question, going into the next trip, um, we, we weren't going to have a fire base. We were one of five teams in the, uh, crisis response element. So that was, you know, we did Safak. We specifically did a company train up to do company level, so you, um, you a quick reaction force. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Combat operations. Mostly we were there to chase, um, you know, high value targets. Yeah. High value yeah. targets. You know, the multiple methods that, that we had identify them wasn't really a lot of high value targets to go after we hit a lot of dry holes on that one but bottom line was going into that one that was a hundred percent focus you know and we knew where we were going um we trained up specifically for that type of stuff and uh i think we ended up that's about a ended up being about three and a half month uh trip for us mm. the guys that were on fire bases stayed longer um 
And uh, so a couple things happened on that trip. One, after the battalion commander had five ODAs sitting on Kandahar and maybe go out every other night and maybe hitting some dry holes, he got tired of seeing all that combat capability out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he started sending us, I'll call it movement to ambush. Hey, you know, uh, De Chopin area, because that was the area that we had. I want you to drive up to De Chopin, take, you know, like an element of uh, ANA with you and a couple advisors and see what's going on up there. So obviously, you know, we, my team never ran into any ambushes. Uh, a couple other teams got ambushed. And once somebody would get ambushed or make contact, um, then everybody kind of flexed to that area. And then basically we would, uh, I'll call it hit or search like every village around there. We would just do one by one. We'd go through Cordon, search that village. Um, wasn't r really an effective technique because um, once we moved into an area, they all scattered. But that's pretty much how we spent uh, a lot of the rest of the trip. We still did some, uh, still got alerted. In fact, one time, like I was telling you, we were out on a, uh, we rolled out to Maroof uh, province in Kandahar, which is basically east, northeast of uh, Kandahar, and uh, had intel some bad guys were bothering some, you know, the locals out there. Went out there, looked at these two villages up in the hills, and, and my team said, hey, we're going to go up there in Cordon and search that village. 3-5 uh, was going to go up in Cordon and search the other village. They got, uh, they got hit pretty hard because they had some dismounts go up and walk around. Um, they got hit pretty hard. One of, their guys, one of their elements got pinned down. The way that we were doing the mission was because uh, they would squirt all the time. So I'd say, okay, as a team sergeant, I'd say, okay, what I'm going to do is we're going to stop short, you know, before we roll into the, you know, visual range of the objective. And it'll be me. It'll be our JTAC, uh, which was a combat controller, my engineer, and we'd take like three ANA guys. And we'd get out and walk two or three clicks and get overwatch on the objective. And uh, and then once we had overwatch, then then the rest of the team would roll in with the rest of the ANA and quart on it because, you know, guys were squirting. And we were moving in when the other team got hit and they were about a click and a half away and we were about a click and a half from where those guys were pinned down. So we ended up calling in uh, CAS um, on those guys, <coughs> unfortunately. Close air support, right? Yeah, yeah close yeah. air support, I'm sorry, lots, yeah. lots of acronyms. Yeah. Funny thing was my engineer got pissed off because he'd been carrying it, it was crazy, but he was carrying that Barrett around on his back for the whole deployment at the, he just, he just wanted to you know, employ yeah. it in combat. Yeah. So the, the other team started, you know, taking contact when we were moving up to get overwatch into the, uh, the village that we were going to go into. And my detachment commander, he didn't wait for my signal. He heard the shooting and he's like, ah, we're coming in. So he goes rolling in my engineer. He's up there. He's trying to put this one Oh seven together. Like three or four guys are squirting. He's like trying to put this one Oh seven together. He, he had some words with my detachment commander that night. It's mm. like, like, you're supposed to wait. Yeah. But uh, so that was like the, that was like the last thing basically that I did as uh, on that team. Cause I got pulled off after that, you know, rewinding this a little bit when, uh, right when I got back, when I was in Safawak, I was coming back in the company one day when we came back from Virginia, BT mob starts like, Hey, congratulations. You came out on the E9 list. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. And so I walk in and come and say, hey, congratulations. You know, you came out on the E9 list. I said, can I keep my team? Mm -hmm. He's like, well, you can keep it until you pin on E9. So I pinned on E9 in the middle of that rotation. And, and then I spent, I actually kept my team out 
um, on that particular operation right there for like 12 days, I kept calling for resupplies because mm -hmm. I knew once I came in, I was going in the S3 shop. Yeah, yeah. So finally the team's like, hey, we don't love you that much. Let's go back in. Mm -hmm. let's, let's get back in there. Mm. Um, so pinned on E9, then my company Sergeant Major went home a little bit early again and then finished up the next three and a half months that my company was there as uh, the company Sergeant Major redeployed. And then, uh, and then after I redeployed, a couple months at home, and then I went to uh, Fort Bliss, Texas to get my mind right. Oh, the Sergeant Major Academy. The Sergeant Major a Academy. A year-long... <sighs> Somehow, two, two months of two months of work in a year. Two months of uh, training stuffed into uh, ten months. That's insane. Um, yeah. Well, I tell you, the, you know, and I was doing everything I could because they had guys. We didn't have Jasofsi back then. Joint Special Operations Forces Senior Enlisted mm, Course or NC or Sergeant Major Academy for Soft. Yeah, you had to go to the Army yeah. one. Yeah, and and even those guys have to do some online stuff for for the big Army. Mm -hmm. But at that time, they had the Navy course and they had the. Uh, Air Force course that were like one was six and one was eight weeks long. Of course, I was not a long-term third group guy. I was doing everything. I said, I'll go back to Afghanistan for a year and do any job you want if you'll send me to one of these courses, you know, trying to get out of that. Uh, and obviously, once again, because I wasn't a long-term third group guy, I, you know, hadn't earned any favor, so to speak. Um, and uh, so I went to the Sergeant Major course and spent, you know, a little bit of time. You know, I was gone for six months, back for three months, gone for about three and a half months back for about three months and then in PCS, you know, me and my family made the decision that they weren't gonna go out there because my daughter, I think, my oldest daughter was like a sophomore in high school at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I was a little bit better about being away from the family again. Um, and, and about, probably about halfway through that 10 months, I, I kind of, I found a way to get over myself and, and enjoy the, the easiest time of my military career for as long as I could remember. Mm -hmm. You know, after being team sergeant and first sergeant and deputy commandant out there, you're in charge of you, and that's a unique opportunity once you uh, you know get up into those what's places. The, what's the point in moving a guy there for ten months? Is there a point, or is it to give you a break? Is it to let you focus on college? Is it that is part of it? Yeah, uh, you know, to give you a break, pull you out of the operational environment. You're not responsible for anybody. You know, the theory is that everybody takes their families out there so that you can reset. But you know, there's second, third order effects to that. Mm -hmm. You know, kids moving, um, it, and it was uh, once again. I've always said if we do something, if NCOs do something because the officers do it, it's not a good reason to do it. And if officers do something because the NCOs do it, not necessarily a good reason to do it. So that thing was like kind of like the officer model. So when they go to commanding general staff college um, or one of the equivalents, typically they'll PCS, take their families out there um, for a year. You know, NCOs, especially SF NCOs, tend to be a whole lot more homesteaders mm -hmm. than officers, you know, because they're kept moving right off the bat. NCOs can... Uh, stay in one place a little bit better, but that, that was the thing. Hey, let's get these guys out. Let's, let's get all, you know, five, four, 500, whatever it is, 600, um, E8 promotables or new SAR majors in one place to establish those relationships. And I will admit that, that I, I, I establish relationships like when you're out there and, and I'm the, uh, siege of uh, command SAR major combined joint special operations task force, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Is that good, Kevin? Yeah. Uh, command SAR major. And, we have some problems with the base commander and then the base commander being an air force one star. And then I find out that his senior enlisted advisor is one of my air force guy, but one of my uh, classmates from the SAR major course. So, you know, that was one of those, you know, just a relationship, you know, being, 
you know, friendly to a guy, chatting with them every now and again, you know, that, that pay dividends down the mm -hmm. road. And there's, there's a couple others, you know, because as you move up, then you're, you know, like division CSMs were your classmates and core CSMs are your classmates, uh, you know, that type of thing. So you can reach out to those people. So mm -hmm. th there was some benefit. And once you, you know, like I said, once I got over myself, I could appreciate being in charge of me and, you know, being able to do PT and do some triathlons and, and, uh, knock out a little bit, a little bit more college. I ended up completing my bachelor's degree, started working on it in 93 when I went to SWIC and, uh, ended up finishing my bachelor's degree in 2001. So when I went to start major course, I took like four master's degree courses and never went back after that. It just wasn't a benefit of my time. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, um, what will be like 2003? So graduate, four? start major course. We're in 2004 now. Okay. I was in Afghanistan. I caught off to you. <laughs> there we go. So, yeah. Um, so, did, did you go back to third group? No, I went back to, to So, I came group? out of, I wanted to go back to third group because, mm -hmm. you know, that was in, in seventh group. I mean, seventh group and third group were almost interchangeable for Afghanistan at that time. The, the benefit was third, uh, seventh group still did rotations back down there so i was assigned to seventh group i wanted to go to third group got orders to seventh group um based on the long-term ties um became uh, well my first job i came straight out of sergeant major course and was assigned as a battalion s3 sergeant major which is a, a pretty busy job mm -hmm. um especially when um the the officer the major that is supposed to take over as the uh as the s3 officer um, gets in a little trouble and, and gets moved somewhere else. So I ended up like the first couple months at least, um, being both the S3 and the S3 SAR major and my two AS3s, which were supposed to be experienced captains were brand new guys out of the Q course that hadn't been detachment commanders yet. Mm. And that was just, you know, where they were in the rotation, mm. you know, the guys that were coming up there, um, were still on deployments. Uh, so that was a little rough. And then I got the, uh, I was real rough. That burned me to the ground. I did not like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so fortunately, one of the company sergeant majors uh, fell out of favor and uh, got after I'd been in that job for about seven months, uh, he, he got moved out and uh, and I got to move down to a company about four, four or five months early. So in by 2004, all this new equipment is probably coming in at this point, right? The subsea, not the subsea, the, the submod program had stood up and yeah. well, GMVs like said, are coming in. and Actually, uh, 95. Yeah. So if you're talking about, you know, the force mod stuff, as that started happening, we saw the uh, M4s. Um, show up about 94, 95. We started, they, were, they were big army, right? They, they, they were, were big yeah. army, but only we had them. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But we at that same time we we got the uh, ACOGs. Mm. We got the uh, what's with the reflex site, which I mm -hmm. think that's like an Israeli made. Uh, you know, that was the, the first dot one. site yeah, that we yeah, had. Yeah. Um, the and I'm I'm not sure if they were army or not. I mean, back then I didn't pay attention to it, but the. Uh, the Pac twos, the uh, laser aimers, uh, started yeah. showing up about that time. They were army. That the yeah, Pac or yeah, the Pac twos and then the Pac fifteens. Yeah. Yep. And so those those things started. So we actually started getting equipment that helped us fight at night. You know, we had PVS sevens instead of PVS fives by that time. Mm -hmm. PVS fourteens, which were better than PVS sevens, night vision devices, started showing up. So a funny thing, uh, one of the guys that was on my team in third group, actually the rotation that I was a B team ops sergeant. Um, the group commander came down and he's like, so what are your problems? He's like, sir, we need uh, PVS 14s. You know, these sevens are, are, are terrible. 
and he goes and he goes oh he goes he goes I always tell guys they always ask me about that it takes at least two years to get that type of stuff you know and I, he says he says people have been asking me since i've been the group commander for like the last two years and he you know, young E6, a lot like I was when I was in E6. He goes, so they should be showing up soon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so much. Yeah. And, you know, we, we took a big jump on night vision because, like I said, in 0304, we had, you know, maybe two, three, four PVS 14s, and, and the rest of the guys had PVS 7s um, to, like, five years later, everybody on the team had uh, PVS 15s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, where are we at? Afghanistan, 2004. No, no, no. You, no, I already went to the Sergeant Major course. You're not going to make me tell that story. No, again, no, 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 no. <laughs> pick it up, pick it up where you left off. No, I went to a company, uh, went over and took over as a company Sergeant Major in early 2006. Okay. Are you falling asleep on my story? No, I it's fall been a long day. Me? Sorry. <laughs> I told you we shouldn't have zeroed those students before we let them go. <laughs> anyway, um, so as a company Sergeant Major at that time. Um, to keep you awake, I'll try to be more exciting. So mm-hmm. I'm going to have to embellish. Most of what I've said is not true. I've just made it no, all up. No. You know, I'm one of those fakers. Mm-hmm. I'm not really SF qualified. No. But uh, so that um, our first rotate, first trip as a company star major did uh, about three and a half month trip back down in Columbia. Um, th- those were good uh, missions for the guys back then because you would go, you'd be partnering with the right guys. It would more of a, a, a training and, and operational advising. They obviously couldn't go on any of the missions with them, but uh, the units they were working with were like top, you know, police and, and, uh, and army soft units. Uh, I've heard guys, seven group guys tell me that they were really good, really professional, really well-trained, um, good equipment, right? Yeah, they've got yeah. what's called the AFAU, which is, uh, or at least it was at that time. I don't know if they changed it. They had, like the Ur- Urban Counterterrorism Force. They had a uh, Rural Counterterrorism Force. Um, they had SF brigades, which were more like Ranger elements that were mm-hmm. pretty well trained. Um, and then they had the Hunglas, uh, and that's one thing you know, kind of a, like a little sidetrack on this. So the Hunglas was uh, when I went back to Columbia back in '88. We were the first people in there. We trained. Uh, we started training the police there, and at some point, the focus be- or there became more focus on uh, standing up like a special operations type unit for the Colombian police. They became the Hunglas. Um, fast forward to like 2011, and the Hunglas are actually going to other places in Latin America and training them on how to set up advanced, you know, we'll call I'll call it rural, mostly rural, sometimes urban counter narcotics. SWAT type elements. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty cool. When you train, you raise and train an element that ends up going out and raising and training other other mm-hmm. elements. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so there's some success stories there. Um, got back from uh, that trip. And that was like I said, that was about three and a half months. Um, about two and a half months after that, that was close to Christmas. After Christmas, we went to Dugway, Utah, for a month to do PMT. Came back for about three weeks and went to Afghanistan for eight, eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, that trip, as a company star major, we started off in Masri Sharif. It's kind of quiet up there. Well, it was real quiet up there at that time. Um, there was a, a little bit to do, but one of the big things is the intel that we were getting. I'll just say was being fed to us, you know, so to, to help settle scores. Yeah. Um, we figured that out pretty quick, but that, I mean, anywhere in Afghanistan, that's an interesting place. That's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's a game of Thrones area. If there ever it was is. one Yeah, tribal, I've seen that in Afghanistan and Iraq, actually, you know, it's a cultural thing. Um, 
you hit a target and you roll this guy up and it turns out that he he sold the the commander of the the emergency response unit you're working for he sold him a lemon a car you know a year before and it was payback right oh yeah yeah, there, yeah there's so many stories you can tell but uh, a couple of the teams um and and we were only in charge of a couple of teams based on the way they allocated things down south um you know in in like helmet and kandahar it was much more kinetic down there they were less they could go out on a like a 30-day con op because they could drive where they were going and, and it was pretty kinetic and the other side was willing to be pretty kinetic at that point in time too. Up in Mazari Sharif, it wasn't that kinetic. Uh, and even a couple operations that we did do, um, you know, it, people were squirting or they would just give up. Um, about halfway through that trip, they moved the B team down to JBAD. Um, and uh, we had another team that was in Tagab at that time. Tagab was very kinetic. Um, you know, almost every time they went out, there was, there was some level of gunplay. My theory on Tagab though, and, and it applies to a lot of other areas in Afghanistan too, is it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the West Virginia, you're not from here, you know, mm -hmm. so we're going to shoot at you. Mm. Um, maybe not Taliban. They just don't like anybody that's not from there shooting at them. Um, but obviously how, the how Taliban are, influence. How are the rules of engagement back then? Because it fluctuated a lot in the many times you were in Afghanistan. You, you've seen it go from one spectrum to the other. I, I would say that uh, the rules of engagement didn't didn't affect us negatively then. Mm -hmm. um, regardless of what they were, the guys could, uh, you know, if you, at, at the end of the day, it, it's positively identify a threat, Okay. And if you positively identify somebody that's a threat, they haven't shot at you, but they've got a gun, you're pretty sure, you know, other mechanisms, you're, you're listening to the radios that they're chatting on or stuff like that, you know, then then you can engage those people. And that's pretty much what they did. And, and, and we were engaging the right people when we did. It's when you engage the wrong people. And sometimes the story comes out afterwards that, hey, you know, oh, they were poor farmers with AK, shut up. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I can't think of a circumstance and probably anybody that's in my company is like, ah, it's idiot. I remember this time I couldn't do it. Um, that, you know, if you didn't shoot, that's because you didn't have in your mind that you could positively identify a threat. Mm -hmm. You know, you tell me that story, you know, and it's true, uh, or at least true in your mind, <laughs> you know. Mm. I wasn't there. I'm yep, not going to second exactly. guess you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but up there, we, we did a big, we were pulled down there to do a big operation, which involved a ranger battalion, a battalion from the 82nd, uh, the unit that was there and, and the alphabet soup that was down there because there was an intel that a high level, um, high level target was in the Tora Bora. And uh, so we spent about a month, I'll say, you know, reconning, prepping the area, um, dropped probably a gazillion pounds of bomb on any place that had any type of... Uh, of signature that 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 you know deserved a bomb and in one night uh put you know a couple battalions with the infantry up there to sweep the area we didn't think that guy was there um he obviously wasn't there because he was found at some point later on um but that was a big focused effort and, and it actually went off pretty good you know like i said alphabet soup several other government agencies uh um uh, jsoc everybody you know we, we were working together on that one and that occupied about two months. So now I'm mostly through that um, that that rotation. I thought we were going to go back to Mazari Sharif, and they said, "Nope, you guys just stay there in Jabad." So at that point in time, we had dusted off, or the teams. We had a team in Jabad. We had a team in 
Asadabad, which was a little bit north of Jabad. This is all in the east along the uh, Pakistan border. And then we had a team in Naray, which is even farther up in the north uh, from there. And that's where, you know, and this is 07. Um, so if you look at uh, where I would say a good number of the Medal of Honors, uh, Medals of Honor were awarded to whether it was SF guys or infantry guys was that area right there. And it was the year after. I mean, it was like, you know, late 2007 when we were leaving and end of 2008 were, were a lot of the, the guys that uh, earned Medal of Honor in Afghanistan was like 2008 right after that mm -hmm. in that area. It was starting to kick up when we were there. We had uh, developed a lot of intel. We did uh, a few company level operations, which was good because it gets the company sergeant major out of the house. Although on one of them, I think we had 24 helicopters and about 400 people, four different ODAs, and we had ANA and we had Afghan border police, and mm -hmm. we, you know, flew up and there was multiple sorties, and I just knew somebody was going to get left behind. So I couldn't think about anything but accountability. It was mm -hmm. just accountability, accountability, mm -hmm. accountability, um, making sure you know uh, that. But that was a pretty good because that one was up there in uh, what's that province uh, north of Naray. Um, escapes me right now. That's pretty bad guy country. Went up there, uh, Cop Keating, where they had uh, basically got annihilated. We did that a mission real near there, and, and I'll probably think of it. Uh, Nangahar is where Jabat is. I just can't remember the other province. But uh, yeah, we, we Winchester two C-130s on that while I was trying to keep accountability. We uh, Winchestered a couple uh, fast movers. Um, killed a whole lot of bad guys. You know, they were willing to, you know, come out and fight. Obviously, night operation, exfilled everybody. Only had one of our guys shot, um, and he got shot through the trap. So, you know, he was still walking and trying to assault while he was licking a fentanyl lollipop. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to stop him from doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and during that time frame, one of my ODAs had spent their entire deployment up to that point training the uh, the first ANA commando battalion. So they trained them up, they graduated them. These guys took about a month of leave and uh, they brought them out to JBAD. So we used the, the, fir the, the first uh, ANA commando mission. Um, we took about a company of those element, broke them up in platoons, brought two, two teams in, and, and uh, we did a mission up in uh, the Waterpur Valley, um, air mobile infill, air mobile exfill, and we left to stay behind after we exfilled to. Uh, try to mop up anything. And the significance of the Waterpur Valley is not precise, but if you go to Asadabad and you go west away from the Pakistan border uh, a little bit, and then you look left, then you're in the Korangal Valley where a lot of the serious fights were. Mm -hmm. If you look right, you know, before you get to the Korangal, that's a Waterpur Valley. Um, so that was, that was a fairly kinetic uh, mission right there. Um, had a couple of commandos uh, wounded, and one of my guys wounded on that mission too. Um, and those were those were taking about two to three weeks apiece to pull off. Getting back to what you were asking earlier about the Connaught process. So once again, when you're down there in in Kandahar or uh, or Helmand, you know you can drive pretty much everywhere you go. When it when when at high risk, it wasn't an easy thing by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, up there, it almost always required some type of air support to even have a hope of a chance of uh, you know being successful on the operation. And once you get air support and you you require you know medevac and it's up in the mountains and everything, that's got to go through a whole lot. Like I said, it was taking 15, 20 page powerpoints, 
conops and you know week or two and it was being approved outside even the uh the cgsota levels um so we finished up the rest of the rotation you know focusing on some major missions with some success and then we redeployed after about eight months mm -hmm. and uh while i was on that trip i found out i was selected for command sergeant major okay so i was thinking of, that was my time i'd taken the devil's money the devil's money was up during that trip i had 25 years in and and then, of course, they dangled some more food in front of me. Would you like to be a command sergeant major? Mm. How many trips did you do to Afghanistan? Um, I did 03, 04, 07, and uh, 12, 13, four trips. Okay. So did you see, like, the balloon effect? As we surged in one area, the bad guys moved to another area. As we surged there, we just moved them around. And how did it change from trip to trip to trip? Did it change for the better or for the worse? Because I know the rules of engagement changed and the restrictions changed when Karzai was losing his mind and freaking heroin addict telling us we couldn't do night missions and stuff like that, you know? How did it change from trip to trip for you? Obviously, you climbed up the ranks, so you had you had... Uh, visibility on a, a whole lot more the higher you went up. Well, it's 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 more complex than just Afghanistan because you got to look at when I went into Afghanistan the first time, March of '03. Um, like I said, the Taliban was fresh off an ass whipping. Um, they weren't that active other than launching. You know, they shoot you know bullets. There's a little bit of kinetic activity, but it wasn't anything real significant. Along the border, it was a little bit more serious, um, but they were pretty quiet and. Like I said, at the end of March of 2003, what else happened within the world? The United States attacked Iraq. So we, oh, were, yeah, yeah. we were a super sideshow mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. at that point in time. So, you know, assets, it was, uh, I don't even know. And the weird thing is, is because we didn't have internet and all that type of stuff back then. We didn't know what was going on, man. Mm. I mean, we were not well informed. Uh, we had, so they had, uh, we didn't have any internet. There was like a some kind of med element or something that was there on, on cows with this Chapman and, and they had some internet and we found out about it. So I was like, Hey man, let me give my guys 10 minutes, you know, a week or something on there. Mm -hmm. So we were able to check in, you know, find out, you know, how your college football team send some emails back and forth home. Um, but it was, we were not real proactive, I would say, or as proactive as we would have been in Afghanistan if the uh, if Iraq wasn't going on, because that was the total focus at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the U.S. Hey, Afghanistan. We've already, we're just trying to figure out how to make this stop where it's at. You know, what is Afghanistan? And uh, now we're rolling into Iraq. Not sure what we're getting into. So realistically, um, Afghanistan was a sideshow in '03. Was a sideshow in '04. Resource wise, it's just the nature of the beast. Especially and like I was back. In Afghanistan in 04 as a team starting in the Cree and I remember because um, we actually had like AFN then and I remember hearing about the uh, Blackwater Bridge you know that was mm -hmm. that was one of the you know a, a, a real indicator of you know these insurgencies sparking up because you know we we pretty much thought or at least my perspective was is yeah you know this Iraq stuff I think this is going to be over pretty quick you know, we're trying to still figure out how to end this Afghanistan mm -hmm. stuff we thought we had it but we haven't quite figured it out yet and obviously that was that was what it was. So even when we went back in 07, 07, um, you know, the Taliban were starting to get more bold. They were starting to get more people. They were starting to get more active. For the most part, 
they were nowhere near where they were at when I went back in 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and once again, you know, what was happening in 07? The surge in Iraq. Yep. Well, um, Iraq was bad in 07. You know, we were so, losing the war in Iraq in 07. You know, so huh? the U.S. had two hands. They had the Afghanistan hand, the Iraq hand, and all the, you know, a whole lot of the chips were on the Iraq mm-hmm. hand. Um, and rightfully so at that time. Um, so it was a little bit more kinetic, uh, but up in the areas, I mean, there was pockets of them, and you, you could ferret them out, and you can kind of get after them. But like I said, the, they were building up even in 07, because obviously maybe even, you know, one of the, at least Medal of Honor wise, I think most of our Medal of Honor were in 2008 up there in that Northeast region. So obviously there was, you know, while we were there, they were building up and, you know, we weren't seeing the total picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we weren't getting after it like we should have. Um, so uh, as you, as you climbed up the, the rank structure and you, you, um, you had more command and control, how much, how much say did you have at your level? for operations and how things flexed and how things moved or was that driven from like the Pentagon or, or, you know? No, I, so like in Afghanistan, everything was driven by the teams. I mean, other than that one big operation based on a piece of Intel where they put, you know, everything after the Tora Bora, everything else was bottom driven. So I would say the higher up that I got, it was more reactive to, well, in Afghanistan, it was it was reactive to what the ODAs were coming up intel-wise that they could sell to get the assets they needed to, you know, go do these big-level operations. Um, you know, fast-forwarding a little bit, come back in 07, I get uh, assigned as a battalion CSM in 10th group. Um, so once again, you know, backing up a little bit, three months, three and a half months in, uh, in uh, Columbia, back for three months, eight months, or, about, or back for three months, a month in Dugway, back for a month eight months in Afghanistan, um, get back from Afghanistan, tell my wife, hey, you know, we or I are PCSing to uh, 10th group here in about two months, and uh, and I'm going straight into Iraq when I get there. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's another one where she's like going, okay, now the twins are in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so see when you get back. So I will tell you that the stark difference, um, so I go out there to 10th group. Um, I'm there for about a month before they're finishing up their PMT. And I will say that that I was pretty impressed. I had a lot of good teams. I had a lot of good team sergeants in in uh, 3rd Battalion, 10th Group. Uh, good officers, uh, good battalion commander. Uh, got along with them real well. So we had a good element going in there. And the first thing I, the first thing I noticed, uh, so I didn't really understand how Iraq was different from Afghanistan until we get in there. You know, we pop around a little bit. We get all our briefings and everything. And then the first night that... Uh, that, that we take over, my battalion commander's the, you know, the SOTA commander. Um, and for a little context, this was, uh, so the surge was like 06, 07. Um, and some people argue with me, but from my perspective, when I got there in like April of 08, it was still kind of the Wild West um, in Iraq. When I left in January of uh, 09, it was not the Wild West anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, by the end of summer, we were just kind of going, whoa, what happened, man? I know. It stopped real abruptly. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, it was it was pretty kinetic. I know because we had uh, Task Force Raptor, which you had served on um, with the uh, ICTF and the commandos. We had the ERB there in, in, in Baghdad, and they were busy when we first got there every night. 
Um, and, and obviously, you know, the other elements, because they weren't resourced as well with Intel and everything, it was kind of hit or miss. Obviously, some of the other teams up in Mosul was pretty real resourced, mm-hmm. and they were, they were pretty active. Um, but the big thing was that first night, you know, uh, three brings in like three PowerPoint slides, and battalion commander, he kind of looks at them, he signs them, and sets them in his, you know, sets them down, the three takes them out. He's like, what is that? And he goes, those are con ops for tonight. And that's one aspect that I hadn't looked mm. at, and I was like, okay so we got this is you know kind of like the five w's of what they're doing this is who their qrf is pace plan you know all the pertinent information and uh you know if there's any you know any whatever cast is dedicated or on call or ecast and you have one little page the battalion commander signature block on the bottom they were going out to capture or kill you know some mid-level bad guys on that one in baghdad and my battalion commander signed it and that blew my head off i was like Am I in the same army that I was? Exactly, same army. So where did that difference come from? Was that a necessity? That- I would say, I, there. I think there's some valid reasons for it. Like I said, so when we went up there into, uh, I wish I could remember this freaking drive me nuts. I can't remember. We went up there mm-hmm. north of Naray near Copkeating, Pitagall Valley. I can remember the guy's name almost. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the province for some reason. Anyway, when we went up there, that's like. That's like on the moon far away. I mean, like if anything were to happen, that's like a day's drive mm-hmm. probably back to Naray. So to, to a great extent, you know, when you're using, let's say, 24 helicopters from the 82nd, um, which is a lot of helicopters, and I might be off, it might be 20 or something like that. You know, all those people, even if it was smaller than that, those guys are going into an area that's in the middle of nowhere. And, and in Afghanistan, for example, if you drive 20 miles up the valley and it takes you eight hours to get there because of road conditions and the the clouds come in you're eight miles or you're uh, you're eight hours from help or you know after you they start working that way if they can make it up there um iraq in 2007 and 2008 there were almost every corner there was uh, some type of uh, infantry unit or engineer unit or something like that the qrf was always closed the land was flat there was plenty of QRF assets. There was plenty of CAS assets. There was air weapon teams all over the place. So simply by virtue of the fact that you were just so, you know, you were, you were much more secure even when you were going into, let's say, Sauter City or something like that. Um, you, you know, worst case scenario, you could run out of there and, and be to a QRF in mm-hmm. Sauter City or any other bad area. Whereas, like I said, eight hours up the valley, the weather comes in, you're eight hours away from even somebody getting to you. Mm. So I think it made, there had to be a high, higher level of scrutiny, more assets in Afghanistan or Iraq. So, you know, you, you had to compete for those assets. So you had to be going after somebody significant or accomplishing something significant to compete for those assets just to get you up in those areas. Mm-hmm. Where in Iraq, you could drive to where, wherever you wanted to, you know, the risk was there. Um, obviously a lot of ways to mitigate it, you know, the, you know, 10th group and, uh, 5th group and, and all the CRIFs by that time had, you know, pretty much refined their TTPs and they'd done it enough to where they were very quick to react, very quick to get out there. And they understood the TTPs that worked and how to get in and off target and, and, and accomplish the mission. Whereas, uh, like I said, worst case scenario, QRFs there, tanks Mm -hmm. are there. Um, and that wasn't there in Afghanistan. So I think it could have been. I think it could have been in, a, in some of the cases that where we were held up that we, we didn't need all those assets. We, we could have been more proactive and, you know, had a lower level of, uh, 
of approval and, and been more reactive to, you know, get after fleeting targets. Um, but in Iraq, like I said, battalion commander signed, I was like, you, you signed that? This is great. I love mm-hmm. this army. Yeah. I like yeah. this Iraq stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we stacked the deck in our favor in Iraq too. We at night, we had Spectre gunships and Apaches and tanks if we needed them. So yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, and plus me as a battalion CSM, when you've got, uh, you know, a 10 minute drive from the, from the palace where our headquarters was is you've got Raptor and they've got, you know, two, maybe three assault forces going out at night, maybe multiple times. And you had ERB maybe going out once or twice a night. So, so just to keep uh, your, your finger on the pulse, it was easy to, you know, hop in your vehicle, mm-hmm. you know, as, as those things would come up in the late afternoon, I'd pick through those con ops and I'd be like, Oh, that one looks interesting. You know, get mm-hmm. on the phone. Hey, save me a seat, you know, roll down there, roll out with the team, you know, be the as you call it the guest assaulter. The guest and, assaulter, no job. Yeah, just just do whatever you whatever you want. I always right? tried to help. You know, I've got you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, let's go over there and let's search this thing. You what know? are they like? Damn, CSM's coming with us. Fuck, we gotta wear a uniform properly. Yeah, I, get, I told you that story one time. We had uh, we had shot up a pretty good area of New Baghdad one time, or the team did, and and, and that's that was a two way thing. Obviously, they weren't just shooting, and. Uh, and at the point in time where I'm looking at the uh, target structure and it had been hit uh, numerous times with the 105 from an AC-130 because they just kept coming out of there and there's flames going up. I don't know how high. And, and the JTAC tells the detachment commander, it's like, sir, there's a F-16 up there with a low yield 250 pound JDAM. And at that point, usually I tried not to step in. I was mm-hmm. like, well, what are you going to do? Put the fire out? Mm-hmm. I was like, let's turn this over to the battle space owner. The sun's almost coming up. This is a mess. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's not drop any more bombs. Um, how often did you go out with the teams? Uh, maybe I try to get out there maybe once every couple weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the perspective is, and I was thinking about that. I was like, how often did I go out there? I, maybe once every two or three weeks I try to get out there. And that was usually from May till about um september or august when it really started slowing down and then I, me going out kind of slowed down because it was like yeah i'd go out there every now and again um you know and and the thing is i i think we had in the soda if we had like 22 teams and uh 22 teams spread out from you know baghdad all the way down to basra and everywhere in between so getting out and visiting those teams and getting a good understanding of what they're doing you know that usually takes a couple of days to go down there and come back and and uh so it, that was about right and i couldn't spend all my time doing that you know and that's another thing as, as you know when you've been twisting my arm to uh to do this podcast i was thinking about you know what i did and why i did it you know and and the the interesting thing is there's there's some talk you know amongst the senior nco ranks on you know what's what's our major's responsibility at least there was several years back and there was some that were under the impression and this is includes conventional too is is like you know what i'm not i'm not my uh counterparts arm candy i'm i'm gonna go my own way do my own thing and we'll link up and and share notes and then and then we'll go separate ways and i thought i don't agree with that because your assigned friend your boss your commander that that you're paired up with is making key and long-term decisions every day and when you're out doing your own thing, you have to make it really worthwhile because when you're not in that room and that decision's made, you don't get a vote. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a good relationship with your commander, which I always did, um, you know, I didn't always quote unquote get my way. I always gave my input, but but you influenced those decisions. And uh, you know, like I told you at one point in time, I said, you know, on an ODA, the officer's the only uh, officer in the room. A lot of times, you know, as an NCO, once you become a battalion CSM. 
a lot of the time you're the only NCO in the room mm -hmm. and, and you're the only, and, and, you know, another little side story is when I became a battalion CSM, I was, I was sitting in there like the first briefing and I was like, that doesn't sound right. That's crazy. Is anybody going to speak up in here? You know, company commanders are in here. And I was like, Oh, I'm the only one that mm -hmm. isn't a place to speak. Everybody else is kind of, you know, getting their report card right now. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I'm not going to say that, uh, that it was stupid or anything, but I thought there was a better way to do it. So, and that's the point in time where it's like, I'm the one that's always got to, you know, give my remarks, you know, respectfully, you know, talk to the boss and say, Hey, you know, um, I'm going to say one or two things. I'm going to say, Hey, sir, before you make a decision, I think, you know, we need to talk about this or, you know, I would give my two cents in a ma matter that, uh, you know, to, you know, to give my input on what he was doing, but that's the bottom line. You know, you have to be in the room. Um, you have to be knowledgeable of the subject. So that's where that going out and, you know, maintaining the touch with the force, mm. you know, going on operations, going out and talking to team guys, understanding what their thoughts and concerns are. As you know, I always did that when I was a trainer. I was probably bothered the shit out of you guys. <laughs> hey, what are you guys doing? How's mm. training going? Um, because you got to be in that room to influence those decisions. So they, uh, did you guys lose some guys on that trip in your battalion? We, yeah, that was an interesting one. So we took over on, I, let's say, April 25th or something like that, late April. The next morning we had our first KIA, and it was our uh, HHC or HSC resupply convoy. They drove down to, like, Karbala, and then down, I think it was down to Najaf after that, and then they were driving from Najaf, I think, to Diwania, if I'm correct. And about halfway there, the lead vehicle hit an EFP, it uh, killed the driver. Um, it uh, wounded the gunner and it wounded the TC. And that was like, and, and there was a dust storm. You know, it was like aviation was red. And that's where uh, um, there was the, the, one of the 60 pods that was supporting the medevac at that time. He was an SF guy that had went warrant and he, he flew that medevac in like red conditions. Um, obviously, you know, that's, that's, that's a tough decision to make because, you know, you're putting more lives at risk, but it, it, it all ended up and it actually saved those two guys' lives. Um, so we thought that that was going to be, you know, because it was still, you know, Cowboys and Indians, Wild West type stuff at that point mm -hmm. in time. And uh, we had our, KI, our first KIA like, you know, 11 hours into it. Um, that was our last KIA, that, that mm. uh, rotation. So it turned out. Um, the other side didn't fare so well on that that uh, that rotation, especially that first few months. There is uh, a lot of guys that, uh, you know, they don't have medevac. So yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I thought that was a real successful rotation. We had uh, the 10th Group Crif that was there at Raptor. We had B two three, and then we had uh, Charlie one one there. You know, they were keeping after it, doing a good job. And like I said, I had a really good battalion, so that was a really productive, really good. I, I learned a ton on that, uh, you know, just going from Afghanistan to Iraq, uh, on that, on that trip, I was, that was a, that was a good trip. Yeah. It's a different, it's a completely different fight. We came back from Afghanistan in 04 and went to go to Iraq in 05 and we've got our gun truck with all the fuel cans on the outside and all that, you know what I mean? For long range patrolling. And we're like, yeah, and I probably won't help in a city that, that all those fuel cans now become part of the IED, you know, oh, yeah. maybe, maybe we better take them off. <laughs> yeah. 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 Completely different fight. Were you pretty impressed with your guys as you went from team to team and what they were doing there? Oh yeah. I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have the whole gamut. Like I said, I, that those, that was solid. I think I had, uh, 
there, there was, I'll admit, I had a few team sergeants that were kind of questionable. I, I think I went back in Canada. I can't remember now, but you know, you have 18 team sergeants. I think like 13 or 14 of them ended up making uh, sergeant major. Mm-hmm. Um, good team sergeants, like I said, really good officers. Um, the detachment commanders. I think that was uh, not that that's an odd thing, but across the board, it was you know you didn't really see any real weak sisters. Um, really mm-hmm. good unit. Really good, good. unit at that point good. in time. Um, so now we've been seventh group, third group, tenth group. Yep. Right. What's next? So first fortunately, group. I was never fired from first group or fifth group. <laughs> now, so get back from Iraq um, in early uh, 2009 off of that trip as a battalion CSM. And 310 was supposed to have the next rotation off. And uh, so there's all kinds of J sets and 10th group was doing Africa and Israel. And so we had our little travel you know, plan scheduled. And that, that kind of interests me because I'd never been on the continent, uh, never been to Israel. Um, unfortunately, uh, the group CSM at that time, uh, Frank Sosha was, he had just taken over as a group CSM and, uh, about like two weeks or a month later, I think it was, he was diagnosed with, uh, cancer in his neck, not throat cancer, but cancer in his neck. And, uh, and it was serious enough to where he had to basically step down from the position for a period of time. So I'd been there a year, you know, I was the, uh, you know, the, the senior of the two tactical battalion CSMs that were there because, uh, one tens obviously in Germany. Um, so I got bumped up to serve as the 10th group CSM, um, for the next, uh, siege of soda rotation, um, while Frank was, uh, you know, battling his cancer. Mm-hmm. So went back after, was back for about five and a half months, went back to Iraq as the siege of soda CSM. And that was, that was still, you know, continue on quiet. That was the most consolidation. You know, we were still doing a, uh, a fair amount of missions, you know, like Raptor was doing like maybe one, sometimes two a night, ERB, maybe one, sometimes two a night. Mm-hmm. Um, the other teams were, were really working to dig stuff up because, you know, we had seriously turned the corner throughout yeah. 2008, you know, starting in 07 throughout 2008. So by 2009, we'd really turned the corner on, on the bad guys and we were, you know, trying to consolidate mm-hmm. at that time. So the siege sort of is all special operations basically lumped into one chain of command. Yes. With, and the, the leadership of which rotates through the different units, right? Basically. Right. So you'd MARSOC and SEALs and everybody working so for So we didn't you. have MARSOC in Iraq. We had uh, we had SF and we had uh, um, SEALs. Okay. Okay. How was that? Working with like the Navy or working with, with the... Uh, well, you know, that was a learning experience for me, you know, just, just like I've always done. You know, I get that job. Uh, so we had uh, SEALs working for us in Baghdad in the SODIF. Mm-hmm. Um, they sent uh, they sent a troop of SEALs, um, and, and that's another story that we kind of glossed over. So the building of the T-walls around Sadr City... Um, that was starting when we first got there. That was a very kinetic thing. I mean, that was like the most dangerous. You know, the guy that would get up there and unhook the uh, the, uh, the the crane hook. from the yeah. T wall. That was like the most dangerous job in the world mm-hmm. at that time. Seriously, um, and they brought in a troop of SEALs uh, from Sodaf West to do sniper overwatch on that because there was just you know so much. Um, there there was uh, business was good, let, let's say so to speak. So mm-hmm. they fell under our soda for that, and. Uh, 
you know, so their, their troop commander and their senior enlisted, they'd come up and report to us. They lived there on the RPC with us. So I took that opportunity to understand. So, you know, how are you guys set up? I had them give me a class. So, so how are you set up and what is your terminology? You know, you're, when you're back there, you're a, a team. When you go forward, you're a squadron. Uh, when you're back there, you're a, uh, um, what do they call it? I can't remember now. I'm losing my mind. I can't remember. I still haven't remembered that province north of Murray <laughs> either. Drives me mm-hmm. nuts. But, uh, so I learned a lot about the SEALs and how they worked. And those were good guys, man. They, uh, they came in and because they were operating with the infantry, uh, they came in and they gave themselves buzz cuts and they, uh, you know, they came up and asked us for, can we get ACUs? Mm-hmm. So we looked just like the infantry. They wore ACUs, had buzz cuts, and they rolled out there and they integrated with the infantry and, uh, and uh, pretty much got after it uh, pretty good mm-hmm. on, that, on supporting those uh, infantry ops for the T-Wall. Mm-hmm. So okay. I gave my first experience there. So our, once we had the SEAL SOTIF out there in the West... Um, when I was at Siege of Soda, if I was already pre- pretty familiar with how they uh, operated and they had good leadership uh, at the time, got along with them both. We had, they switched off while we were there. So both, uh, both team uh, commanders, you know, were good. You know, their uh, command master chiefs were good, mm-hmm. all the leadership that we worked with. And they were, and it was kind of slow at that point in time. So, you mm-hmm. know, they were getting after it to the extent they could. Okay. Okay. So you come back. You go to Swick. Go to go back to Swick. My third uh, run at Swick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you went Swick because I was at Swick at the time. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and what? So Frank Sosha. Thank God he uh, his his. I, I don't know if he beat it or. Well, ultimately, it came back and, and he died of it um, mm-hmm. while he was a tenth group CSM. But um, he he came back from that and uh, and the group got too small for the both of us. You know, after him being the group CSM and me serving in that capacity for a while. Was a little uncomfortable for me to go back and be a, a, a battalion CSM, mm-hmm. so they uh, I got selected to be the training group CSM, which was a good deal. I was like, hey, you know, that sounds like fun. You know, I just did uh, Afghanistan, I just did Iraq. Um, I've served, you know, in the last few years in three different groups. I might have something to contribute mm-hmm. there. You know, I might. So what what encompasses training group? Training group, let's say first battalion is runs the Q course. So and it changes around at that point in time. First group ran the Q course. Um, which was the uh, field training phase at McCall, both the uh, small unit tactics and the uh, Robin Sage portion, and they ran the MOSs. So basically, you know, the whole Q Corps start to finish minus the language training. Second uh, Battalion, as you know, was the Advanced Skills Battalion. So we had a company that trained uh, um, Intel Skills, we'll call it, uh, a company that trained, uh, that did the freefall course and the freefall, you know, freefall Jumpmaster and and uh, the advanced courses out there. We had the uh, Dive School, which was a company down in Key West, and then we had uh, your favorite, uh, Delta Company, which was uh, Range 37 with mm-hmm. uh, Sodic and Sephardic or Sifsic and Sephardic, mm-hmm. the CQB and the, the sniper courses. Mm-hmm. You, I, you just wanted to hear me say that, right? Because you knew what it was. Mm-hmm. But the uh, and then. Uh, Third battalion was our civil affairs and psyops training battalions. All the courses involved with that. Fourth battalion was they owned all the students, so they were the tax that owned the students and took them, you know, to and from training, whether in language training or take them out to McCall. And you know, that was a battalion that owned them when they were out of training and they were waiting training and the pre-training and all that stuff. So that was pretty much training group at that point in time. Do you remember how many schools total? I can't remember offhand. 
Okay. I thought maybe it was on a PowerPoint yeah, somewhere. You know? I, I'm sure it was. Mm-hmm. I've got a good memory, but that those yeah. things, yeah. yeah. How, I, many, I, how many students? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. About 3,500 at any given time. Really? Yep. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, and then um, when you look at the total population of the Army, I remember that because that was, and in, in, it was about 3,500. When you look at the total population of the Army, so like, you know, let's say there's 500,000, um, there's almost 500,000 people in the army. Uh, it was, you know, nice round number. So 1% of that is what 5,000. So like, you know, close to 1% of the population, of the army are SWIC students at any one time. Mm-hmm. That kind of was like, man, are we making the best use of these guys yeah, at the I time? Know, yeah, yeah. And, and most of them were in the Q courses, um, you yeah. know, at some, at some point. All the different levels, different yep. schools. Yeah. Um, did you have any priorities when you went there as the, the training group CSM? Did you say... I want to look at this or I want to modernize this or, or well, well, did you have any goals? You just want to go and see basically what it was about? No, you know, I was, I've always been pretty firm on what I think right looks like. I, I didn't really have any preconceived notions that I can remember at that time that I, I'm going to go fix this stuff. It was more like, yeah, hey, I'm going to go uh, see how things are going and, you know, see what's going on, you know. And a lot of things, you hear what's going on in SWIC and that may or may not be accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to go there, okay, this is going on. This, why are we doing that? And sometimes there's a good reason why you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can... So I, I didn't. I don't recall going there with any preconceived notions. Um, paid attention. Obviously, I had something to say on you know everything that was going on there. You know, from the uh, you know one of the contentious issues is dropping students and and uh, and them you know uh, putting it up to the group commander to you know to to overturn the decision type thing. I, I read every single one of those packets before mm-hmm. they went into the group commander. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I wanted to make sure that I, w- I wanted to back up the, uh, the instructors to the extent that I could. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that we were enforcing standards and not inventing any, <laughs> um, because sometimes that happens. I get back to that comment that we made about seven or eight hours ago when we started this <laughs> podcast, when I said, you know, one of the things I asked the que- students, I was like, would you have passed as a student with you as an instructor? Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. some yeah. of the guys are a little bit rough and they, they, they kind of invent their own standards. They do. Uh, young NCOs, and if they don't have a good leader in charge of them, they, they, they pull the chain a little bit every now and again. They, they do get a little carried away. Did you try to go to every location and, and look at every class? Because that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, that was the focus. I, I think my first focus was probably uh, the Q course. I thought, you know, at the end of the day, the Q course, the SF qualification course, was our most important thing in training group, producing Green Berets, qualifying them to go out and serve in the force. Um, and, and, and I quickly developed, you know, my top five. Um, and, and, it, and, and I didn't put the CA and SIOP courses in there because I, I put those, the, those are the top things for CA and SIOP. You have to produce those guys. So I, I didn't put them in competition with the SF courses. They had to happen. Um, but you had the qualification course because you need to produce Green Berets. Um, you, it was ASOT, the Intel Sartan course, Sephardic, and CIFSIC. You know, I was like, if we cut anything, you know, if we had five courses, those would be the five courses we run. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's your, that's you know how you qualify your guys. That's how you find out who you got to kill, and that's how you kill them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's your meat and potatoes right there. And and we we found it later on. Swick so throw them under the bus because they know it will hurt when they're looking for money. They're like, oh, we'll just close this down. Everybody goes, no, you can't oh, yeah. close that down. Yeah, I go to you and you say, Kevin, I hate to do this, man. You got to give me a body part. All I can give you is my head. No, I'll take your pinky. It's my head or nothing. Okay, I'll take nothing, and I walk away. Freaking swick, man. 
Um, and that 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 is when we 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 modernized the sniper course, you know, and then then with, with your help and and uh, we we stood up the uh, the sniper competition when we started doing it at, at, at Sodic and all that. So I was in, I was in Swick at that point too, and it was a really good good tour. Um, all right, we got to keep moving, man. We got to keep moving. I'm, I'm, I need another monster. So what's what's the big things in SWIC uh, training group? Yeah, you know I, I paid attention to that. You know uh, we well the the other big thing that forced me into the Q course was we had went to the instructor IOD, uh, ODA IODA instructor oh, ODA yeah, yeah, yeah. to where we were going to put the students into an ODA like atmosphere and mm-hmm. e- and each of these student ODAs was going to have one instructor that was the you know, instructor team certain. And that started right before I got there, but I had to finish it up. So we were pulling a lot of, a lot of talent out of the other units. I know we, uh, we paired off second battalion, um, didn't take anybody, but we stopped filling second battalion a little bit. You know, you were getting not a hundred percent, but maybe 80%. Um, we really went after first battalion instructors because the intent was that some of those classes in the Q course would be taught by, by the, these IODA, uh, cadre, um, you know, that was a significant emotional event. And, uh, so we got it to the point where we had it about function. There was a lot of learning curves on, you know, how you managed, uh, you know, professional instruction. It, obviously it's better to have, if a guy's teaching five things over and over and over and over and over again, um, the instruction is obviously going to be better. Um, maybe not overall, but, but more focused than the guy that's teaching a hundred classes once a year. Mm-hmm. type thing um but we pretty much got it in the place and i think by the time that we had it in place then it was changed back to the way it was it wasn't really given the opportunity and and i don't come down one way or the other i mean i wasn't given a choice on this they were saying ioda ready set go so i was mm-hmm. like okay i can drag my feet on this and make it worse or i can do focus my abilities to you know try to make it happen as good as possible that's a very common thing in swick especially isn't it everybody comes in they want to change something right and not always for the better maybe for their oer bullet or for their ncoer bullet maybe well yeah i'll just say that uh in a nation at war if you're not leading a, an operational organization in combat you got to have something on your report card mm-hmm. um so sometimes people will uh you know they've, they've got to uh paint the building or you know pull the boards off and turn them around so the ones that were inside or outside and you know sometimes you guys just got to burn the whole building down and build a new one mm-hmm. that looks the same in the same spot yeah so you can have accomplished something Yes. Okay. Um, and and re- realistically, you know, I mean, overall, they were doing a really good. I mean, guys were doing what they needed to do. Um, you know, we had some hiccups. There, there were some interesting little, I'll, I'll say for leadership, Robin Sage dilemmas. You know, when we were there, um, one of the battalion commanders of the student company decided, and I think it was him that decided, they said they got a 12-mile road march, which is a must-pass gate. Um, three hours, 45 pounds or 50 pounds, whatever it is, what we've all done several mm-hmm. times, not, not difficult to do. Um, so the decision was made by somebody that, that, Hey, they don't need to wear watches. We're going to take their watches away. And two thirds, I think, or more of the class failed. The no must pass event. They had no idea where they were. Right? And of course yeah. me being my hard headed self, they're like, what are we going to do? We're going to give them another chance. I said, we have to fail them. We have to mm-hmm. send them on their way. Mm-hmm. I said, if we said that's the standard, 
then we've got to send them away mm. and, and learn from our mistakes. Mm. Oh, we can't. And we didn't do that, but I was serious. Mm. I was like, hey, let's learn a lesson from this. Mm. You know, let's, let's not do any arbitrary changes anymore. But if we say a standard's a standard, let's enforce it and live with our decision. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because obviously they got lazy. And maybe, and, and let's just put it this way. Whether you have a watch or not, if you can't do a 12-mile road march in three hours with, I think it's a 50-pound ruck, mm-hmm. probably don't need to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if Especially you, if you don't have the intestinal fortitude to do it without a watch. Yeah. The watch yeah. has no propulsion. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you don't know what time it is, run. Yeah. <laughs> was, there, um, was there a big push to change a lot of stuff and I, I assume all that stuff any changes went through you I, 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 well I, I had visibility on it mm-hmm. yes there was there was a lot of put you know one of the things was introducing mobility training into SUT which I was against that I mean that would take days you know mm-hmm. you, first of all mobility training with vehicles you have to have the vehicles um, you have to have the equipment to put on vehicles which is more stuff maintenance you're gonna have to license mm-hmm. every one of those guys mm-hmm. you got to do maintenance and I and, you know my, my theory was mobility training is very important that's one of those things that i think re- you really get in the group one instead of doing mobility training let's do a couple more patrols because tactics is tactics mm-hmm. what you learn walking around those base principles could be used you know they're not exactly the same but they can be used for vehicles too and really mobility training um besides the driver training is is team sops and that's mm-hmm. sops type stuff yeah. You know, because your tactics are really limited to the terrain. What you know in Iraq, you know, it's your route. Your mobility mm-hmm. is your route. In Afghanistan, mobility is really your route. You know, in your SOPs and how you deal with, you know, down vehicles and down drivers and how you're going to pack the stuff and all that stuff. That doesn't need to be taught in the Q course. Mm-hmm. So I was against that, and, and and gravity prevented that one to happen. It wasn't my argument. It was just too much to do and too hard to do, and and would have taken up two weeks of the Q course time that we didn't have. Mm-hmm. Was the discussion of females and soft? Did it have, had it come up at that time? Not, not then. Not later on. Not okay, then. okay, later on. Um, it might have been batted around maybe, but uh, it, was, it wasn't as serious as it was when, you know, it was at uh, Secretary Panetta, I think it was, yeah. at the end. Yeah. When, yeah. When, he, when he wrote the order, it became real on yeah. how to implement yeah. it. Um, any other massive changes that you saw while you were there? Um, yeah, we, we took, uh, a company second battalion and turned it into a whole new battalion, uh, out of nothing. Um, so we grew, a, another special skills battalion out of one company, um, you know, which put us even more in deficit on people, which was a challenge. And then we split the CA and Psy out battalion in two. Um, so when I got there, we were, uh, four battalions plus a support battalion. We had the support battalion too, which was a great battalion. I hate to miss that thing because they did a lot of stuff to support, you know, the joint armament facility, the riggers. Being a rigger in SWIC is a significant thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of jumping that goes on yeah. in SWIC. Yeah. Um, so the support battalion was was in the student company that did all the admin. So that was an important thing. So we had the four, I'll call them line battalions or training battalions. And we had the support battalion. And when I left, we had 5th battalion, which became the PSYOP training battalion. And we had 6th battalion, which became the... Uh, special activities training battalion or whatever they ended up calling it but mm-hmm. we, we had the same amount of people that we had when i got there <laughs> just had more units yeah, they've actually resourced those things uh and and to some extent you know i i was concerned about that um but to some extent sometimes you know you just have to pull the scab off and get these things going and uh you know to quote unquote build the airplane in flight that's not always a good idea 
um, but sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. How long was that tour? I was there for 15 months. Okay. Then where did you go? Uh, I got selected to be the 7th Group CSM. Oh, that's so right. Went yeah. from uh, serving as the 10th Group CSM, not really that guy, um, but doing the job, and then the Training Group CSM, and then the 7th Group CSM. So uh, I got selected, and uh, the I wasn't supposed to go there for another year, but the 7th Group CSM got selected to move up to SF Command. And uh, so basically it was like, hey, you know, you've been selected to do this job. Uh, so in... Uh, one month, you know, you need to go over there, report to seventh group, and uh, don't don't get too comfortable in the seat because you're going to Florida two weeks after that. Mm, that's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I PCS'd over there, and then we were probably about one month in, or about two months into about a six-month uh, BRAC moving the group down to Florida that, uh, you know, I showed up there, packed up my office, and that was one of those things. So, so when I took over as a 10th group CSM, it wasn't the same, you know, it was, it was, it was a significant honor. I will tell you that to, to serve as a group CSM. And, you know, I, I think I took it seriously and did the best that I could do, uh, you know, help the unit out. Um, same thing with the training group, you know, it, you know, I was a little bit in awe of it, but when I took over as a seventh group CSM, you know, I had been in seventh group since I was a PFC. Mm -hmm. So that office, that was the office you never wanted to go into. So even when I was the group CSM, mm -hmm. It was like, man, I'm a little wary going into mm -hmm. the group CSM's office, mm -hmm. but I didn't have to spend there but two weeks, pack it up, move the group down to Florida. What was the point of that move? The point of that move, the 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 uh, realistically, you know, Fort Bragg is huge, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger, and you're moving a lot. In fact, I think Fort Bragg, population-wise, is the biggest military po post in the world, and I've heard that, and I don't know if that's true or not. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a lot of people in one small area. And when you think about it, you know, the, the decision to move seventh group, I think was like, it, it, you know, it, it was part of the BRAC in like 2003, four. So that was a bigger package deal. We're closing these bases and, and you had, I think it was a congressman named Miller down there in uh, Northern Florida who had some influence and, and he wanted to get, you know, uh, you know, some, some more active duty personnel, especially like an SF group down there in his district in Northern Florida. Um, and when that decision was made, they had just ramped up the 4th Battalion to the 82nd. Fort Bragg really doesn't have the real estate and training capability to support four infantry brigades and two active duty SF groups and, uh, you know, the other entities that are on there and, and training group, all the stuff that we just talked about is mm -hmm. on Bragg. So it was decided that, uh, you know, it was best to move 7th Group off of Bragg. And uh, like I said, a little bit of politics and a little bit of reality that, that went into it. Okay. So what was it like moving a, an entire special forces group from North Carolina to Florida? Well, fortunately, I had the easy part of that. All the prep work that had been done by like the CSM before me and two before that, um, that was really the hard stuff. And we had a good uh, advon element down there setting everything up. So really, I went in there... Um, did a BRAC, which is different from a PCS. Um, you know, it's 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 a focus thing. So you're not, you know, trying to get appointments and everything. It's like, hey, this block of people on this day, you go there and people are just moving you out. So it was well-planned and well-resourced. Um, so that part of it was pretty easy. We left to stay behind that uh, probably kind of sucked being on that element because they basically had to get all the build or a lot of the buildings back up to, you know, standard painted oh, yeah. light bulbs and Nails ceiling tiles and, and yeah. yeah, all that type mm -hmm. of stuff. So that was horrible for those guys. 
And the big thing is that the biggest challenge that I had as the seventh group CSM was we had to pay, um, you know, each group gives, you know, let's a certain amount of guys every year. You got to pay the bills for people to go to be SWIC instructors and, uh, and, uh, like ROTC, yeah, ROTC and, and, and all the, there's all kinds of things they have to do. So, you know, probably about 300 taskers divided by five every year. Cause the guard doesn't participate in that. Um, and, uh, we had to pay about three years forward on that because there was a lot of guys that didn't want to move and there was no way to pay the bill after you didn't want to PCS guys down there, Bragg them down there to Florida for a year and then PCS them back to Bragg, just pay those bills up front. So that alleviated the bills on the other groups a little bit that year. Um, so I paid a pretty hefty bill personnel wise for green berets, moved the group down to Florida and had to start building the, uh, regional support element and the fourth battalion a year later. Mm -hmm. Um, so grow that. And we, I remember guys in SWIC from seventh group that didn't want to go to Florida and then they went and they loved it, you know? They, oh yeah. 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 Well, yeah. guys just don't want to move. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's they, they find a, a way to love wherever they're at. It is a pin in the ass moving. It oh, is, it does. Yeah. It does. Horrible. You wouldn't know. <laughs> I moved <laughs> twice. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, yeah, that, that was a pretty good challenge, but we were, we were pretty well resourced that, you know, we get down there at that time, seventh group was not in the rotation for the siege of, for siege of to, you know, in, Af in Afghanistan. And, uh, so we're like, Hey, you know, our job here is to get focused, uh, stand up. You know, there was, a, there was a lot of talking past each other between the army and the air force. I will tell you that uh, I remember I was in one meeting and uh, somebody on the Air Force side asked, why do you need more than one range at a time anyway? Mm -hmm. So there was, there was a little education experience and on both sides, you know, to be honest. So it was a little bit of a struggle getting training areas there and, uh, you know, working through uh, because that's a test post. So they would want to, you know, shut down areas uh, for safety reasons, for test lines, you know, dropping bombs and stuff like that. So there was a lot of things to work out, but ultimately I think it got worked out pretty good. Uh, certainly not in my time, um, because, you know, after being down there a few months, they said, okay, seventh group, you know, you guys are going back in, uh, to, uh, take over the, the nucleus, you know, the headquarters element and the, and the nucleus of the siege of Um, so me and the boss were going over there with a good portion of our group staff and the battalions were rotating in there and we were going to go there for a year. So after I was there in Florida for about seven months, I left um for a year rotation to uh afghanistan and never went back to florida really yeah oh, that sucks yeah, so you, was, you had your own little compound down there and everything oh yeah right? it's it was sweet down yeah. there i mean yeah you know you, that's one of those things you know the, this is the type of things that can tickle a guy's ego a little bit you know they're like hey the, you know they're building the clothing sales and and you have to go over there and inspect and i'm like why, why do i have to inspect mm -hmm. it because you're the post sergeant major. I'm like, what am I looking for? And it's like, there's no other army sergeant majors around. You're the yeah. one that has to go inspect it. And to make and the funny thing was, I'm like, what am I looking for? Well, you know, they got uniform displays, and so I go over there, and I was like, yeah, that's a female in ASUs with an SF tab. And you know, I said that'll probably happen in 2020, mm -hmm. but this is 2011. No, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, they're they're not allowed to be. So that's that's an inaccurate, you, you know, uniform at least right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I inspected. I was like, that's kind of odd. And then and then and then you go over there. We had a uh, shopette that was also a class six. So you had a few shopette, and and because it was such a small quote unquote post or a post within a post, because um, the only thing that was there was seventh group was uh, I was like uh, they're like. 
what kind of beer do you want us to sell here? And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> it's like, huh? like, you need Negro Modelo, man. Where's the Negro Modelo? Oh, we'll get it. You know, so I could actually tell the shop at what kind of beer and wow. alcohol to have if they didn't have it. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the gym there, I, yeah, you go over there and I'm like, you know what? You need to do this with the gym. You need to get that stuff. So it was, it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some there's some upsides to uh, being the CSM and being like the seventh group. Little post within a post out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. How's the range? It. How's the ranges down there? They're pretty um, better. Right? Yeah, I, I don't know what we ultimately ended up with. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, we had a hundred meter flat range. We had a uh, fifty meter flat range. We had like a, a range for breaching bays. Mm-hmm. We had a brand new shoot house. Uh, the shoot house had a tower about three hundred meters away where you could take shots into the shoot house or in the burn past it. That that'll train like maybe four or five teams. Um, there were other, uh, ranges on post. They were, uh, you know, farther with those were like right out in our backyard. We had a small mount site that was, uh, dedicated to us. They were building like a 600 meter KD range with, uh, I think it was 600 meter KD range with movers. There was like a thousand meter KD range and supposedly look, excuse me, like a 1500, uh, meter unknown distance range. And by the time I, you know, the seven months I was there, those had not been finished. In fact, the, like the 600 meter range had been cleared and was starting to be constructed. They had just knocked down the trees on the uh, KD range and there was trees where the, uh, and, and the reason was it was costing like millions of dollars to do that because all that land had to be cleared of the UXO. So it was like, oh, yeah. it was like some crazy amount of money per, um, you know, because when people are out there clearing and working and everything, you had to like have this clearing, UXO clearance element that was right there. So you had to pay for that expertise to be on hand. Mm-hmm. So I think they worked that out. And, you know, since then, there's a couple of civilian ranges that have been built down there that I know 7th Group uses quite a bit. That are Core. Some, yeah, Core. Used to be Altus. Yeah. Altus, mm-hmm. I think they're called now. I, that wasn't there when I was the Group mm-hmm. CSM. I was like, 150 meter civilian range. I, I need more distance than this. Mm-hmm. And then I find out later on, why didn't they have that when I was down there? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, standing that up, standing up the fourth battalion and then, you know, boom, me and the boss and, you know, half the group staff go forward and take over Afghanistan for a year. Yeah. Is that a rough trip? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it was a rough trip. Um, I, it, it, I will tell you that that trip burned me to the ground. I mean, four or five, maybe six hours sleep a night for like, I ended up being there for like 11 months Mm -hmm. um, because I came back a little bit early to take over SF command um that that burns you to the ground after a while i know when i got back off of the trip and then finally went home which i had been gone for like probably two-thirds or three-quarters of the last you know 10 years mm-hmm. before that and uh and she and my wife's like going man you're sleeping in until like 10 o'clock you've never sleep slept in until 10 o'clock you're like get up at seven o'clock on the weekend i was like that last trip burned me to the ground mm-hmm. it ground me into cornmeal i said mm-hmm. i just got no sleep for a year Mm-hmm. Or very little, and even even when you did get sleep, you know the, because that summer of twelve was very kinetic. I mean, mm-hmm. we had, we had a lot of KIAs and we had a lot of WIAs. I mean, it was, you know, and, and we were giving it back, you know, tenfold. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was very, you know, the, the I know the last podcast you had was one of my seventh group guys yeah. that was uh, that was wounded up there while I was a siege of of CSM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we were talking yesterday and. You know, I was telling him, I was like, yeah, I was at that, you know, that base. I spent like three or four days at that base where you were at, um, like four months when the other team was there before he got there. Cause it, that was one of, you know, I would, in that trip, you know, I, I didn't, I went out on a couple of commando ops, um, 
one because it's you know it's good to keep the pulse and one because it's a lot of fun mm -hmm. that's the type of thing that you know we all signed up for so it's good to go out and do that and you know and it, and it helps when you're sitting in there because once again you know those a lot of those or a lot of those big operations were briefed up at the 06 level um so i'd be you know you go out on a commando op or and then you go back in there and you got kind of firsthand you understand what they're thinking um and, and nothing against the staff guys but the intel people you know because they're from all the other services and they're in there trying to give the boss their best you know intel estimate on what's going on and on the concerns of it and i was like yeah you you don't need to worry about that man that's not you know i'll, I'll just say you know not to criticize anybody but you know, you're looking at a map and you're looking at uh, graphics on a map, you know, that came up from an ODA that was probably changed at the B team, that was changed at the uh, at the uh, battalion before it came to the Siege of Sodaf. And you've got an element shooting, you know, west and another element shooting east. And, you know, ah, you know, I've got a little concern on this, sir. It looks like these two, you know, they, there might be a little fratricide. They're shooting at each other. And I was like, number one, there's a piece of high ground between the two. Number one, there's like a, a, a one click, you know, dense freaking afghan village with mud walls and two that's not what they're doing they, mm -hmm. it's not even close to what they're they're just throwing some graphics on the map because the way that they're doing it is the team comes up with a plan a tentative plan and then at the at the last possible moment they issue that mission to the afghan commandos the afghan commandos uh like the day before come up with their plan and then if that's good, they refine it between the commandos and, and that's already approved. Yeah. You know, so don't 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 get wrapped around the axle. Mm -hmm. What we need to do at this level, we need to trust that team chart and team leader and the company commander that they're, you know, that they're tactically sound. We need to make sure we need to make sure, hey, is this a good mission? Is this worth, you know, sending guys out for and and, and does it rate the assets that are allocated to us, you know, lift assets, any cast assets, AC one thirties or whatever. Um, is it important enough to get that? That's what we do here at this level. You know, nobody in this room should be critiquing that ground tactical plan because it's not even going to look like it's planned anyway once yeah. they execute it. Did you guys have any uh, insider attacks on that trip? Oh, yeah. yeah. In couple? fact, that base, Kajur, um, where, where he got wounded, um, they moved up there into Kajur, and that might have been our first green on, on blue. Um, that was where the uh, the, I think it was... ANASF guy or commando, I can't remember which, um, but but they were having a meeting between the ANA, I think it was ANASF, between the ANASF and the team, and so they all came together and they were having a little kumbaya, and this other guy, he just got up on the high ground and started shooting into the team. Um, killed one guy, seriously wounded several guys, um, so that was a green on blue, and that was one of the early ones, and that was Kajur. Um, and that's what sparked me to go up there because we didn't want to give up that uh, that terrain one because we weren't sure you know you never know if a VSP is going to pay off for the asset you know what you put into it um, until until you've been there a while um, so we rebuilt a team to put up there um, you know took some talent from different areas and that's why I went I went up there and spent a couple of days I like to go like I said to the shitholes and see how, how they're living mm -hmm. and you know, what they're facing and the challenges, you know, that helps you to be a better leader and inform your boss when you are sitting next to him making decisions. And, uh, and then obviously, you know, he lost his leg there later on. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, yeah, we had, uh, several green on blues. We had, uh, down there and I think it was, uh, Puze, P-U-Z-E-H. I've heard it pronounced several ways. Uh, we lost, uh, two MARSOC operators and a, uh, in a, in a marine um 
um, EOD guy, I believe he was, you know, they just, you know, busted in. We had a couple seals that, that were green on blue um, during that rotation. Um, yeah, I think I think we had about eight green on blues. Wow, that's yeah, I a get lot. A little, yeah, because yeah. once I left and I became at SF Command, you know, the all all those unfortunately those casualties, you know, kind of blend in together. Mm -hmm. I have to almost go back and I've got cards um, that that my boss actually got, um, not not the group commander, but the the, the one star General Haas. And then, and then I ended up working with him. He had uh, cards uh, that you know he liked to you know everybody that was killed. And we and we ended up I think with forty five KIAs in that one year rotation. Damn, in Siege of Soda, to include infantry guys and yeah. and uh, EOD and Navy EOD and and uh, and you know numerous infantry guys. The the Army EOD guys, I would say population wise, I think we lost maybe four four of those guys. And mm -hmm. that, there's not a lot of people there. Maybe even five. Mm um dangerous job when when an oda loses a couple of guys did you and, and uh, the group commander fly to that base or i mean you probably couldn't fly to them all but did you ever go in and talk to the team or did you just drive on because i've heard different theories right i've heard i've heard teams who want to shut down after they lose a couple of guys i've heard uh the counterpoint that you need to get back out there and get back on the horse and go do your freaking job. You're a Green Beret. It's a dangerous job. This shit happens. What was kind of your stance on that? Well, I would say that, you know, we had a saying back then, if you've seen one VSP, Village Stability Platform, you've seen one Village Stability Platform. You know, there's so many things that go into that. You know, what the circumstances were, you know, the strength of that team. Um, and like I said, we're not in Siege of Soda. If we're not talking just Green Berets. I mean, we had... A seventh group battalion there. We had a third group battalion, you know, Green Berets. We had a a SEAL soda. We had a uh, Marsoc soda. With you know, we had mm -hmm. uh, and all the enablers and, and uh, Air Force combat controllers and JTACs. Um, so it was it was really a case by case basis. So I would say fairly automatically, especially if it's an IED. You know, an IED will shut down. An IED that kills one guy will shut down a team harder generally then maybe two guys getting killed in a gunfight, you know, and, and I think most people are kind of with me, you know, a gunfight, you know, you're in it, you know, you're a participant, you know, you were given mm -hmm. it when, when you got it or your buddy got it. Whereas an ID, you're just driving along and, and you can't kill that son of a bitch that mm -hmm. just blew you up. And an incident attack is a, it's sort of like a gunfight, but it's, it's unexpected and it's devastating. And even though you get to kill that guy, you still lost a couple of your guys when you weren't expecting it. Did that psychologically have a, a, a tougher effect on guys than an IED or a gunfight? The green on blue is probably the toughest thing that we encounter because it, it you know, that for the bad guys, that's an effective technique because that fractures and really puts in doubt that, that bond that, you know, yeah. I mean, you think about that. You serve with the ICTF. You serve with the, the uh, ERB, probably more so with the IC. You mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. gained a level. Of, I mean, they were your guys, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you didn't really see them as uh, as Iraqis. They were, mm -hmm. you know, they were like your kids almost, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're training them, you're operating with them, you know, the, and, and if... And if and if a green on blue were to come up in that scenario, that would have really made that situation difficult. So that's the, that's the type of effect that that green on blue it, it crushes that trust and it really you know fractures and or strains you know that that uh, trust you have to have between you know the Afghans and the Americans to to complete your task. Yeah, it, 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 it's a catastrophic loss of rapport, right? Because you can't train a partner force and have your hand on your gun the whole time, like you don't trust them, right? 
Um, I've never dealt with green and blue, thank God. But um, it, yeah, it, it seems like a very difficult thing. I know guys who used to be on my team who've dealt with it and it, it destroyed them, you know, mentally. Um, yeah, overall though, you know, and when you look at the totality of it, within a short amount of time, we were back into it. You know, you, you're forced into it. You, mm -hmm. you just gotta, you know, you just, you just gotta trust your guys. And, and, and obviously the people that we were working with, you know, the commandos and you, you might have a guy, um, go off the edge, but you know, you, you just, you get, you get focused on the mission again. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and over a period of time, you know, just, it, you just rely on them to do what they're needing to do. And, and, and turn your back on them and expect them not to do something like that. Without giving away any any TTPs or anything like that, was there a common theme when it happened? Because you saw a lot of them. Was there a common theme that something triggered it, or was it just all over the place? And it was a TTP, the enemy, like an ambush or a raid or, or, or a, an ID? The green on blue? Yeah. Was there a common theme of why it triggered, or was it just another TTP for the enemy? Yeah, there was, there was no absolute common theme i would say during ramadan that's a much more dangerous time when mm -hmm. these guys are are putting themselves into you know they're not eating or drinking during the day mm -hmm. which causes frustration so if you're a little bit angry or you're frustrated or you're kind of leaning towards that way you know uh and my perception is and i could be you don't know what's in these guys mind um a lot of the time but i, I think a lot of it was you know they just they just get so frustrated and they're in and they just kind of go off the handle and do it Cause some of them, sometimes they shot their own people too. Oh, yeah. Um, not just Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, although that, I think the intent was to, to kill some Americans. Um, there's a couple of them that I, that I know like those three Marines in, uh, in, uh, in the Hellman river Valley, that was very purposeful because I, I can't remember. I think it was a local policeman or something like that. Um, but he actually infilled in there. They were having like a, a little Shura, and this this was in like the you know the heart of darkness of the uh, Hellman River Valley, very bad area, and they had implemented the village stability operations and a, a local police to the point where they were walking around without body armor in that area. And, mm -hmm. and you know I I went there and actually met all three of them uh, before it happened because we went and visited that area when they first went in there, and uh, we were walking around. We didn't have body armor on. You know me and the colonel and the entourage and hey you know this is a safe place and kids are playing in the street and that was a great thing so i think they were targeted by the bad guys to get that guy in there so they had ashura and this guy came in as part of the shura and once everybody was leaving he just you know kicked in the door on the ops hooch and started shooting wow was he an actual police officer or was he just dressed that way i i can't remember yeah, uh, the, yeah. the details of that you know the parts that i remember that is how it happened you know, there and and that was one of those things. Hey, you know, were they, you know, too friendly with? I was like, hey, let it go, man. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, they they had they were seeing success and they were, you know, doing what they thought needed to be doing. If that guy was determined to do it, you know, he could get in there um, and, and do it. But uh, yeah, I don't know if we ever got that guy. We were tracking him hard, and he mm -hmm. actually evaded out. That's one guy that we didn't get. Oh, okay. Because um, he squirted out of there quick, and he evaded, and and we have reason to believe at that point in time it took him about two weeks, but he got into Pakistan. Mm, okay. Um, did we? Did you ever? Uh, did you have to go? Ever have to go to funerals to your guys? Or were, were obviously the bodies come back from from Afghanistan, and you're still there. But did, did you ever, like, near the end of the trip or no, even when, when you were when back? I, when I was at SF Command, I went to a whole lot of funerals. Oh, SF yeah. Command. As, yep. as, okay. Um, all right, let's, let's talk about that in a minute. But let, let's wrap up with 
seventh group. Yeah, so that that trip right there, um, like I said, it was real kinetic, uh, and and I thought we were having a pretty good effect um, in a lot of areas. You know what we were looking at. You know the turn was white space. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and white space was areas that were free from Taliban. You know, controller influence. You know by building up the local, you know, the strength of the local, empowering the district governors and the provincial governors. Um, you know, there was always a question whether it was going to work, but, you know, we were putting full court and we had, like I said, we had like 72 soft teams mm -hmm. in there at the but time. But the same thing was tried all in over Vietnam the with, yeah. with village support operation. It was tried by the French in, in, in northern in Vietnam. You know, it's been tried before, you know. Yeah, um, one, of the, one of the challenges is, you know, and, and, and it frequently happens, you know, and I'll use an SFODA, for example. When an SFODA goes in there and you start this village stability platform and that, that SFODA is, is, is successful at running any Taliban, at least out of the immediate area, you know, taking away any influence they have by, you know, killing them or, you know, bringing in because we use the commandos to come in and clear these areas out and, you know, whip any of the Taliban's ass before we actually, you know, you know prepping for that village stability platform. And then that ODA in there moves in there. Sometimes, you know, now the, the Afghans are like, that's the power source. So they want their, they want their governance and conflict resolutions to come from the, you know, the de detachment commander. Mm. And, uh, and it's like, no, the district governor. And they're like, the district governor didn't run the Taliban out of here. You did, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's to, to, you know, get the Afghans to, you know, establish their own governance and take, in, you know, that area of their own responsibility. You know, pretty much those people are like, I don't really care who's in charge. I just want to know who's in charge. And I'll go to you, and I want conflict resolution, and I don't want anybody else to mess with me. Yeah. Um, so that, that like, who do I bribe? Cool. Who yeah. do I bribe to get what I need? You know. Um, well, you know, and not to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but uh, you know, bribe. So when you talk to an Afghan, and, I know. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You've heard this story. You talk to an Afghan, and you're like, going, "Why are you bribing the district governor?" No, that's the guy that decides. I'm going to give him some money. Mm -hmm. He's going to build a it's road like a past tax. my village. It's like a tax, yeah. right? It's yeah. like it's like no, no. What you need to do is you need to pay taxes to the central government. Mm -hmm. The central government will send money down to the province, and the province will send the money down. They're like. Are you stupid? Yeah. I'm going to send money to like Kabul yeah. Yeah. and expect to get a road built here? Yeah. You're dumb. You Americans are crazy. Get the hell yeah, out of here. It's an American solution on an Afghan problem. Our perspective um, on, on corruption is, uh, you know, or our perspective of lack of corruption and the proper way to do it is insane to an yeah. Afghan out in the hinterlands. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're less corrupt than we are, our government wise. Yeah. <laughs> um, with all your experience and all your corrupt stuff, Afghanistan, what would you do now if, if it was your decision? Would you pull out of Afghanistan? I would say probably the most successful, and I could be wrong, but we've been wrong on everything else, uh, or we haven't been right, mm -hmm. at least. If uh, once we w went in there originally and we kicked the Taliban's ass, and we would have never done this, and, and we would have never had the, the, the thought to do it at that time, but if we had said, okay, we've kicked your ass, mm -hmm. so um, Dostum up there in in, uh, in the north, and uh, and the Balt governor uh, Mohammed Noor, I think, and uh, you know the I, know, I can't remember all the names. The guy in uh, Kandahar, I can picture his face, but the, the names start to confuse me. The guy in Aruskan, um, I said, okay, you know what? You guys are warlords. You know what they ultimately became was like the chief of police or the district governor or whatever. You guys are the warlords, okay? And then maybe we'll have a district war or, or an overall warlord for the South. 
Um, you know, Warlord is the way that it works for Afghanistan. And uh, we're going to come in and do what we did to the Taliban to you if you don't follow these mm-hmm. rules. Um, we would we would have never done that. No. Even if, if what we knew now, we went back in time. If I said, no, I'm coming back from 2020. Yeah. This is the way. You yeah. know, they just said I'd be in like a straitjacket. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, that's that probably would have been the only successful way at that time. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would, uh, would, would argue that point. But uh, that that... That might have been the best outcome. Probably. But what about now? Now? It's tough to say. I'm not over there. I'm not seeing what it is. Uh, I will tell you that, uh, and and, and I'm not saying that to be a cop-out. I just don't know exactly how things are going over there. um, And not really in a position to to find it out. Nor do I really want to be in that position. Um, But I will tell you that uh, when people ask me, you know, you know, you, ha- you know, so I spent almost two and a half years in Afghanistan, so I could probably vote there if I wanted to like, send in a ballot. <laughs> if they had vote. such a thing. Yes. <laughs> you know, I get, get my little blue finger, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the, um, I would say that, um, you know, when people ask me, should we pull out of there? I was like, I, I, I've got a lot of time there. Um, I would hate to see us leave without winning. Um, but but I don't know I don't know if you know I don't know if we can win I we could win and it would be very disastrous for the Afghans it would be very bloody um, and then everybody in Waziristan would move into Afghanistan because we would have killed mm-hmm. I mean you you you'd almost uh, I'll just stop right there it'd be tough to win yeah. without dr- extreme drastic measures yeah um, without a high body count sometimes I think about it in, in the terms of Vietnam. Like we, we lost in Vietnam and it was devastating to the country. Now nobody gives a fuck. Half our shit is made in Vietnam, you know? And communists took it over and it's a communist country. Really? Who gives a fuck? Really, you know? So I, I don't know how much blood and treasure we can pour into that country to, to keep going if there's no exit strategy. And, and well, killing everybody in the country is not really an exit strategy. You know, I would say that, you know, at some, at some level, you know, what we're doing right now, um, you know, we're losing some people every now and again, but we're not losing a lot of people. We're spending a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that for me to make that decision, is it worth it? You know, can we scale back a little bit? You know, what does it cost? And, and doing an honest assessment, you know, the, the, the guys that were uh, killing and the, and, the, uh, and the things that we're mitigating with the force that we've got there now, um, you know, it, it might be worth it than letting, you know, the, the, the Taliban take back over. And, you know, like I said, I, I just don't have that data in front of me, in front of me to make an educated decision. Mm, okay. But it is a tough one. That's, yeah, I don't want really to make is. it, you know, I, yeah. I don't want to walk away from that. Well, well, uh, but, you know, we, we, we've been there for so long. We've lost so many people to pull that now almost seems like all those lives are wasted, you know, but if we stayed there for another 15 fucking years and then how many more lives would be wasted? That is a very tough decision. When I was there last, I was there in 14 and Obama administration sent some guys in to do an assessment and Reary was the CSM at the time and he was in the meeting and all that. And he was telling me later, they were like, hey, what if you just went out, but you didn't go near the battle? You just went to a hill overwatching and you let the Afghans. And Reary was like, as soon as you step out the gate, you're in combat. There's no such thing as going to a safe place outside. He's like, let us do our job or pull us the fuck out of here. You know, stop this half-ass shit. Well, you know, you, you, can't, uh, you can't prove a negative or you can't quantify a negative sometimes. And so, you know, all the lives we've lost and, you know, the, the, the legs and the arms and everything that we've left over there, you know, the working dogs that have been killed and, 
and uh, you know all, all and and all the money we've invested. Uh, we also haven't had any more 9/11 since then. That's you know, true. And that's one of the things. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't had a 9/11 type event by a foreign entity, and we might be in the process right now of doing mm-hmm. it to ourselves. Um, you know, in destruction, maybe not not lives, but uh, the uh, we haven't had that since then. You know, you can't prove a negative. Maybe maybe that was worth it. You know, mm-hmm. it yeah. hasn't continued on. The Taliban still hasn't taken over. You know, you don't have a, a safe area for mm-hmm. Al Qaeda or any, ISIS or any other entity like that, um, where they can you know operate mm-hmm. you know however they want. So, you know, you know, I'm not trying to kid myself, but maybe that makes it worth it. Maybe, and and hopefully we've learned a lesson about this nation building around the world. You know, going to kick somebody's ass and leave it to them. You know, I you're you're. you're like you said, you're the warlords that are left standing. Figure it out. We're done. Hey, know? bottom line is, a lot of people might disagree with me on this. Only some people can be governed. A lot of people have to be ruled. Absolutely. You have yeah. to have a responsible population mm-hmm. to have a population that can be governed. You know, your participation in, you know, agreement with the laws and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and some people, you know, are just better off ruled. You know, maybe yeah. someday they get to the point where you know, they can be governed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, so I assume while you're in Afghanistan, you get selected for SF Command. Yep. So SF Command is this Special Forces Regiment, five active duty regiment, five active duty groups, two National Guard groups, all the support elements, civil affairs, psyops, all encompassing like 24,000 people, I think. <sighs> pretty close to yeah when i first took over it was just the groups and oh, okay then, and then it became so the, that merger uh, came after yeah, you while okay. i was there it's my okay. fault <laughs> <laughs> i knew it <laughs> um when you got were you thinking because that seventh group i can hear that gunfire and, and, and we're, we're, we're at a range it's not green on blue yeah no it's not when because that seventh group rotation was rough in terms of, of workload and, and sleep deprivation and loss of life, because that does take a toll on everybody. Um, were you thinking of tapping out at that point before you got selected for SF Command? No, I mean, I, I, I thoroughly thought, you know, because right, I think, because I took over a year earlier, I was supposed to get three years as a seventh group of CSM. So I was mm-hmm. focused on, on going back and, you know, continuing to set up the group and mm-hmm. maybe look at, because my daughters had graduated at that time and they were in college, maybe moving the wife down there. Mm. Um, you know, it, 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 like I said, it, it, it ground me to dust. It wore me out and I was sleeping in more. Uh, you know, it didn't take, take me down, you know, uh, emotionally or, or mentally. And the fact, you know, my response to all the KIAs and WIAs, you know, just my nature was, you know, Hey, are, are we getting enough training? You know, are the infantry guys getting the right training before they come in over here? Are the SF guys or the SEALs, you know, what type of training? Like I said, the, uh, the counter IED training, um, you know, figuring out how to use the uh, joint expeditionary teams over there to focus their efforts better. Because it was kind of like a la carte for the battalions and companies and teams on how they use the jet advisors. And, and I took that over. I said, this is how it will happen. Mm-hmm. I said, these posts, these places right here where the highest uh, IED threats will be, these jet guys, because those jet guys were very good. They were, they were all smart. I'm, I knew a lot of them. Yeah, they were contractors, right? They were former yeah. SF guys. Yeah. They were contractors, contractors that were specifically hired and trained to, to uh, counter the IED threat. Yeah, and that yeah. was, you know, intel and training yeah. and operations and everything. So I was like, hey, let's do this. 
I want, you know, let's divide them up like this. Let's put more people here because there's a higher ID threat. I want you to go out there and hit these VSPs first. Um, and we're not asking them, I'm telling you to go do this. Before you go there, I want you to do a good assessment on what type of IEDs are there and the IED activity and the norms and all that type of stuff. And these guys are fully qualified to do that um, and capable of doing it. And, and then go out and do an assessment on the team, you know, find out, you know, what type of equipment they've got, the handheld stuff, find out what kind of equipment they've got on the vehicles, the threat, whatever TTPs they have, help them out with the intel, you know, because you can, you know, you can defeat the device, you know, you can avoid the device, you can, uh, you can go kill the guy that's making it. You know, there's a lot of ways to get at it um, and kind of look at it holistically. But my biggest concern was all the equipment they had, um, making sure that they knew how to equipment, use the equipment that would counter the threat that was in their area because mm -hmm. there, there was some confusion on that. Yeah, it's a difficult fight because there's so many different ways to trigger an IED and, and uh, the uh, how, how much dogs did you guys use? Were dogs effective against IEDs? Yep. Yep. Were they the most effective or were they were like mine detectors or, or what, what was the best in your experience? There was times that dogs failed, mm -hmm. um, but I would say overall a dog is, uh, is, is more effective. A dog is, I'll just say a dog is probably more effective at finding an IED than a guy with a mind hound that doesn't have enough training on it. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, that's a broad statement. That's something that, you know, I would never really compare, but you know, dogs are good. And I would say, you know, there was one fallacy and there's a lot of people that'll hate that I say this, but there was a big concern that, you know, when, when you would get like, we, they had three different, we had our soft multipurpose canines. Then you had the, uh, the MP dogs that were, that were sniffers and biters, I'll call them. And then you had Snoopy that was just a sniffer. Mm -hmm. You know, you would get a, a team or any soft element would get one of these Snoopy dogs out there. They'd be like, I don't want this, you know. It'd be, a la you know, it'd be Labrador or something. Yeah, yeah. Labrador or yeah. whatever, you know, mm -hmm. they'd be like, uh, you know, we've got a high IED threat here. And so I looked into it and I had my, because uh, I had a kennel master up there at, uh, that was an MP, that was MOS, I guess. And, uh, and I asked him and he pulled a bunch of data and he was like going, yeah, in like the last two years, Snoopy has never been blown up, nor has his handler. Mm, he has um, one job. He has one job. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know the uh, the the the. I'm not. I don't hate to use the term least effective, but uh, the the multi-purpose canines who would much rather run out there and bite somebody or track somebody. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that were a little bit more like, and they were very good. But the one times it did happen, it tended to be a multi-purpose canine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you own one of those dogs. I do. You know, when 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 his toy or something that mm -hmm. you know can give him the opportunity to run, he gets blind. He, he, he focuses does. on that. He focuses 100. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. Um, all right. So you move up to SF Command. Charge it a big, big honcho and charge it everybody now. Yeah. All right. How was that when you got that news? Um, I, well, the thing was, I actually said, hey, I'm not going to, because I was in Afghanistan. I said, hey, if it's competing now, um, and the reason was is because the guy replaced in seventh group, now he got selected to go down to Southcom to a four-star position. And, uh, and, and I was also under investigation um, at the time. Somebody had made a complaint against me. I can tell you that it was... Mm -hmm. uh, not accurate. It was a reprisal complaint. That's powerful for the court. Right? Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and, and that drug on for a little while. And, uh, and general Haas had selected me, which is kind of funny. Once again, go down a little rabbit hole. The worst chewing I ever got in the army. 
I was a group CSM and Siege of Soto CSM in Afghanistan. I'm not going to get into the, why mm-hmm. the, uh, the ass chewing. General Haas gave me that ass chewing. About four months later, he, uh, and, and it was me and my boss and the battalion commander mm-hmm. of the battalion CSM. And uh, four months later, he uh, selected me to be a CSM at SF Command. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, he ripped our asses, and, and uh, we'd fly back. With, and then me and Colonel Fletcher, we had to fly back on the plane from Kandahar up to drop him off in Kabul. And then when the plane took off to go to Bagram, and uh, Fletcher goes, what did you think about that? I was like, if I'm going to get an astronaut, that's the one I want to get. Uh, that was refreshing. Uh, yeah. That was a good one. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> so CSMs get their ass chewed too, huh? I got my ass chewed more as a CSM than I did the rest of my career. Really? Yeah, because, mm. you know, as a battalion CSM, you're taking ass chewings for 500 people. Mm. As a group CSM, you're taking ass chewings for 2,500 people. As mm-hmm. a SF Command CSM, you're taking an ass chewing for 23,000 people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, it's all good. Yeah. yeah. It's a tough ass. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, moving up to the, to the big seat. How was that? Yeah, that was, you know, I was, like I said, I was reluctant to compete for it because I had to come out early, even though it was like a Mm -hmm. about a month and a half early. I was like, I don't think that's the right thing to do. And they're like, yeah, get over yourself, turn in your packet. Um, Did the interview with General Haas. General Haas selected me, um, had to leave a little bit early, um, flew straight back to Bragg. Um, So I was still on orders to Afghanistan. I was there for six months. I took over to change of responsibility. Obviously, my wife was still there. Mm because she didn't move to Florida, so I had a, a home to live in, which was nice. And uh, about six weeks later, I got orders to PCS from Eglin to Bragg. So I drove down to Eglin, um, out processed for a week, and then drove back up to Bragg. Picked up my truck because I was driving a rental at that time. Mm. And uh, now I was, uh, you know, at that point in time, I, I, I will admit I, I was kind of focused on the things that I thought that I needed to do to, you know, make the unit more successful. You know, I was really going to focus on, not, not that I was going to uh, do anything better, because I don't think it was run bad before that, maybe a little bit different, you know, different personalities. You know, the guys that preceded me, uh, uh, you know, Zeiser and then Mario Hill and and uh, Perry Bear, the guys before me, I have, you know, I consider them all, Zeiser was my peer, um, but uh, definitely uh, Hill and, and Bear, they were mentors. I, I really looked up to them. And uh, so I think it was run good and, you know, but I was focused on, hey, these are the things that I need to continue to refine and this is the things that I need to do. You know, once again, um, you know, what, what does the CSM do? Um, you know, like we talked about the other day, an NCO, a senior NCO of a unit, um, you know, does what he thinks need to be done um, to to make the unit more successful. And obviously there's some things that are inherently NCO and there's some things that are not, but if you're the most senior guy in the unit, you probably need to weigh on weigh in on those things. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, if you've got an officer, officers don't want to do your job. And if you find an officer that's trying to do your job as an NCO, he's probably has an experience that he has to do the NCO job for him mm-hmm. somewhere in his past. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they don't, they don't want to do the NCO's job. Um, and like I said, I was fortunate. I had, you know, very good, you know, assigned friends, you know, the whole way up. I had some great officers. Um, no complaints at all. Learned a lot from them. I hope we, we learn from each other. You know, even though typically I had more experience in them, their perspective, you, you got to listen to their perspective. If you got the smart guy, then, uh, then, then you're always going to learn something. Um, but obviously, you know, I had to manage the 18 series population in the army. 
not all of them belong to me, but uh, pretty much, you know, under the, you know, I, under the you suck CSM's thumb a little bit, you know, it'd be like, hey, you manage the guys, you know, the, the levies and all that type of stuff. You know, and you, we've got our career models and we've got the, uh, you know, the business rules for PCS and where you go. You know, I was the, uh, the uh, waiver authority, if you will, for that. Um, so I focused on that, paid really close attention, you know, did my best to stay informed on, you know, what our population was like, the MOS balance, you know, the whole nine yards. That was pretty time consuming. But I also, you know, consider myself to be the most experienced guy on not just individual training, because individual, tra individual training is, you know, NCO business, collective training is officer business. You know, I, I think I had more experience than anybody in that headquarters, firsthand, you know, experience on conducting, planning, you know, executing um, and, and overseeing collective training. Um, so I wanted to, you know, a cut on all that type of stuff. I played, paid close attention to what SWIC was teaching because um, I thought that was pretty important um, to, to give the operational input to, to what was going on over there. So, you know, paid a lot of attention to that. Yeah, I did other things too, um, like, you know, little side gigs. Like I found out that there was certain mess halls in, uh, in uh, Camp McCall and uh, Key West was one of them. They got a lot more money per person um, for, to buy food than others. And, uh, and I found out that the groups were a little lower on the tier scale than I thought they should be. So I got my J4 after that and I was like, we, we need, we, we got some, uh, green berets are some of the biggest soft operators there are. They, they need some, they mm -hmm. need some more food. So that's one of the things I, I'm pretty, actually what I did is I think they had it readjusted. So we went up a little bit and some other people went down a little bit. But. Yeah. Because the army provide you a, your mess hall and all your food and all that, but soft puts in soft dollars to bump that up and make I, it no i don't better. even think it's that you have to justify there's certain entities out there you know I, I, and i don't know if it's a zero-sum game and i think it's all army dollars you know oh, it's, it? it's you know you just have to show the uh cal caloric intake required of of your population oh. um mm -hmm. you know based on the training and obviously some units uh, you know you could argue that that an infantry unit should get extra food as mm -hmm. much as you know a soft unit mm -hmm. maybe more than you know a unit that you know doesn't spend as much time but it was what it was you know that was one of the things i've and like i said that's just one of the the kind of one-offs mm -hmm. obviously managing the sf population um you know managing the support population within sf command um you know usasoc had a mechanism to manage the talent you know, it just kind of sprung up. I'm not sure how it's going now, but we were starting to try to, you know, be a little bit more deliberate in managing the uh, the uh, all the enabler population we had within SOF. So that that stuff would all come through me before it would go to USOC. Obviously, I relied heavily on my my uh, J4 SAR major, my J or uh, my G4 SAR major, my uh, G1 SAR major to help me do that because that was a, a big task. Obviously, during while I was there, we. Uh, we redesigned the fourth battalions from a uh, full line battalion to a, a more uh, specifically focused battalion with less personnel. That restructure, because I spent so much time, you know, manning a battalion and manning a group and managing it, you know, I involved myself heavily into that force structure to make sure it was, uh, you know, we were we were getting the capabilities in that battalion. And I'll tell you right off the bat that we didn't have enough to fully outfit those, but we. You know, there were certain designs that, that were, were optimized, I think, because I was paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I, I remember at the time when you were up there, females in SF came up. And even before that, the order was given by the SECDEF to execute, there was all these studies and we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. You were probably fairly intimately involved in that, I would imagine. Yes, I was. I, mean, I was always in all the, uh, the, the, the closed circle meetings. One of my favorite things to do when that came up was go talk to an SLC class because they were... They were besides themselves with it, and I would act like I was. Yeah, SLC's I was the senior leader the senior class, leader so course. it's E7s. Yeah, it's like, like 120 like about, E7s. Like we talked about about nine hours ago yeah, when I yeah, worked there. Yeah, but I would tease them. I'd act like I was all for it. They'd just be losing their minds. Mm -hmm. Honestly, you know, my my position on that was, I don't think it's worthwhile. I'm not saying that no female can do it. I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying I don't think it's worth. We don't need to do it. It's not necessary. It's not like oh my god you know, we're going to lose this country if, you know, females don't get into it, you know, because of all the challenges. That might have been a limited view, but that was my view. But I said, if we're going to do it, let's just do it. You know, let's not talk about it. I mean, obviously, you got to figure out certain things because you're integrating females. So, you know, latrines and stuff like that. But starting to seriously question our um, standards on everything because we're integrating females is the wrong reason to do it. If we didn't do it already, ready, let's not do it now. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's not do anything extra. Let's just say, ready, set, go, integrate females. I said, the other thing is, I don't want to waste too much time on it, and this is 2014. I said, because it's going to be at least five years before any female ever you know, graduates a Q course. I said, there's not going to be many females that want to do it. Um, so it's going to be statistically insignificant. If we're going to do it, let's just say, okay, it's opened up. We're going to start here. We need to look at barracks. We need to look at all these things. Let's not freak out about the standards. Let's just say ready, set, go. And it would have probably been about the same time. And like I said, we've got, as I hear, I don't know if that's uh, true or not, but we're, there's going to be one graduating here pretty soon. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, oh, the other thing I said, because they were talking about leadership has to message this. And I was like, oh, no. The guys ain't gonna trust the leadership on this. I said, those instructors that are in SWIC, that, that when that female goes through, when she graduates, all their buddies in the groups are gonna call up and go, hey man, what's the deal with this female? And if that guy goes, hey man, she met the standards, I said, that's the bona fides right there. Mm -hmm. If those instructors believe that she met the standards and the standards weren't changed for her, I said, then she's good. You know, the guys, I mean, there'll be some guys that blessed her, but I said, leadership doesn't matter. Those instructors that put her through, if they say, hey, she met the standard, man, I don't know what to tell you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was like 30% out of 100, so she beat 70% of the guys or whatever it is. Mm. So she's fully qualified to serve on an ODA. Mm. Do you think that uh, she will be put on an ODA or she'll be put in an intel job? Or, or I think if you don't put her on an ODA, then then you're, yeah. you're it's ridiculous. Yeah, you have to put her on mm -hmm. an ODA. Yep, yep. Yep. I mean, she went through the Q course. Yeah. So that would be that would be discrimination to not put her on an ODA. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Um, Give her a chance. You know, maybe yeah. maybe this is a good thing that uh, and it works out better than 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 I thought it would. Yeah. Maybe. We made um, the decision, so let's make it work. Yeah, execute. Um, all right. So uh, how long did you stay in position as the, the CSM for? Uh, a little over two and a half years. Yeah. And then you retired. Yes, I did. Where did you go then? Um, before I was all the way out of the Army, I, I took a con... Because of all that force structure work that I did, uh, and I had an eye on a force modernization job, 
Um, one, uh, one, uh, a guy that retired as a Sergeant Major and took over as a GS position in the force structure goes, Hey, how would you like to come work on the uh, headquarters redesign as a contractor? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let me take about a month off. I'm going to cool my jets for about a month and then I'll come back to work. I did that for about 10 months before the force mod job came open and I moved in to that. That was, uh, that was a frustrating job <laughs> the force structure. Because, you know, you can never get it right enough to get a blessing and mm -hmm. then have all the force structure in place to pull it off. You know, yeah, you force just, structure is all the bodies. How many bodies in this battalion? How many yeah. bodies here? Or how many? And you understand the right. It's regiment. not it. No, force structure is not bodies. It's billets. Okay. It's authorizations to have a body there. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, because mm. you can have a billet and not have a body and, and you can have a... Uh, and you can buy, put a body, obviously, where there's a, no, not a well, billet. Mm -hmm. um, but the billets, you know, and you can, you're can you limited. The Army can only have X amount, a defined amount of uh, green suitors and civilians. And you can have no more than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an end strength, and it's allocated. And you can't just say, I need 10 more people. And somebody go, you know, the, the two-star go, okay, 10 more people. You have the authorization to do that because that's money. You know, mm -hmm. a new another E8 is probably like you know, let's say one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that the army has to give him a paycheck and pay him BAH and his medical and all that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of money tied to every individual. Yeah, I wonder if that ever got signed because you were working on that years ago and it went back and forth and back and then a new commander, a new general come in and he changes it all and it's almost over the goal line. It's, it's incrementally grown. So the headquarters redesign, which was the main thing I was working on. The, they got a piece of it, but you know the 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 funding right now, the fluctuation. You know, you're getting slots, and then right before you pull the trigger on that force structure, then you lose some slots. So mm -hmm. the, it hasn't been fully implemented yet, and that was uh, four and a half years ago. So obviously, you could have taken a lot of jobs with your background. Why did you go to Force Mod? Uh, it interested me. It sounded like fun, mm -hmm. and and I love working with guys like you. Yeah, <laughs> and it was fun for about the first year. Or That's two. your accent, you know. I just had to work with you for your accent. <laughs> you and John Lester today teaching a class together. I was like West Virginia and Ireland. Oh my God, I'm American. Um, <laughs> but uh, how'd that job go in first mod? Um, it's one of the better jobs I've had, and it's one of the more frustrating jobs I had. Mm -hmm. uh, I will tell you, I learned a, I probably learned more in that three years that I worked in Force Mod than any other three year in my career, except for maybe like the first three years. Mm. I mean, because that's a fire hose, you know, as you know, wrapping your hand, your head around everything that goes on in the acquisition process, and and even before the acquisition, the requirements process, and you know, developing and understanding technology and then and then after all that stuff then you got integration you know mm -hmm. you, you know you get a new radio and that means you got to get a new pouch for it and then you got to get a new headset for it and that headset's got to fit on the helmet you know and that integration thing goes on and on so that was challenging and interesting um but uh obviously the frustrating part was uh you know Daddy just didn't have enough money to get all the kids everything they wanted at mm -hmm. Christmas. You know? Nobody and, wanted to say no to anybody. And, and just, yeah. and, you know, the, the everybody would get frustrated. Oh, why can't we have that? You know, your you, staff people can't say no. Mm -hmm. but, but if I said yes, it would be a lie. You, mm -hmm. know, you don't have the money for that. So yeah. I don't want to go too far down that rat hole. The positive things on that is, uh, you know, you look back, obviously, you know, I was, you know, in a, in a management role for the SMEs, obviously our guys, and so were you after you moved up there. You know, we had some guys that were doing some good stuff, mm -hmm. you know, whether, whether you agree with it or not. If you disagree with some of these things, you probably don't know all the ins and outs of it. The advanced sniper rifle, you know, that's something our guys worked on and, 
and are close to getting across. And that's a whole integrated system mm -hmm. with the laser and with the optics um, and, and working on a uh, clip-on thermal, you know, to... Uh, to optimize the use of that thing. The M4, the upper, mm -hmm. the uh, squad variable power scope, the new dot sight, the uh, the night vision device that's gonna go with that, the new squad aiming laser, you know, and that's just a couple in target engagement, new calibers, 6.5 mm -hmm. Creed more, you know, more effective uh, calibers for the sniper weapon systems um, and work on the machine guns. The problem is when the money is, is a little bit questionable, you know, buying a sniper rifle, sniper rifles are relatively cheap to mm -hmm. feed when it comes, when compared to buying a machine gun, you know, buying a, buying a, uh, a machine gun is like buying a cheap horse. The hay and oats cost more over the long term than the, uh, you know, the bullets than the, uh, than the gun does, mm -hmm. but definitely some ground-based work on that to have some more effective, uh, longer range machine guns that, that guys can actually carry, mm -hmm. um, you know, not really working on the vehicles because the vehicles are a long-term thing and we kind of adopted those, but certainly refining them and, you know, fixing some of the problems on the, on the vehicles, uh, you know, getting new helmets, you know, the new, uh, the new helmet is, uh, I think it's what a half a pound heavier. The armored helmet is a half a pound heavier than the bump helmet. Yeah. And it's got a higher helmet. level of armor protection than the old one. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you look at that, you know, our guys, uh, you know, with us, we, we accomplished some good stuff. And that was on my side. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, the other side, uh, the other mm -hmm. civilian. And it's funny because remember we had that conversation with one of the generals around. They're like, "Well, it, it's only half a pond," and we were like, "In a gunfight, a half a pond makes a whole lot of difference when you're yeah. closing with to kill the enemy, right?" Um, it was when you when you when you lay out all the, all the stuff we worked on and got accomplished. There was a lot of stuff. It was extremely frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, well, the whole system's frustrating. You run into. Yeah. How many times do you run into ASR? How many times do you run into people that know nothing about mm -hmm. guns that, and I'm not even sure what some of their stake was. Mm. You know, hey, I got some concerns about, who are you, man? Yeah, you don't Go even away. know what end the bullet There's comes money out. for it. There's yeah. a requirement for it. We're building, you know, the, the best capability we mm -hmm. can. Go go back in your hole, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let the big boys talk about guns. Yeah, um, a lot of justifying it. You know, a lot of people ask the right questions too, and we had to be on it, you know, yeah. to, uh, mm -hmm. like I said, Based on what you know, what the guys Terry and Tony and Stevie mm -hmm. and Bill Taylor and it really was about hiring the right guys yep. to to run the programs. It really was. But uh, then Kevin and uh, and then you brought brought in Blake for uh, Soldier Systems. Yeah. Those guys a lot, a lot of new cold weather stuff mm -hmm. that they're working on. Mm -hmm. I just hope we can afford it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, so then, when did you tap out? A couple of months ago. You were like, I'm done. It was January, right? I yeah. decided I, I retired uh, two weeks after I turned 55, which is a point in time where I can draw TSP. Mm -hmm. That was like January, right? It's like yep, six, end of January. Yeah, yeah. So now you're at home all day reloading, and then you come down here to Sawmill to help me teach a, a long gun course because you just want to get out of the house. I know it's not for the money, Brian. You just want to come hang out with the boys and teach. I don't want to get out of the house. Um, I just take the opportunity to come and like you said, hang out with the boys, mm -hmm. come shoot some guns, you know, and you the, like, you're like me, you like to teach. I do yeah, like yeah, to teach, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I will tell you, I learned a lot today. I, you know, I haven't done anywhere near as much teaching long range a, a, as you have. Um, I've done some and, you know, I've always, you know, helping guys out on the range and stuff like that. But I've noticed every time you teach a long range course, you learn something like you know how many times did i come up to you that is like man you need to put this on your website you know mm -hmm. and 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 one of the 
you know, you could, per, you know, you could perceive it as a, as a boneheaded thing, but the, you know, I'm not going to say what the guy brought, but he brought something that was not conducive to being successful in this course. He's like, Oh, I'm sorry. You probably think I'm dumb. And I'm like, no, you're in the right place, man. Yeah. You, you, you your money is well spent because mm-hmm. now you've, you've learned a lesson. We can correct it. We can, we can get you on the range tomorrow and you won't miss a beat. Um, yeah. you we'll know, educate but, you, you know, if, if you wouldn't, have, if you wouldn't have come to this training or if you wouldn't have come to any training, then, uh, then you would have probably thought you were doing the right thing all along mm-hmm. and you'd have been significantly hindering your capabilities at long range. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think of training civilians? I've trained civilians for a long, like when, uh, like when I was in SWIC from, uh, as a first sergeant, um, one of the things I did on the weekend is one of the ranges near, near Bragg, I, mm-hmm. I taught his handgun courses. Mm-hmm. So I taught civilians at that time and I've been shooting, you know, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, I've been shooting IDPA for like 20 years mm-hmm. and I'm the kind of guy and I, I run, you know, help run matches. I'm a range safety officer. And I'm the kind of guy that when a guy comes up and shoots and he's got his mag, mags backwards, I'm like, hey, buddy, yeah. keep your magazine. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't pass an opportunity, to, especially those. If I can significantly increase a guy's capability or more, make him more safe in two seconds, then then I'm the kind of guy to do that. So mm-hmm. it's you, uh, you'll see it tomorrow on the range when 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 they shoot long distance and they hit it and they turn around, and they're like lit up. It, it's it's super rewarding, man. Well, the it, other it, thing is too. Fun training civilians you're training people that are paying to be trained as mm-hmm. opposed to pay, training people that are getting paid to train yeah. Um, yeah you know these guys are all spending their hard-earned money to to come here and you know to uh you know to learn something about obviously all the courses going on here mm-hmm. so you know to i mean they're all focused they they want to come and they want to do do well and yeah and uh and you know that's one of my things is every time one of these things comes up you know i'm like going I haven't seen that before. I've got to figure out how to how to uh, you know train that guy up to standard. You know, train him out of that uh, deficiency he's got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of good people here. They're here for the right reasons. Yeah, um, we're like at four and a half hours, so we're gonna wrap it up here. Let me ask you one more question. Um, with all the experience you have, all the leadership experience, what would you say the key attribute of a good leader is? Enjoying your job. Really, yeah. I did not expect that. What do you expect? I expected something philosophical, you know, philosophical that was just going to blow my mind. But that's a good answer. That's a no, good answer. I, yeah. I like I liked being a Green Beret. Yeah. And I I liked training. You know, that's what drove me to, uh, you know, to be the best that I could. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there's there's some branches and sequels off that. Obviously, you know, to be a good leader, I think that you have to, let's say, for example, in SF, to be a team sergeant, you know, you have to be. You don't have to be the best. At, at anything, but you can't be the worst at anything. You know, you have to, you know, you have to be a fairly good shooter, uh, or at least do your best to be, you know, you have to be fairly physically fit. You have to know tactics. You have to know enough about each of those MOSs, one, to be able to tell them what they need to do, and two, be able to mentor them within their MOS, and then mentor them, you know, to take over your job and to do all those things. So you gotta enjoy your job, you, you want to be doing it, and you've got to be proficient, you know, across the board in those areas. And you mm-hmm. need to be working on that at all times. So I'd say that's the big key. Because if you don't know what you're doing and you're lazy, you're just not going to be a good leader. Mm-hmm. If you don't like your job, you're not going to be a good leader. What was the best job? Best rank? Best job? Mm, I would say Team Sergeant was the uh, the best job I had. I mean, mm-hmm. that, I mean, 
anything other than that, you know, being a team guy was very good. I would say the most enjoyable job I had was uh, battalion CSM serving in Iraq. That was mm. that was that was very rewarding. I mean, mm. that was just that battalion CSM and group CSM are fun jobs. Mm-hmm. The toughest job I had, obviously, was that battalion operations army. It, it, it pretty much crushed me. Mm. My steepest learning curve was company sergeant major. That's when you come off a team and you make all the mistakes like. I'm going to be a company sergeant major like I would want to have for me. Well, I couldn't rely. All my team sergeants weren't like me as a team sergeant. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that comes one of my one of my philosophies because you want philosophies. I was like, you cannot have a leadership style. You know, you have to tailor your leadership style for every individual that you're leading because different people need different types of leadership. Some people need to be managed more heavily. Some people task condition standard mm-hmm. move out and they'll execute it better than you would have ever expected mm-hmm. so if you're one of those guys that say hey you know this is my leadership style take it or leave it some of them are going to leave it which means you're not going to be a successful leader across the board you, mm-hmm. you got to mod- you got to you know you've got to uh, apply the level of leadership that each of your subordinates needs that's a good way to wrap it up i like that <laughs> brian thank you so much thank yeah. you for your service of 32 years to your country and uh, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Hey, it was. Uh, we'll, we'll see how stupid I sound when it comes out. <laughs> Everybody says her voice sounds dumb. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yep.